Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Here's the task that we have at hand because there's been so much writing and pontificating about the Watchmen graphic novel. Right now we're going to agree to cleanse our minds of all of that previous nonsense that we've read from what I call wackademics. Uh, look at this comic with a clean slate and uh, just see how it stacks up as a reading experience as best we can. All right, man, now that we used our Men in Black little flashlight gimmicks, you ready to read some comics? I am, and uh, before we open this one, because I want to talk about that cover a little bit, yes. uh, I wanted to just hold this under it. Ed, this is your trade paperback of Watchmen. I have a similar trade paperback. That's how I first read Watchmen, probably in the early 90s or so. Uh, probably the same Walden Books purchase for me is same as Dark Knight Returns. This was a book that I had heard a lot about. Third uh, printing, not bad. Yeah, pretty good. Wonder how many printings they're on at this point. Yeah. Um, but it was it was known at that point. It had come out. It was considered sort of a high mark of superhero stories. Uh, I am not somebody that's going to sit here and be like, this is the best comic of all time. I enjoy it, but most of my admiration lies in the craft, which mm -hmm. we will be getting into. And again, starts with the cover. Just unique. You know, you mentioned... Tell me about your experience finding this book and, and picking it up and your reaction. Yeah, so you you hear all sorts of interviews mentioning Watchmen, read articles. Watchmen is his crown jewel, this great pinnacle of, of, of comics. Found that trade paperback at the flea market. Three bucks. Great best three dollars I ever spent. <laughs> and I read it. And it was like it was like okay. Like I was I dug it. There wasn't anything I disliked about it, but was my mind blown? Not really. As I got older, I started to appreciate the craft of it further and further. The storytelling mechanics, the things that were done uh, that were unique to comics. I increased my education on um, with, with creators like Kurtzman and Eisner and sort of understood the possibilities of what could happen in a, in a comic. And I took a lot of this, the stuff that happened in here, for granted and was able to reread it with fresh eyes. But I check it out like once a year probably. One of the things that struck me right away is the weirdness of it. Sure. It was really out of the ordinary for the comics that I was reading, which were mostly the Marvel DC stuff off the spinner rack and then into Image. You know, it's in that window, but that stuff was sort of like toys. You know, it was action figures. It was colorful and selling this stuff. This is those tertiary colors, and you look at that cover, and that is not like an Amazing Spider-Man cover. That is a weird cover. Like, I want a hero. Show me some guy with a bunch of muscles and a cool costume, and instead it's a smiley face button. It's a logo down the side that's in some kind of font that looks cold. It just felt totally different than, like, the language I was used to with comics. And in reading it, it feels like this whole big world of, like, I don't know any of these characters, and yet they're all developed. They seem to, they have history, generations of characters that come before them. So it was kind of this unusual reading experience for all those reasons, where it was just like comics history, like what is this? Felt weird. You know, it, it, it still feels a little bit weird. And I think that's part of what makes it iconic is those weird elements, is the parts that break from all the stuff I was finding on the spinner racks. And as you said, 1986, you know, that's even earlier than I got it. It would have been even more alien on you know next to the whatever marvel was new universe you know what i mean <laughs> star brand yes <laughs> for uh for all of um the stuff that's unique to comics that uh that they bring to the table here uh it's interesting that there are the only time 
that captions are used are for like the Rorschach journals. And uh, Moore was doing Swamp Thing at the time, using very florid purple prose in his in his captioning, but he divorces himself from that here and just kind of like lets the visual do a lot of the talking, which is atypical for almost every other comic he's made. I loved how the covers are like the first panels. Yeah. that That's really neat to me and, and still remains something I like about this series. For sure, man. And this is one of those issues that's like the bookend issue that kind of like ends similarly to the way it uh it begins and starts this, right off man you know influence of watchmen of course is uh the dark age of comics this is kind of the beginning of that and it's because everybody copies this right and it starts with rorschach right like he's such a uh i don't even know what the word is you know nihilistic misanthropic you know whatever you want to apply to him he is certainly that dark grim gritty brooding doesn't like his fellow man that kind of thing. Not a lot of sympathy coming out of uh, out of Rorschach for certainly not for criminals or anybody that does evil. The Ditko-esque qualities, you know, Rorschach is like the question, yeah. you know, the Charlton hero, and it is essentially that everybody is fallen, everybody's a sinner, everybody's weak, everybody does wrongs. It's a really bleak outlook on humanity, and that is our opening voice. Yes, and it, it, it's almost Shakespearean. Dog carcass and alley, like burst stomach, blah, blah, blah. All that's, that's Shakespearean. Like, you, that's been transcribed in movies, those motion comics. Alan Moore has read those uh, statements in different uh, contexts, uh, um, in, in documentaries and stuff. Famous first lines of a comic. Call me Ishmael. <laughs> and here goes Higgins, man, uh, showing off with the with the color, giving us that little flashback sequence of our intruder beating up our guy, and the character's design's perfect, right? It's like this beefy old dude. It's uh, pick pick a wrestler, uh, Harley Race. Yes, you know, perfect. like some old retired guy. You could tell that he's somebody. He's got those poly walnuts wings in his hair, man. So that's that's a good like Reed Richards kind of analog. His face, his face uh, saw some some uh, battle damage. I'm curious how that happened. Yeah, ugly mug. Lots of questions in there. Wearing the pin that we saw on the cover. The it gets you right away, and also gets you with sort of the formal comic elements of this. That nine panel grid structure that runs throughout and is. It creates rhythm, it's claustrophobic, it gets you into that world. Like when we talked about stray bullets and you repeat that grid and pretty soon all you see are the contents of those panels because you're just adjusted to that size. Watchmen does all that. Very dense, very dense book. I think probably one of the only times that in the comic where we see the the sort of panel continue downward this way i i don't even think there are very many where it connects with the very adjacent uh panel in this in this book that top panel is also part of the same perspective grid yeah it is yeah that's really neat and we'll see some interesting variations of the nine panel grid and what they do even in this first issue i love that um i had not noticed that that was all a consistent background so that's really cool and kind of cool to see it here first time reading this you see this guy and you saw him on that first page i was suspicious the very first time i read this man of, of this dude when you see him a couple of times the design is also a little too interesting 
That's a good. That's a good call. I did not make that connection, but I do think it's interesting. I mean, we're not spoiling anything, right? To say who that is. Right. It's Rorschach. So I think it's an interesting piece because this cool vigilante. I mean, it's you know, Batman is that too. Yeah. Right? Just he's violent and whatever, but he's cool and he's desirable. He's attractive. That's often the case with these characters, intentionally or not. Rorschach is very unattractive outside of his costume. This is one of those real good pieces, too, because these guys are talking about Rorschach as they're yes. leaving. And then uh, dude goes, what's the matter? Oh, nothing, just a shiver. Must be getting cold. Right as they walk by really the guy. Good. Yeah. I love this page. Here's our wordless page. Incredible sequence. Full, full moon zine, couple panels that I can put into my full moon zine. But it's a great sequence. It's a great visuals. And again, I'm, I'm in awe of the visuals. Like the craft that we're going to see, that two-thirds two page splash, just stunning. And all of the heroes are going to get that sort of treatment, these big characters, where we bend the grid or we make it six panels um, and we do it in some creative ways i just realized man this is an allusion to uh to issue two it's a it's a woman like kind of with blood on the stomach that's that's kind of calling out the pregnant lady that isn't gonna gonna be long for this world once she uh cuts up his his jibs in vietnam you mentioned uh higgins on the flashback stuff all those uh pink and magenta panels i pointed out here with the broken window i love how the buildings are blue where the glass is intact and then we get to see the the lit up windows where the glass is busted the stuff that uh gibbons does here too with lighting like laying the flashlight down so that it's facing him and really it well creates noirish up lighting and it it's not like Genius. in the movies like cagney where they just do that for effect and there's nothing in the room to give you that light he, he's creating it right there. That's it's sick, really dude. nice. And you see it in the black ink shadows that are cast. Yeah. So that's Gibbons establishing it. And then you see it in the colors yeah. that Higgins putting on. Man, that's the team working together. And of course, you know, you extend that to Alan Moore, but this is really one of those few assembly line comics where the team is just phenomenally in sync with each other. And there it is, man. He finds a sadomasochism mask, the most unfunny uh, <laughs> mask that somebody called the comedian could possibly wear. Yeah, a little irony in the comedian's uh, gimmick. Lays it out. <laughs> I love the layout panel. Like, he can't just look at the closet and be like, oh, comedian's costume. He has to lay it out <laughs> on the ground and be like, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Here we have Alan Moore transition. Looking at the Minutemen photo, and then boom, let's go to uh, Hollis Mason's house. Show that same photo. Yeah, these are, these are the two night owls, uh, first and second generation. At this point, everybody's retired, and now they just get together. They tell stories. They, they enjoy one another's company. Once again, great character design because this, uh, this old Hollis Mason, you could tell he was somebody. Yeah, Silver Fox. Almost uh, Gil Kane-esque or something, the way I picture Gil Kane in my mind. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Dan Dryberg, kind of dumpy. You know, a little wide, definite middle-aged guy with that might have some titties. Very good character design for him. Says a lot about him. You know, low, lower self-confidence, doesn't seem to have the drive that, uh, you know, Rorschach has, for, for example. Here's an interesting kind of like subdued piece. When you, I mean, sure, we, we see the busted lock, but it's not, that's not given to us. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same color as everything else. It's not orange or 
or pointing us there. It's actually kind of giving some respect to the reader. You'll, you'll, you'll see that busted lock. I have a question for you regarding that. Where's the doorknob? Is that, is that like some kind of button access door thing? That, that, that struck me as being strange. Let's, let's Considering keep, how detailed everything of this book is. Let's keep a look uh, at, at, at doors uh, moving forward because we have the electric car. And uh, this is a piece, you know what I was thinking upon this reread? Uh, Alan Moore, before Watchmen, like he was quoted in house ads for Love and Rockets. And uh, he's a big mark for Jaime and Gilbert's work. And uh, Gilbert Hernandez Palomar comes from that great sort of Latin American tradition of magical realism where, you know, you have this real world, but you have a couple of things, a couple of elements that, uh, that you know, are weird or magical. Uh, this comic is a piece of magical realism with the electric, with Dr. Manhattan. It's like everything's played for straight except that one right. thing. But that one guy affects a lot, it creates a lithium to make the electric cars go. And maybe uh, there's some weird door gimmick. But I don't know. Yeah, that is weird. Gibbon's art is so matter-of-fact and straightforward. You know, his compositions, they're beautiful. You know, Dan, Dan standing in the middle of the page, in the middle of the panel, silhouetted, or looking through the doors. Like, it just reads so clearly. If the guy's a little overweight, it's very obvious in yeah. the drawings. I, I, I don't think that that can be, uh, the importance of that can be overstated. I don't know how many cartoonists, especially guys working in that monthly assembly line, I don't know how many would be capable of producing a work like this. I agree. I agree. He comes from like a kind of a Kurt Swan kind of cl cleanness. Yeah. But every line, it's about communication. And it should be noted, he's, he letters this thing too. So those word balloon placements and, and seeing this October calendar, I guess pretty much the whole story takes place in the month of October, if I'm not mistaken. We'll, we'll keep our eye on that. Uh, but yeah, like every line is is communicating story here. The sugar cubes, like they're they're kind of like an ongoing piece. Yeah, a, a runner. Yeah, so bizarre. You know what? Go back one page. So here he breaks the eight panels. It's still a nine panel grid, but he he makes it eight panels by combining them. But they work. It still works. You yeah, know? like that's still a composition that's incredible and and even mirrors the entrance uh, on the previous page. It's spectacular, these panel layouts. Yeah, agreed. And, and uh, keep in mind, he, he thumbnailed these things, I think, eight pages per one piece of computer paper. So we right. drew these things very, very small, blew them up, and we had the opportunity to ask him, man, did you lightbox them shits, man? Because they are so close. He's like, nah, I just eyeballed it, flexing on us. Yeah. All of the background stuff, too, is really impressive to me, the, the level of detail and clarity. Like, uh, I was admi admiring the kitchen, you know, and it has, like, a backsplash and stuff, and it's, and wow. And there's continuity to it. Yeah. Like, when you revisit that kitchen, it's all going to have the same stuff. When you revisit this little uh, owl lair or whatever, it's going to retain all the same love this, geography. Love this owl lair, too. Every, every part of this, this tour that we're going on is just beautiful. This is, uh, I think there's more variation in issue one than later issues in terms of like four panels instead of three. That's the only time I think it, it, it happened already. It happened on the intro page. Ah, uh, dig. There's your two-page splash intro for Night Owl and Dan and the contrast between the heroic versus where he is today. Huge contrast. Says a lot, man. Says a lot. He's a drip. Yeah. And Rorschach, just kind of his presence reminds him of the compromise and giving up as the hero. How about that for beautiful color? Oh, yeah, for Sun sure. Sun coming up. 
we have the uh, the obligatory superhero rooftop sequence, right? But it's it's a sequence like uh, Rorschach is filled with so much uh, self deception. You know, he's the only guy below below him is all the scum and villainy and gross people. Uh, yeah, literally above it all. <laughs> and, and I make a mistake, that's dusk, not dawn. Uh, but I love that color color palette. Like, he's just waiting for the darkness is when he makes sense. And he's going to get some answers about the comedian, and if anybody knows anything, goes to Happy Harry's. I love the way he looks in all of these. It's so menacing. You know, when you see him in a distance in there, it is just like... That is a great face design, mask design for him. I'm surprised there's no fight back. So he grabs a guy who's given him some smart ass in the crowd that makes a, a, a remark, grabs him, starts torturing him for information. Nobody does anything. Rorschach does not look that intimidating. It's a scary mask, but he's not a big dude. I don't see a gun. Like, this is a bar full of toughs. It's history. Like, I guess. E even the guy sitting at the table was like, oh, I'm going to, like, yo, watch, watch, your, watch your mouth, man. The bartender is like, oh, Rorschach. Like, this is establishing that Rorschach is a bad motherfucker, man. I guess so. Even the guy whose finger's getting broke, though, doesn't try anything. He's like, just keep breaking my fingers, man. I'm not going to take a swing at you. I'm not going to jerk away. This guy right here, like, I always think about, it, it, it looks like an Otomo drawing, you know? It looks like a dude straight out of Neo-Tokyo. It's one of the odder panels in this whole Watchmen book. It's placed in the center of the page, it mirrors Rorschach. It doesn't mirror Rorschach, it parallels Rorschach from the previous panel. It's an odd one. Yeah. But that one confuses me a little bit. Let's go to Vite Industries, man. Introduce Adrian Vite to the gimmick. The world's smartest man. Yes. And he all uh, monetizes himself. This is really great because Rorschach basically calls him a prostitute or a whore, and he calls Rorschach a Nazi. <laughs> and I don't know if either one of them is wrong. Right. It's Rorschach's not a likable guy. He's cast in that role as being the Punisher or something, but he's a, a very unlikable character. It's the Cold War era, and we're facing nuclear annihilation, a, a war between the USA and USSR, and the smartest man alive is going to try to stop it through yeah. this devious plot of having uh, creating an alien life that unifies the Earth. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. He's also the guy behind the mask killer gimmick, the, the, the killer of the comedian. Why kill the comedian? Why have any part of Watchmen? We just have a smart guy who's trying to convince the world that aliens exist and are a threat. There's no reason for this story to exist. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think like when he's getting all those people, all the creatives and stuff, putting them on the island, I think the idea is like take out the people who are who pose the biggest threat and like the comedian poses a big like a, a threat to him. Dr. Manhattan poses a threat to his plan. Uh, Rorschach poses a threat to the plan. So just get those guys the hell out of there so that you can keep going with your thing. I see no evidence that they get connected to him without the death of the comedian. That who gets connected? Rorschach, Manhattan. Manhattan doesn't seem to care at all. And uh, Rorschach only seems to care because of the comedian's death. Yeah, I probably should have took Rorschach out first. Or not at all. Let comedians sit in his TV, watching TV and drinking beers at home. Comedian's not going to care either. A bunch of artist intellectuals are missing. Comedian's not going to care about that. Yeah, I, I guess. think the whole plot is, is nonsensical. For that reason. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. 
I still think smartest man. I, I'm suggesting the smartest man on earth is not as smart as he thinks he is. But are you suggesting that the smartest man on earth is Jim Rugg? <laughs> <laughs> I found a hole in his plan. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, let's go military base. Yes, I love this sequence. Love the color. Love the signage. Love it all. This is really fun. Yeah, good uh, kind of uh, sneaking mm -hmm. scenario. Yep, <laughs> couple of them. You know, we, we watch him go the whole way through this process. Again, tip my hat to Dave Gibbons for like drawing this kind of stuff. It's the equivalent of a chase scene, sneaking into a complex facility. And then I love it. Once he actually gets in there, you get a blue sliver of light and then open the door and it just feels like you're being lit by that. Yes, that's there the sound is, effect. <laughs> and his two thirds page splash, those six panels are the stack vertical. Love it. I am madly in love with that compositional choice. When he draws Dr. Manhattan, he is just showing off that he knows where every muscle is supposed to go and how many heads tall a dude should be and how far back the ears are from the eyes. Like every illustration of Dr. Manhattan is a very well drawn image of a nude muscular human, human <laughs> figure. That's true. <laughs> yeah, beautiful stuff. And Sally Jupiter, uh, Dr. Manhattan's companion, we see her as well, introdu introduction of both of them. Yes. Manhattan is a really good design. Such a creepy look. Even the lines, like the shade lines that are just those parallel lines, it still stands out. Yeah. Good choices. Dave Gibbons does some things too with the proportionality of his characters looks different here than it does in any of his other comics. Like it's small head, very long, lanky bodies. His other comics don't really, the characters really don't look that way. So he's making this conscious choice of, of, of doing that. And one of the things I'm going to make note of as we read in the future, because it's not something I thought of, I just sort of came to mind now. Like, are these lanky characters indicative of like the superhero characters? That's what I was wondering, yeah. And when we start to see, you know, Joe Average on the street, if they're more squat and, and uh, normal sized. Look at that, to have to draw all those parts, like he's expanded this this piece with his mind or whatever. Yeah, just setting up that like watchmaker scenario that's going to come later. Establishing all these characters, we get all their points of view. He clearly doesn't give a fuck. This girl is kind of like a product of nepotism, superhero nepotism. I always love that panel of Rorschach walking by the graffiti and everything. Yeah. It feels like a very iconic one. You can see a little bit of who watches the Watchmen graffiti. Like up on the top right side. Crystal knocked. It, it, but it's all, uh, it's all comic book lettering. That's the thing I love, you know, as a fan of lettering. All the found letter. I mean, Gibbons doing all of it. You know, it's not. Sometimes I'll see sound effects in a comic and wonder, is that the letter or the artist? Here, you just know if you see it, that's that's Dave Gibbons. Yeah, man. And there's so much of that throughout that just builds this world. And this world includes a President Richard Nixon who's on like his third or fourth term or something. <laughs> and this is Sally Jupiter and, and Dan Night Owl going out and connecting a little bit. Her getting some human contact. Dr. Manhattan's pretty far removed from human at this point. Yeah. Talking about the good old days, man. Talking about the neck plunging neckline of her costume. And Dan Dryberg's all, yeah, yeah, that was that was kind of over the top. She's like, you know, 80s feminist. Hear me roar. And uh, Gallo's humor as they 
trade old stories and they talk about some guy who just wanted to be around superheroes and would, would fake like he was a criminal and have like asthma attacks he was so excited and uh she says whatever happened to him he tried it with rorschach and he dropped him down an elevator shaft <laughs> and they both laugh and then they're like man that's not funny what do you expect man comedian is dead and wrap it up with a bob dylan quote it's uh and it you know like it it ends the way it started semi close up on that smiley face as we pull back into uh you know the stratosphere yeah it's it's quite an achievement quite an accomplishment hell of a first issue setup you know, gotta build a world man to get the richness of these characters and to have certain things pay off in issue seven that that uh we see set up here rorschach looking at the people in the building uh part of the reason i was i mentioned that plot device is that mask killer it's the same kind of thing that's in the incredibles pixar's movie and it made me wonder like the mask killer concept does that originate in watchmen or is that a reference to some older um, story and I, I don't know the answer to that i can't point at an older one and say oh yeah this is common or or has been done before right but certainly it's been done since and then this under the hood is uh is part of building that world as well this is hollis mason's uh, autobiography and it's kind of a strange story it starts out and it's a little bit of alan moore like how to write so the very beginning mason's like i don't know exactly how to start a story someone told me start with the saddest story you know and then after that it's it's only up from there I don't know if that's a good advice or not, but that's kind of my thinking reading this is you get a little insight into Alan Moore's thought process. And uh, and his saddest story is about a guy who kills himself in a garage after, uh, well, his wife leaves him and stuff. So a little bit sad. I don't know if it's the saddest story, but, uh, you know, it's it's this ancillary material runs through the back of all of these Watchmen books. And it's one more piece that makes this comic feel very different, especially yeah. at the time whenever I started reading this and picking these up where it's like, what is this part, you know, and you're reading it, and it was just a different comic book experience. For sure, like, you, you read it a couple of times and you realize, like, so much more work was done behind the scenes than we respect, and this is, like, our closest kind of insight into some of that back mat that back back-end work that was done before we started to get all of these companion books and, and interviews coming out and stuff. Uh, you could tell that that's the old dude that Dan Dryberg was talking to. You know what I mean? Like, these are simple line drawings, but the proportions of them and everything that Dan, that Dave Gibbons puts down on paper, there's no mistaking who that is. Yeah, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable project. And this kind of extra material, you know, like I mentioned when I got hold of this, it felt like there was a whole history of these characters, a whole world, previous generations, not by accident you know i mean that's what that excerpts from a biography of a very distant supporting character uh it is a world that these guys are putting together which was just new you know this is a time whenever comics definitely superhero comics are still aimed at eight-year-old readers nine-year-old readers right and what's going on with watchmen it was a whole different vision for it i think that work that is really iconic and, and paradigm shifting suffers because everything after it is influenced by it to some degree right so if you show up now 25 years later 30 35 years later and you're reading this everything you've read in comics is well at least marvel dc kind of comics for for decades touches watchmen so you've been exposed to watchmen even if you've never read it and i think that that can hurt the original works 
impact. It happens a lot. Movies, yeah, Pulp novels. Fiction, I think, really suffered from that. It felt like every indie, indie genre movie after it in the 90s referenced it in some way or the other. So I think that that's something that Watchmen has to overcome in, in you know, with audiences. But it's interesting to see how it has held up. You know, like it has been a perennial book. It has spawned TV shows, movies, sequels, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, there aren't that many properties in comics over the last 40 years that can say that. Hey, Jimmy, let's talk uh, Watchmen issue number two. October 1986, that magical comics year. And, uh, you know, I, I, I read this later. I read this in the trade paperback yeah. format. But I always like to imagine, like, what would it be like, especially for a book like Watchmen, paradigm shifting, and you go to the store, issue two comes out, you had read issue one, pretty intriguing, you're on board. Issue two is a dark issue, man. We talked about it uh, in the first issue, like, you know, what is it? But we were forward projecting, like, we knew what the heck the comic was. When you read issue one, it feels like a standard Columbo whodunit, you know, who killed comedian. That's what we're in for, right? Uh, we perpetrate we, we perpetrate that a little bit more here, but it's going to get some nuance. One of the coolest things with Watchmen is how that cover image leads into your, your comic. And in the trade paperback, it's really clear. You know, yeah. cover into like panel one. It's like, this is really panel one is your cover. I always loved that. I, I, do don't, too. I don't know that that's the first time it's been done, but man, it's done really well in Watchmen. Yeah, it's great. And we have, uh, we're intercutting. You can see, man, it's that, it's that syncopated rhythm where every panel is a different location oscillating between the funeral of Edward Blake and, uh, and Sally Jupiter one and two. Uh, at the uh, old folks home. Yeah, uh, as we're going to see in this issue, there's some history between Sally's mother and the comedian, and uh, Sally really wants no part of going to that funeral, so John sends her, uh, teleports her to go visit her mom in California. Yeah, and once again, we're going we're gonna to read this like we don't know what's coming, man. Try to have a clear mind uh, and just sort of take it for what it is. Uh, this is interesting. T check out the title treatment in the issue compared to... The trade paperback, much nicer approach Yeah. here. Do you think this is a Dave Gibbons choice? Because it is the same, you know, he's using a font in both versions. Uh, Dave Gibbons, the letterer. Do you think he's picking this font? Because it, it gives it a certain distinguished quality in my mind. It feels like this is a more mature, sophisticated uh, comic book. And I think, you know, things like the little details of, let's, let's set the credits in the title in this font rather than hand lettering it. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, probably. I'm sure he's not doing paste of some mechanicals on like the back matter where it's like the fake books and stuff. Right. You, like you get the you get the job guys to do that shit. But this seems pretty important. It's very alien compared to other comics. Think of what DC's publishing in 1986. Like a very different visual approach. Yeah, for sure. Uh, John John Higgins on the color duties, man. We got to give him mad props with separating place. Uh, through color with and, and um, creating mood. Absolutely, that, that cemetery scene is dreary. Yeah, and it's clearly like a sunny, sunny, uh, sunny day at the at the old folks' home. Dave Gibbons selling body types again. We mentioned uh, his his night owl kind of doughy body type man. Uh, old school Sally Jupiter man. Very believable bodies on on these characters. Right. Um, still idealized a little bit. You know, if you start counting like head heights, there, there's that fashion model head heights. But the weight feels like real weight. And we're getting uh, still some of that weird like futurism or like alternate time timeline stuff with, with these uh, 
funeral guys with the little little deals on their head unless that's a religion i just don't know about yeah i don't know what that's a reference to because they're folding up i think a flag i, I feel like so they're it's like soldiers the, the mil right the military component of comedians history represented there so i don't know what those hats are there are those like little bits man just like sally jupiter right there man smoking uh smoking her little crack pipe you'll see you'll see people doing the, that shit <laughs> What do you think that denotes? Is that a drug as opposed to a cigarette or just a cigarette? Because she's doing it, I, I think it's a cigarette, but you do see the hoods doing it. And then it's like, man, like uh, crack is on the streets. But if she's doing it, she, you know, she's kind of square. Her mother makes a big production of it, like opening windows and Coughing. doors and stuff. And so Sally finally puts it out, guilted into it. Uh, and, and we get into this discussion about the way life changes as you get older. And it reminded me of just nostalgia. It feels like there's a lot of these moments that more is i don't know looking at comics but filtering it through filtering the message through like a more domestic conversation nostalgia is a big deal i mean like the the perfume isn't yeah. just there for for no reason uh there is one piece right here where is it silk specter i think it is silk specter one and two but i'm not sure of her name yeah 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 uh anyhow silk specter one when she's sitting there and is like he sent me an item of memorabilia. Americans don't talk that way. I have an item of memorabilia. That sounds too proper. Yeah, if we focused as much on the writing as we do the art, I'm sure you could find those stylistic ticks all over the place. I do like that uh, we're talking Tijuana Bible. So, like, let's go before the damn superhero comic, man, and show off a little Tijuana Bible. Uh, it's I would love to read the whole eight page. Like, let, let that be the back matter. And my introduction to the Tijuana Bible was in that uh, comics by Les Daniels book. And you get to see a couple examples right here, man. Like, look at this, man. Bad guy. Bad guy uh, Tijuana Bibles with uh, Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger having sex. Hey, what's the matter, girly? And, like, <laughs> pinching her butt and stuff. And, like, popping his head into a dorm room, wielding guns with a naked student. So it's, yeah, school for girls. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's very quaint uh, from today's standards, but funny to see that. All right, man, let's let's go back in time. And this is the issue when I read it as a little kid. I was like, okay, his name's the comedian, but he's a really bad guy. So it's just like yeah, I'll say. when there's, you know, a big, a big fat gangster bad guy and he's called Mr. Tiny or right. something. Love the transition. We see her reflecting on this photograph of the Minutemen, the, the, the team that she was part of in the Golden Age. And a little bit of a sun glare off of the glass cuts perfectly to the camera flash. And now we're back. Yeah, the Alan Moore transition is a, is a, you know, he writes about it. Yeah. And we see it on display really well here. It's a, it's a good transition from photograph to back in, in that moment. And you see post-photograph, everybody's all gathered. It's a good reason to have the group all in one room together. There's this great, uh, there's subtle stuff that's kind of interesting, too, about, about the uh, Silk Spectre character. So, like, the last name is, uh, when you hear it, you know, in those motion comics, it's Uspechik. But it's spelled, like, like, Jew. And the character is one of kind of like the old comic creators who kind of hid their ethnicity right so it's like jew is in her name and she's jewish and she's trying to hide the fact that she's jewish so that, that's just like one of those like other like little bits of detail but she's got to get dressed man to go to the bar and hang out with the guys this is where young eddie brock man comes back and uh 
it's it, it is a uh, it is a rape sequence masked vigilante comes in rape and uh violent abuse i mean that's what rape is you know like yeah, I guess it so. has nothing to do with sex it's like destroying somebody's soul it's still pretty graphic all around yeah and then he still manages like even when he gets his ass beat he still manages to like get under the skin of that that masked vigilante dude comedian is a horrible person yeah. but a great character like because of that moment because of like let me throw some psychology your way hooded justice guy that thinks you're so you know self-righteous hooded justice let me tell you about you right so we're back to the uh the old folks home and we get to see another little glimpse of this uh dave gibbons doing r crumb like down to the lettering like that's r crumb lettering it's so strong man yeah lettering on lettering is some of i just love it that's such a cool panel yeah because i mean what goes into that jimmy right like he's used has to use different tools to like get that line yeah very awesome even being reproduced in black and white on the page is kind of a cool way to see a comic within a comic yes all right going back to uh the funeral and we're going to see an Eddie Brock sequence from Ozymandias' point of view. I want to point out one last piece in terms of like art within art. So, you know, her mother's has all this paraphernalia from the Minuteman days, and we see little glimpses of it. There is so much of that, like, you know, newspaper headlines that you can read, maps, all of this like meta art information within these panels. I'm in awe of it because, like, it's deceptively simple at times, his art until you start looking at it right it's just it's simple compared to say the excessive cross hatching that we would see in the early 90s but in terms of the content and how much is packed into these panels it's remarkable every line that's put down is 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 there for a purpose and when you see these kinds of things it is a, a comic book it's a caption it's, yes. a, it's a storytelling device but it's just not telling you meanwhile right yeah well said That's that thing where Alan Moore's scripts are incredibly thoughtful. Yeah. But also, you need the collaborator that's able to actually apply that and put it, translate that into something visual. That is, it's hard to have that amount of depth. Yeah. If we, if the channel goes on long enough, we'll have to start doing uh, Supreme, Supreme Comics. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, comedian, little older. So the character design changes. We saw that in not watching the Watchmen book. Like he has designs for every stage of growth of the character from the, the young scrappy to uh, the day he dies. And he's basically poo-pooing and shitting on the idea of a Justice League being formed uh, a, a second time or whatever. Look at the greatness of this. So we have the, I forget what it's called whenever a panel stretches across several panels, but it's one image. And we have this main guy who brought them together talking. His arrow that comes off panel points to him. Yeah. It's, it's, phenomenal the design and of course prominently comedian just shitting on his point there in the foreground the big big character uh, a lot of weight and a lot of darkness that he adds to this scene of otherwise very colorful pastel color characters and comedians just black and gray we've seen uh rorschach before and he's got a very uh, specific kind of uh, dialogue balloon he's not far gone here yet he gets right. he gets the regular dialogue bubble Good, so, good, so that's good note. worth noting and here you go with the proportions like i swear like dave gibbons didn't always draw his figures 
with these kind of proportions. His Green Lanterns aren't built th- this way, and uh, and his like Martha Washingtons aren't built this way with these like super elongated forms. It makes me wonder how much he plays with these forms. Something I hadn't noticed in the past, but if he changes the uh, like the proportions throughout the story, you know, here they're they're heroic, right? This is a yeah. superhero team. Rorschach hasn't gone through his darkest hours, right? Uh, I wonder if that changes as the story progresses and as we see these characters break down and become more human and less romanticized ideal superhero. Yeah, we'll keep note of that, man. Also, the transition right here, man. Somebody has to do it. Somebody has to save the world, and then we rematerialize to modern-day Adrian Veidt. Yeah, not not giving too much away, but foreshadowing. On your rereads. Right. That's where you go, oh, damn, that's dope. Yes, it is. Oh, that's dope. One of the few times where we deviate from the nine-panel grid... Yeah, I think they do less of that as the story progresses, but a few times here in the first couple issues. Yeah. And we're going back to Nam. One point perspective on that top splash page. Yeah, it makes it makes it work good, man. Having it on that angle really really helps a bunch. You see you get to see oh dude, that's Moloch right there probably. Yes. With the with the uh with the roses. Not too many people there. Oh yeah, that is Moloch. You can see him right there. And this issue, we're getting, we're getting some anecdotes of a comedian from a bunch of different people. It's Dr. Manhattan's turn. Yeah. Beach party, Vietnam, surfing with the Viet Cong, surfing hot dogs with Napalm. I love the white around Manhattan in the rain. Right. Yeah, like like he he's got like uh, his own layer of atmosphere around him or something, man. It's very shorthand for comics, like how you may, how do you separate him? Mm-hmm. But also, it's very dramatic. It's cool. Yeah. It. it Selling the nuclear thing in, in, in comics, there's a lot of ways that it's done, and they're all pretty cool. So this ain't, this ain't our world, man. The yeah, Americans... this is great. I, I like this a lot on the reread. The Vietnam, uh, you know, redoing Vietnam with Dr. Manhattan in your pocket. Yeah. Uh, all the implications of that. You know, Nixon becoming president forever. Um, and then speculation about what does America look like if we lost this war? It might have driven us a little crazy, you know, as a country. He Pretty says, good. yes, very good. Parallels with like the last chopper out of Saigon is now like the first chopper into Saigon. Yeah. So you see the celebrating, almost like straight from the, uh, straight from those propaganda time of life photos and junk. And enter stage left. Let's go back one more. I, I can't help pointing out details, but here's the, uh, the Richard Nixon sign, hi Dick, and it's backwards because we're behind the crowd, so you can still see some of the lettering through the sign, but it's backwards because we're behind it. It's totally thinking, man. It is. It's totally That's thinking. That's some next level stuff for a detail that tiny. And this is where you, you, you thought the rape scene was a dark moment in comedian's history. One of many. And by the way, like, you know, this scene is why that one preacher comic with Stephen Flat even exists, man, where it's like uh, Vietnam prophet is uh, yes. k- killing pregnant ladies and stuff. You know, it just comes directly from here. This is a nuts sequence. So comedian impregnates a woman in Vietnam, hates Vietnam, wants to get out of there. End of the war, he's happy to leave. And uh, the the mother of his child shows up. Yes. And... And he knows as soon as he sees her, like, oh, God. He's like, listen, America number one, Vietnam number 10. I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm going to forget about you. She's like, nah, you're not going to forget about me. We discover how he got that scar on his jib. Pretty good scar origin. And he pulls out the gat, 
and just stands there stoically. Wow. Does her in. And uh, Dr. Manhattan's like, don't do it. But then you get the whole piece, like, once again, like, comedian, able to, to sort of uh, get under your skin, identify, uh, hit you with a little psychological warfare. It's like, dude, you could have turned the bullets into snowflakes. You could have turned that bottle into confetti. Yeah. It's a dark moment for, for Manhattan. It really it tells is. you a lot about that character. It's rough. Like, like again, top of the show, I mentioned, imagine reading this off the stands. You're, you're one and a half issues into this series. You have no idea what Watchmen is. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, this ain't, this ain't a rainy day fun for boys and girls. When I think about this, yeah. When I think about this story, rereading it has, has forced me to read this stuff because I don't remember this stuff. You know, like right. I remember the, the cool shots. I remember this kind of stuff, like all the cool drawings and everything. You go back through and see these details and it really, it really colors like the dark age of comics and, and just how dark and gritty this stuff was. Yeah, and I mean, it's the introduction to that in a, in a lot of ways, man. You you had your alcoholic uh, Iron Man before, but, you know, let's put that on the microscope one day and, and compare that. By the way, talking about details, looking in the little Night Owl ship, you see the uh, fire extinguisher that's going to come into play during their little superhero lovemaking session. I love the Night Owl ship so much. Yeah. I saw uh, when the first when a Zack Snyder flick was made. Uh, there's a video of Dave Gibbons visiting the Night Owl shit and just like being blown. Like this is, I drew this. Yeah. Can you imagine? I can remember Mike Mignola talking about like the, on the set of Hellboy and sitting there with Ron Perlman in full makeup and it's just like just, just staring surreal. at him. Yeah, like I can't imagine cosplayers start dressing up as Red Room characters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another iteration of comedian right now with the full on mask. Yeah, just like the gimp mask, it's like uh, bondage slave mask. Like, there's some kink shit there. Yes, darker and darker. And they talk about it. I can't remember if it's within this comic or in the text piece afterwards, but about him moving on. It might be here, moving on to like the leather and stuff to protect himself as, you know, he's just exposed to more and more violence as he descends deeper and deeper into his hellish life. Yeah, and you see the example right there, like catches the can to the head, man. Like might get a little cut if you uh, only was were wearing a domino mask and here we see his kind of like hard ass approach a dude just like busting out some uh, graffiti and then he does them in with a couple pumpkin balls all right man one more detail here yes note the outlines of the word balloons whenever right. we saw the first minuteman meetings they were they were the nice smooth ovals wow. already we're getting into like the the edges of the word balloons look how smooth wow. ovals templates french curves and now it's kind of like getting just grosser and, and harder i never noticed that that's incredible it's a different world man it's funny too because that's what they talk about you know and and Night Owl is, is pointing out that difference and comedians like he's at home. Yeah. And you, I mean, you totally get that sense. He's, he's loving it. Back to the funeral sequence. Notice who was not at the uh, funeral, man. I didn't see any Rorschach there, but then as Moloch leaves after putting down the, those roses, we see that guy from issue one holding that end is nigh sign. Do you remember whenever you realized that was Rorschach? I, I'm telling you, like when I first read that thing and I first saw him, I, I just I knew that character was important. Yeah. And then when you see him in the second issue, it's like, okay, we're just gonna see this guy forever. Like, 
what what is that? Yeah, I made no connection of, to it until the until the reveal. Like, sure, it was just something I didn't. It didn't add up to me. Yeah, me me too. Which me is too. part of what makes this so fun to reread. I mean, I I had reread it before this rereading. I, I I knew it going into this reread, but it is awesome. Like I was looking at for Moloch in the funeral scene, for right, example. Right. The guy who played Moloch in the flick, it was Max Headroom, right? I don't know. I've never. I have no idea. I, I think it was, and if it wasn't, then they, in a wizard thing, they they cast the Max Headroom guy as Moloch, and that's all I see when I see Moloch now. Like, it totally works. This the set design is so perfect for everybody's crib, man. So Moloch's place, he looks. It's you know, it's the old school black bachelor. So has those rounded like Frigidaire, like those scary refrigerators that require us to like not have the warnings. door on anymore. Right. Yes. Like the ones that clasp shut. This is very uh, dynamic. Where Shaq comes out at the bottom, like, there. like a like a superhero shot. Really strong, yeah. You note the contrast; it's so vertical and yeah. horizontal leading up to that. Um, contrast is everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's like we're getting an example of a superhero doing what a superhero does. So you give that crazy angle. Yeah, really strong. They have milk bottles still in that version in 1986. Amazing colors just coming off the uh, off the off the character, like the sort of side lighting. But this is where we're going to be getting into the the uh, flickering light scenario, man. And that that was sort of inspired by Har Harvey Kurtzman comics. Uh, I could sh show off some cool examples of that when we look at more Mads. Look at Higgins lighting. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Face. Like like this even like it's so Gas cool, light. man. I love this with the. It's a silhouette essentially because of the backlight from the refrigerator light, but it's still like purples and, and blues and stuff. Yeah, see, this is the shit right here, man, where you got like the little, like, you know, motel light or whatever outside, the light from the bar, and it's just flickering on and off, on and off, on and off. Parallel to the cross cutting and the opening pages of this issue. Right, exactly. And They're really messing with the reader. This, and, this level of, like, OCD, in a way, it matches all of us. Right. You know, it really caters to almost the psychological profile of comic book, especially superhero comic readers of this time period who are cataloging first appearance, last time this character appeared, when some change happened, you know, in footnotes. Right. This is really taking that to an extreme level, probably the highest level you see in a superhero comic. I'm a sucker for the first-person point of view. In, in comics, uh, Moore did it once before with the Boogeyman character from Swamp Thing, the one serial killer dude. Uh, great example of it here. And this is where we learn that it's not just a who, a simple who. There's a, there's a reason yeah. behind uh, the comedian's disposal. And he saw some stuff. What did, we see? what did he see? We have no idea. We know that writers, scientists, and artists have something to do with it. And it's big. And it's scary. And we've built this character up as a vicious piece of shit with no feelings. And he's a scumbag and he's awful. And he was witness to something that crosses his lines. You know, this is, this is great. Because I had raised the point in issue one of, like, why kill this guy and, and start this whole mass killer? Did he know? Well, he knew. Okay, good. Explained it in issue two. My question now going forward as we get into this reread is, what did he see that was this bad? Because, like, he shoots the mother of his unborn child 
and, and seems okay with it. So like, what do you see out the window of your plane that is this bad? And I'm curious to see if that pays off. Right. It probably will. You know, I'm not suggesting it won't after, after <laughs> I've already been quieted from that first issue concern. <laughs> But it does set up this stuff. There's a lot of that, that that Moore does really well where it's it's set up, right? It's anticipation. It's like, okay, now I have a question about this that I need answered. Yeah. Makes, you know, keep reading. Find those answers. And then and then we get into the Judge Dredd aspect of uh, Rorschach. It, and he's just like looking for, for, for any reason to fuck this dude up. Finds an illegal uh, prescription one of the famous lines man uh you know i have cancer what kind of cancer you know the kind that you get better from i don't have that kind of cancer and then he lets him be Jeez. but writes up the company he's a real <laughs> narc yeah he's no fun at all there you get your high high-tech taxi cabs juxtaposed with uh early 80s 42nd street absolutely man enola gay and the little boys yeah. Man, 42nd Street, what a weird mythological place at this point in the world. Yeah, read Josh Allen Friedman's book, Times Square, man, and get some crazy stories. Stranger than fiction type shits. Or go watch Taxi Driver, you yeah. know, to, to get some visual reference of what that looks like. And here's that, like, duality of, like, the Rorschach personality. So, like, we, you know, we know that he was that guy holding the sign, right? So, so he was already at the funeral, but now Rorschach has to go. That was Walter Kovacs. Now, now he's got to go to the funeral. This panel with the reflection is one of the coolest. I look at that and I just think like, that's the best question drawing ever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what a, what an amazing panel with him, with the reflection in the middle of the panel. And it's so small, but beautiful. Gibbons doesn't fake anything, man. Like, like the perspective all lines up. You know, there's no floating characters. Like, he's he's a a real illustrator, man. Follows all the rules. What do you reference it, Jim? The, the repetition of things just never, ever stops. So we have Comedian right before he's chucked out the window, and you see where the hand placement is, and you see him a week before in Moloch's apartment and the hand placement's the same kind of deal. It's, it's, it's this mirror imaging just over and over. Yeah. Funhouse mirrors almost. <laughs> and you, and you always pick new ones up, right? Like I never noticed that one either. Tells the, tells the clown joke in Rorschach's Another journal. classic thing. That's what I'm saying. This shit is like Shakespeare in a way. Like you could almost like recite this stuff. I, I am Pagliacci. They're aiming really high. You can see why Watchmen is is held in the regard it's held. I, I'm not the biggest Watchmen fan. You know, like I don't sit around going, "This is the best comic ever." Mm -hmm. But in terms of superhero comics, it is absolutely amazing, and it will reward those reread, reread, scrutinize, look at all the details, and it's this kind of stuff where it's like Dave Gibbons is really taking superhero art to another level with these kind of details of word balloons evolving as these characters, you know, as the world falls. And I think it's the same thing with Alan Moore. You know, they're just aiming at this spot that's so much higher than what people would aim at with superhero comics up to this point. It's remarkable. It's really visionary. Absolutely. And, and like, the words and picture play with all of this stuff, man. Good joke. Everybody laughs. Roll on snare. Curtains. Like, yeah. It's, it's perfect. It really is. And then this is something that we, that we discovered after uh, we recorded that. 
Yeah, man, I got so mad. Someone pointed out, why did you censor the Bob Dylan quote? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> didn't even realize that it wasn't in, you know, I was look, following along in the trade paperback, didn't realize it wasn't there. Here we have Elvis Costello. Got to be a rights issue. Yeah, the, the companies are, are shook, man. They're big wusses. And uh, they just didn't get the clearances fast enough or something. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Everybody's just got a job. Like, the original people who created the company ain't working there. They just want to preserve their job, and they're going to play it safe. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've done corporate comics. They go through a, a lawyer review process where, like, anything of question, a logo on shoes in the background, got to remove them. Yeah. And it's like nobody's suing over that, but also those lawyers got to justify their hourly rate, I guess. That's it. They're going to find something. Yeah. And then Quite we have an issue. Yeah, we have our little piece of under the hood where it kind of just builds on top of some of that Minuteman stuff that we saw earlier. Yeah, it I like this piece. Explains, uh, you know, so how some of the characters like where they're at these days. It's the whole history of the Minutemen. Yeah. From 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 Hollis, you know, figuring out his character, working at the gym extra before and after his policeman shift, the uh, the group coming together and then being separated as like you know comedian gets kicked out after his assault. Uh, Silk Spectre quits, which is like. He cites it as like the biggest thing, the the biggest, the most serious blow when Sally quit crime fighting to marry her agent. It's hard for me to believe that's the most serious blow of what we've seen from these flashbacks. I, right. I think there's some darker stuff. Various characters, before he says that's the most serious blow, he explains three characters that are killed. Uh, I think those are probably more serious blows. Superheroes being shot and killed in the streets. He listen, he has a crush on the girl and he doesn't get to see her anymore. Nevertheless, I like this excerpt because it is like stuff. a whole history of the team. Young, young uh, Moloch, get to see his young form when he was a strapping uh, arch villain. Get to see yet another kind of iteration of uh, the Vietnam, Vietnam era uh, comedian, which just looks uh, terrifying. You know, yeah. he's, he's enjoying it too much out there. You know there. what? World War II, 42. Oh, yeah, yeah, World yeah. War II. This is, this is the most, uh, you know, jovial comedian you're going to get. It's still kind of pure of heart. He's young. I think he's like 16 whenever he takes up the comedian. If you do all of his, uh, you know, like birth right. stuff, I think he's like 16 when he starts crime fighting as the comedian. Right. So pretty young in World War II, he's a hero. And that's a real idealized war. So you see him in kind of a... I don't know, a happier place. <laughs> Heck of um, a chapter. By the way, under the hood excerpts, Alan Moore culpable whenever DC makes like a dozen spinoff series because he's given history to all these characters. He's given the <laughs> blueprint. This is the Bible of how you can keep making Watchmen uh, comics. Anyway. Anyway. That's a good issue. Yeah. There's a lot in that issue. It's with a heavy heart, man, that we're going to cover Watchmen issue three, the uh, Dr. Manhattan divorce uh, issue, man. Sad day in, in Dr. Manhattan's life, no doubt. For the man who has everything. Exactly. But man, how great that cover looks with the blue and yellow. These covers are all very striking. And uh, as we've said before, you know, the story starts, that's kind of your first panel. It's amazing to think this is like your first panel. And yet all of these covers look striking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they made a choice, man. This is the issue that Alan Moore cites as things really really clicking and from like from page one uh this is going to be the introduction of like the black freighter the kind of story within the story part and from panel one man uh delirious i saw the hellbound ships black sails against the yellow indies sky and you got like the the trefoil of the nuclear fallout gimmick with the three sail type right uh shapes 
against that yellow sign, you're going to see so many of those tandems in this very issue alone and moving forward. We're not going to be able to call them all out, man. I mean, there's there's so many of these things in here. Straight up from like saying things like out of the blue and then you see Dr. Manhattan. The pirate thing is interesting. Uh, it's been explained that uh, that the story of this character is the story of uh, Ozymandias, and I see I see the argument for that. Yeah, that's something that I needed explained. Mm -hmm. Like that's probably not something I would have pieced together. Uh, other context, as we'll learn, you know, further into the series, is in this world these pirate comics are sort of like the superhero genre in our world. Um, some meta commentary, I suppose, on the uh, on the role of genre in pop culture, maybe, and specifically in the comics industry. Whenever uh, we know this to be Rorschach, uh, we're going to try to handle this like like we we don't know or something. But I do have to say that when he shows up and when they start talking about how ugly he is and all that stuff, it's like yeah, I mean he's a ginger, you know, but he ain't that bad. Yeah, I feel that way a little bit about Chris Benoit. <laughs> <laughs> but, but man, is he, that a sidetrack? He does have T-Rex arms, though. <laughs> Chris Benoit, not uh, Walter Kovacs. I think it's kind of neat, this this uh, newsstand stuff with, with Rorschach requesting the newspaper that he prefers to read. I feel a little bit about, um, you know, like we live in a time period where media is scrutinized in a way that I don't know if it was scrutinized in the mid eighties, but this feels very prescient in that regard. You know, like like different newspapers are have different points of view, different political agendas. And it seems like, yeah, Rorschach would choose a certain type, a certain voice right. in, in the media that he would choose. It's kind of a neat character that that news vendor because he talks about that. He sees all the news headlines, he knows what's going on. And it's it's kind of cool in the context of Watchmen. That's something that I did not notice until this reading, and it, I like that. Part. It it is pretty cool. And you think about the intersection of every sort of human being is is coming through that newsstand, picking up their stuff. The psychologist is going to do that later, man. We're going to see the first appearance of the one cab driver lady in here, who's the lesbian who who gets her hustlers from him. Uh, she's here and going to visit the newsstand eventually it's awesome too to think of the different materials that are on that newsstand because there's the kid reading the comics right that's the fantasy part you know yeah. on one hand you have the reality of the world allegedly and the other the other extreme being that fantasy whether it's the nudie magazine or the comic book and it's all kind of that same nexus point of the newsstand i think uh i think alan moore might be telling on himself uh, a little bit with with this series of pages right here man because i think there might be some uh some cartoonist fantasy in here where uh he's got his clones doc manhattan has his clones trying to please his woman while he's in the other room working on a script for swamp thing <laughs> yeah the fantasy's not in the in the bedroom part here it's the writer under duress with deadlines everywhere <laughs> yes exactly yeah, like that is that's the cartoonist fantasy yeah, like yes hilarious. you know what i want to watch that episode of felicity with you i do i really do but i gotta get this page done yeah, and this is a this is a great scene. Uh, you know, we're joking around about that part, but you see, you know, Lori, you see a marriage failing here. Bridge, bridge in, too in far. Rye. Bridge too far, man. Uh, you know, got this menage a trois gimmick happening. She didn't ask for that. She just wanted to be with her man. And furthermore, she's not even with the real dude. He's off uh, daydreaming. Yeah, it's a it's a great scene because it does feel horrific and alien. Uh, it's harder for me to 
think of these two as being like a happily married couple for a long time, it's much easier for me to see the scene and be like, yeah, that guy, this is strange <laughs> business. All right. So we see the tandem of uh, Dr. Manhattan's uh, original love interest juxtaposed against the modern day. Uh, is, is her name Silk Spectre or is that the original lady's name? I always forget I think that they part. Both might be Silk Spectres, but but Laurie Jupiter, right? Is yeah. Jupiter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That contrast is neat. I, I think it's noteworthy that he's breaking this like two thirds size panels for the Lori side of the storyline uh, because it is such a tight nine panel grid throughout. So anytime you get two panels in one or three panels in one, I feel like it, it's some weight. Right. And, uh, and this is a big emotional sequence of Lori's leaving Dr. Manhattan, like uh, presumably end of the marriage kind of thing. She's at the offices of the the Nova Express, the salacious paper, the Walter Kovacs paper, the one that uh, is like your uh, National Enquirer type gimmick. And here's that cab driver lady that we're going to see later, her kind of first appearance. Heading to Dan Dryberg's spot. While the uh, locksmith is once again <laughs> fixing the lock on his door. Destroyed by Rorschach in the previous, <laughs> uh, previous issues. <laughs> And even like little things like this, when, when Rorschach was there, he was uh, swiping sugar cubes and eating baked beans and stuff. So when she asks for, for sugar in her, in her coffee, uh, two sugars, goes to dump them out, one cube comes out. Yeah, it's fun. Asks if one cube's enough or if he should go to the store. She says that's fine. Uh, the next page she's going to say it's too bitter. Right. And I, I feel like that's uh, commenting not just on the coffee, but but rather this moment in her life and the world. And pieces like this, man, just shadows in the fog. And you see the, the kettle um, create that fog across her face. The whole sequence of Dr. Manhattan is preparing for a big television interview and the way he manipulates space and objects of just like all those clothes dressing him. It's It really... I think it's a great depiction of a superhuman. It feels alien. Like I keep saying it, but I don't know how else to describe it. And look, if Superman were here, he literally is an alien. Right. Uh, you know, but if you saw anybody being able to manipulate the physical world that way, I think you would have that reaction of like, it would be horrific to witness. There's a lot of this stuff, like teleportation. If you saw somebody just materialize in this room, it would freak me out. Right. And comics often don't communicate that freak out part. So I, I appreciate any time they're able to do that, and I think there are a couple of moments in this particular issue where Moore and Gibbons do that. And there's your, your example right there of everybody like, what the F? Completely out of the blue, see? Blue background, blue uh, Doc Manhattan. Yeah, I'm, I, I can't imagine something that would be more, how do you react if somebody just appears in your presence? <laughs> This is good storytelling too, and the, the the cross cutting like every other panel is the opposite scene. That's pretty ambitious stuff. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see it in in small doses, but I mean he carries that on for a long sequence. Mention of Afghanistan here. Uh, this guy's basically debriefing or briefing uh, Doc Manhattan on the things that he can and cannot talk about. So Afghanistan plays a part in the in this comic as as we proceed when we see future news sequences. That kind of stuff, too, really bothers me. Like, any of these conflicts that, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're reading a almost 40-year-old comic, and it's like, 
Afghanistan is in the headlines now as much as it was then. Right. And, and now we're, you know, like, it's us. Like, it's closer now than it was then. For sure, man. Let's play with comic production a little bit, man. Your blue isn't blue enough. How about this? 100% cyan. Also freaking everybody out, right? Like, look at how he looks. But he's like, yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Bunch of knot tops are going to come in the alley, man. They see a couple marks. One Dan Dryberg and his old lady. So good. Ready to get picked on. So cool, too. So they're being accosted by these gangs, you know, by these gangsters on the street. And meanwhile, Dr. Manhattan looks like he's safe in front of this television audience. But it's the same exact thing is happening. Even the staging is similar. For sure, man. I like this, like, knowing glance that the superheroes give right. one another. It's a really fun moment for a superhero comic. For sure. It's it's a great contrast of, like, whenever, you know, you'll see Frank Miller or somebody along that ilk do it with the tough guy with the inner monologue running about how there six ways I could disarm this person and four of them they'd never walk again and two would kill them. It's the same scene. It's just completely delivered differently. Sure. We know what's coming. And what's coming is they're going to kick these not-top dudes' asses uh, while Doc Manhattan is discovering that all of his closest homies that he's had dealings with uh, since he was human, they're all coming down with cancer. Yeah, he is uh, He is kind of... We see him as superhuman, but not superhero anymore. Whereas, like, Dan and Lori, they're moving back to the superhero. Right. Maybe they never totally left it, or, or they did for a brief time, but now in the course of Watchmen, they're coming back to it. And you see that in how these outcomes, these two confrontations, the outcomes are totally opposite. And this is almost like, this is almost sexual right here. Like when they, oh, very when much. they finish it and then they're like, it's that pant moment at the end of the Cinemax she, scene. She, she looks naked under an overcoat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not accidental. Nothing they, in this book's accidental. They look at each other, right? And then it's like, she got to light a cigarette, dude. It's totally sexual. hundred yeah. percent. This is where uh, Doc Manhattan man is getting accosted with questions that he doesn't know how to answer man leave me alone leave me alone when you see this like unfortunately you just can't help but think about that Zack Snyder like when you see the, the movie Doc Manhattan go raw and just disappear I've never seen that yeah. I have no problem not thinking about it yeah good <laughs> but it's one of the few close-ups you don't see a lot of face close-ups in Watchmen that's yeah. one of your few examples if you never use that effect whenever you use it, it has a great impact yeah, very true, man. And all this was on the way to uh, just go visit Hollis Mason, man. Dan Dryberg doing his his weekly duty, man. Go hang out with the old timer, hear some war stories. I got a I got a compliment John Higgins color too. I really oh, like so the good. color, and and it's on display because of that cross cutting. Here we see Manhattan using the effect. First, he teleports in or just appears in this interview space. Now he's removed all the people. He's kind of teleported them out. Um, so if there's one thing more jarring than the person appearing in front of you out of nowhere, it might be you suddenly being <laughs> teleported to some other time and space. In that watching the Watchmen book, this is one of those scenarios and, and man, when I was a kid making comics like this is one of those things that I, I did, but never was, was happy about man is you draw the background one time on like a piece of tracing paper and then, uh, you know, you could, you could light box and redo it when I would do it. It would never look the same way twice. Somehow, Gibbons figured that stuff out. Yeah, of course. 
there's even moments where more script really comes in well i'm thinking of like the sort of empty it, it just it, it, it weaves in and out throughout this issue perfectly when i think of watchmen that's what i respond to the most is the uh exceptional level of craft beyond anything else i don't care about superheroes any more than i care about anything else right but the craft that's on display where these things are lining up so perfectly panel after panel that's the stuff that's the magic for me uh here's that that one moment where uh things are still like doc manhattan there's trouble in paradise for sure everybody kind of knows it the kid who's reading the comic hey it's reading lend me your cap i'm getting wet no chance i don't lend things it's my philosophy it's going to change in a couple of pages man <laughs> and we see that pirate ship right here where those sails kind of do you, you you see it visually how they're almost like that nuclear fallout trefoil thing and that's another i think nod to higgins you know i mean part of why we see it is because of the color that he's applying there yeah and the the fallout from uh this revelation that he's cancerous right. and, and leaking radiation now he's got that warning painted on his door yeah another good example of the dude kind of freaking out with the guy dematerializing yeah that's a rough one because there are there are ramifications to that right back to the uh the origin where, where it all where it all originally took place man this will uh come into play in another issue or two it was Walter Kovacs who was talking about the, uh, yeah, tomorrow's definitely going to be the end of the world. And this is a guy who's been saying it probably every uh, every issue. And uh, this is the first time where he might have an argument. Yeah, it's really fun. He says, uh, you know, I see the world didn't end yesterday. And Kovacs is, says, are you sure? Because <laughs> yeah. uh, Manhattan leaving, maybe that is the end. Right. Yeah, that was the, the ace in the sleeve of the united states to kind of keep the russians at bay in this watchman world and now he's gone and segs perfectly into what what we're reading in the comic i beg to weep again dear god who would protect them that could be rorschach's journal right lori jupiter her mill ticket is on mars she don't get to stay there anymore man She's getting tossed. And even look at that dude, like, uh, putting her brazier in a little fortified lead uh, fallout gimmick. This is so great, this sequence. This is like your government liaison who's trying to sort this out. Lori's frustrated by him, by everybody going through their stuff. And is like, you know, what's going on? You're in big trouble for, you know, handling this. this. And he snaps. And he's like... I am in big trouble. You're in big trouble. We're all in big trouble. It's it's a great, I, I love it, man. It's such a great sequence. <laughs> Remember that lock that got uh, re reapplied to Dan Dryberg's door, man? <laughs> well, guess what? He's getting uh, bedroom service, man, with this newspaper from our pal Rorschach. Yeah, Rorschach's connecting these dots. This is fuel for his fire that uh, something's happening with the masked superheroes. Now there's two of them gone. Yeah, man. And also, by, by the better lock, Dan. <laughs> Rorschach's advice. I like the uh, earlier scene, man, with the guy putting the lock on and trying to get an explanation from Driver. Like, what the heck happened? You get robbed? And Driver's like, no, just a friend came by. And he's like, oh, I have friends like that, too. <laughs> All right, here's the part, man. The world is ending, yada, yada. And that news vendor who 
has that staunch philosophy of not lending things out you know what kid just keep that comic and here's my hat too why don't you yeah he's so freaked out and again this is built based on this idea that he sees all the news and he's seen it all and he knows what's going on and this is so unsettling for him like it really is the one-two punch of manhattan leaves and the next day the russians invade afghanistan it is war on the horizon in yes. his in his uh world yes sir you always hear about uh these kind of like like war games things where they come up with these percentages and, and sh- strategies and trying to anticipate in terms of percentages like the moves that the other you know warring faction is going to make that that's got to be just them trying to make themselves feel better or like like they're doing something right it does sound like bullshit whenever you lay it out <laughs> like that ed it, it feels like it's just dudes that are trying to get the biggest chunk of that budget pie right into their whatever it is they're working on <laughs> because right this is like uh the athletes that are coming back from injury and it's like about 80 for 85 percent what are you talking about yeah does that mean your your 40 time your bench press like how do you measure that exactly man yeah you're right 60 percent certain they'll try taking western europe also what are you playing risk we're playing a board game now that said i do love the scene yeah like the draw the the literal drawings of like the war room are awesome looking man those guys mostly in silhouette because of the big lit up screen in the background total dr strange love uh, yes. imagery uh we know who the president is because we see that presidential seal mm. on, on the on the chair even that back three-quarter view that we talk about that's such a bitch now nixon he's got a very particular jib but man, that really looks like him. it's a great Nixon. And, and from behind, like you say, Ed, it's it's impressive. You just see that bulldog jowl. Yes. It's incredible to think about this in conjunction with the other books of the time period. So Dark Knight Returns, we have nuclear weapons launched in that story. Electra lives again and realize those are both Frank Miller. But same deal. We have pages of those nuclear strikes. And it's like this is what we have here of just the paths of these nuclear strikes and warheads. It's it's kind of wild when you think of 1986 as being this like seminal year in comics and mainstream American comics, and their top works are all obsessed with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean these these like you and I had those classes and stuff like in in, in first grade where 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 we got a um, duck under the the desk and all that stuff. They went through their whole school system. That's that's real fair to bring up. Uh, dealing with that albatross hanging over their head you know late 40s early 50s yeah like their their whole lives up up to that point man and they probably saw ebbs and flows especially like like alan moore you know if you're in england i mean you're much closer to where those you're in between those bombs flying overhead and much closer for sure man yeah we have no idea you know and it's it's weird that we don't because it's not like those nuclear weapons have gone away they're yeah. still out there there more people have them than, than ever more people want them than ever it's like why why aren't we obsessed with this like they were in 1986. there was like this collective sigh of relief when what was it when the when the wall came down man when the soviet union wasn't shit anymore like something happened where just nobody it wasn't yeah, that big the, a deal the, any the, longer. the cold war i guess going away but did it go away right. or did we just think that the questions that we ponder oh it's deep on cartoonist kayfabe while uh dr manhattan is sitting by his lonely on the smiley face of mars this issue does a lot you know for for questions that i have uh, posted in the first couple of issues i feel like this really does kind of lay out clearly what the stakes are why ozymandias has the plan that he has in place 
and even how Dr. Manhattan's role and uh, Rorschach's role, for that matter, fit within that plan. When you, uh, when they were coming up with this kind of story, I could imagine that the part that you would have to put a lot of mental energy toward is like, how do you get the Superman out of your story? You know what I mean? Like the guy who could do anything and, and solve every problem, because not only is he super strong, he's also a super smart guy. So we got to get him the heck out of there. And this is one of those examples, like the whole, almost the whole reason why uh, the, the comics get recolored, man, are these like little bits that just like got under Dave Gibbons' craw, man, where he's holding the picture right there, but it's colored blue. So we got to, we got to color the whole thing over again, man. <laughs> we can't just fix that little piece. We need to take John Higgins' name out the gimmick. I like that it's, uh, that it's magenta. Mars's landscape rather than being red or orange, orange red, you know, any of those warm colors. That cool color really is complementary to Watchmen. You know, Watchmen has that weird feeling like it's just off a little bit. Right. And in uh, the magenta to me is, is great because it's comic book language. Uh, but it also is the part of that, like Mars is a little bit weird even. And with the uh, under the hood passage by Hollis Mason, just adding a little bit more texture to uh, the the Silver Age heroes uh, in the mix of um, in the midst of uh, Doc Manhattan, right? Uh, yeah, coming onto the scene. That's a big chunk of it. The the part with Hooded Justice, you see his picture there, and then speculation that he is this strongman, circus strongman, who they both the circus strongman dies but it's at approximately the same time that Hooded Justice is never seen again. So speculation that those two are the same. And I wonder if there's parallels to Rorschach because Dr. Manhattan's the other piece of this chapter. And, you know, of course those two are sort of the pivotal two sides of Watchmen, right. uh, you know, and especially in terms of the spectrum of the characters and their powers and the climax of the story. So I wonder if that's linking, if that's a uh, stand in in some ways for, you know, regular human, superhuman right i see I, I i also just like the the level of thought that that more puts into the idea of who who would be a superhero sure why wouldn't it be a, like a circus strong man who uh is overzealous or something and the very end of this excerpt you get to hear a little bit about night owl so the original night owl hollis mason is the pseudo author of this text uh passing down night owl to uh, Dan Dray Drayberg Dryberg Dryberg um, you know kind of how that passing of the torch works for uh, from Hollis Mason's point of view so yeah. it's kind of fun and speaking of you know who these heroes are you get a different version with Night Owl than say uh, the that Watchmen character the uh, Hooded Justice or Rorschach and that's this inventive do-gooder right good stuff yeah chapter three is down man Watchmen number four of twelve here but Ed, before we get into this one, tell us about Red Room. Got to thank Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons for breaking down the doors, getting more shops interested in creating uh, more of a uh, comics culture, a, a, giving giving us a little bit more life to comics, man. Uh, Red Room, issue number one, coming out this month, May 2021. It's going to be a monthly comic. This is the cover for issue number two. This is the cover for issue number three. Recently just finished the cover for issue number four. All these comics can be pre-ordered on the Fantagraphics website at this very minute, or you can reserve your copies at your local comic shop. Uh, hit the link tree in the description below this video. 
to take you to the uh, Fantagraphics website for those pre-orders. Free Comic Book Day is going to be August of 2021, this year. And this is the Fantagraphics effort for that uh, fun day of, of comicking. Uh, all original material, 33 pages, five different stories. Make sure your store reserves your copy for you. And patreon.com slash edpiscors where you can read all of these comics uh, ahead of time before they hit their print edition. Uh, three bucks to get you the archive. You can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug where I post my... Uh, original art. I post my process. You can read all about these two comics right now. These are the same story, but drawn three years apart. So we often do comparisons, uh, you know, same story drawn by different artists. In this case, same artist, but eh, 200 pages more evolved, let's say. And uh, you can kind of see my notes and my thinking on making the different decisions that I make throughout the, uh, the drawing and the redrawing of this comic. You can also find and download my out-of-print zines and hard-to-find mini-comics on my Patreon. So join me there, patreon.com slash jimrug. And thank you to all the kayfabers out there who have joined me in the last couple of months. Really appreciate that. Uh, keep joining. I'll keep posting cool stuff there. But, Ed, today we are diving into the seminal work of Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, John Higgins, uh, Watchmen, number four, December 1986. And uh, let's dive in. This is sort of the Dr. Manhattan story. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Uh, in the trade, so it actually might be different here. Let me see. Uh, in the trade, they kind of reamended some of the color. So if you remember when we last saw him on Earth, that super saturated blue that looks good on the TV, he's got that blue like in the trade paperback. So it's sort of the same, the same blue that we see him typically which is interesting to see in the issues because i've never really seen issues of uh, of watchmen before we do this uh this 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 reading I, I love the blue and pink also this is one of my favorite issues um the origin of, of dr manhattan alan moore getting metaphysical with the time uh playing with the timing of comics playing with the imagery in relation to the captions in interesting ways and just spinning your head uh basically creating a, a kind of like a pretty good argument for what a how a god may live his life when when time isn't of much consequence yeah the photo is going to keep coming up so i'll, I'll, I'll kind of keep flipping through as we continue this conversation uh one of the things i like that you just said ed is talking about playing with time before you said it's a god living his life, I was thinking it's one of those things that comics can do that almost no other medium can do, where we're almost seeing thought, um, you know, yeah. tracing thought as it jumps around in a nonlinear way, and he's referencing things. You know, this is 10 seconds from now, this is 10 seconds ago, this is 30 years ago, it's now. It's um, a really bizarre treatment of time, and it does make sense for a character who is living like a god in that all time is... The same for him. Here's here's another piece about like the the godlike part and how Alan Moore is spinning our heads around. There will be a part in this comic where he's talking to his old lady man Janie Slater, and he's like, you know, we're about to fuck in about six minutes after you get these these earrings, and she's like, you're making me crazy. Like this whole issue does that to us. Yeah, you know, like so we feel exactly what that Janie Slater girl is is feeling when this guy is. He just sees everything completely different. It's, it's fifth dimensional. Yeah, I'm going to have a question uh, later on, and it's going to be, I'll ask it now, but as we before we wrap up, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. 
And it is, what is the significance of this story, this issue's story, to the Watchmen entirety? Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, this is Dr. Manhattan's origin yeah. more than anything. And there are some really interesting pieces that come out of it. But I don't know that we need to know any of this stuff for the larger storyline. So give that some thoughts as we go through. The first one of the first memories that we're going to see is this is young human Dr. Manhattan before his accident following his father's footsteps to become a watchmaker. And whenever his father sees the atomic bomb, he takes the pieces, throws them out the door because he doesn't want his son to do that. It's in his mind. It's pointless at this it's, at this point. It's you know, old-fashioned, obsolete. I want you. I want you to have a good job. But when you when you get old, this this to me this is Pitts, This is Pittsburgh I like this. mentality. Yes. I thought of that too. Like if I were, you don't see a father like this anymore in like popular media, and I think it's kind of amazing where it's like, boy, I'm I'm gonna point you at something. Yeah. Like I don't want you doing this thing. Uh, in some ways, maybe drawing comics, but uh, it's 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 an interesting piece that I just never see a father of that sort. He's not abusive at all. He's looking out for his son's future, and he's saying like, "The world's changed. You need to look elsewhere for your future." And and and, and is like, basically, he's like, "Son, you need a job at Lock- Lockheed Martin because there's going to be bombs flying, and you're going to be able to have sustain at that point." And we cut to young Doctor Manhattan growing up and moving in that direction. You know, this is. Young John, fresh out of college, uh, very decorated, very smart, and uh, here he is, basically working on these in these laboratories. Um, this is such. There, there's so many cool visuals, and there are things that you throw away, right? Looking through a foot of like protective lead-based glass, and you see him all distorted, looking into this into this testing chamber. Yeah, that that'll come home to roost in a couple of pages. It sure will. You know the backdrop of where these photographs are pinned on the wall, where he meets uh, Janie Slater, his first, I'm calling her common law wife. Uh, he lives with her for you know 20 years or something. Even after the accident, they are together. But you're going to see this photograph at one point be pinned up here, you know, their, their early meeting together. I'm going to say that the Dr. Manhattan, we'll call it a costume, is the toughest costume to draw of every single character in Watchmen and maybe ever. Is this the costume? Is it naked Dr. Manhattan, the costume? That is the costume because it's essentially the Vitruvian man and you have to have a perfect knowledge and command of illustrating male human anatomy in an idealized fashion. Almost zero people in comics can do it. The beauty of the costume is you could add a couple of things, man. If you don't know how those lats fit in underneath the arm or something like that, when in doubt, black it out. Dave Gibbons does not do that. He's building these these figures and he's showing you all the almost like uh, watch cogs and and stuff like this muscle fits here, this muscle fits there to create this hole. Uh, one note for people watching at home, watch the costume evolve. Yeah. I asked if it's the naked Dr. Manhattan when you say costume, because we're going to see after his accident, he does start with a complete costume. Even yeah. the head is supposed to be covered. Uh, and we see as he goes on, it gets smaller and smaller until he's just totally naked. You know, it's almost like he's living this, I don't know, truth or uh, minimalism or something. We see our accident. You know, he goes back to fetch a watch that he was repairing for Janie and is locked in because of automatic testing procedures. Cannot get out. And it's such a nightmare as, like, everybody watches. Janie cannot watch and has to, like, look away. But I 
I'm amazed by the faces of the people watching him in there because what else are you going to do? Plus they're scientists. Of course they're going to watch it. This is a horrible thing, but maybe valuable research. Sure. Yeah. This is uh, a series of panels. Like I thought about the, like I was a kid when I read this in trade paperback way, way after the fact. Uh, but I remember thinking about this idea of like this, like, you know, nervous system and brainstem and eyes just like wandering of the hallways. Like it was, that was a, like a n certain nightmare fuel for sure. It's great. And it's almost the same size. Like I was thinking of that reading through here because we're seeing him like coming, you know, reforming. And I was thinking like, it's almost, you're repeating the size throughout these pages. Not exactly, but really close. This reminds me so much of that exhibit, the anatomy exhibit that toured around like bodies, a, right? Several years ago where you're seeing like the plastic uh, in, insertion in these different systems. Um, and of course, all referencing back to your clockmaker. Yep. So um, putting himself back together. Exactly. Intricate detail. Yeah. And then there he is, the, the deity himself, man, fully illuminated. Not quite a costume yet, though. Got to draw the Adam symbol on his forehead before the costume is complete. A symbol that I respect. <laughs> yes. Hydrogen Adam. Some of these sequences of both reactions, but also like objects, like hair floating, really great drawing. Drawing hair floating is hard. Like if you ever draw someone underwater, it's so damn hard to get hair that looks right in that, I don't know, gravity warped area. Yeah, yeah, I love it, man. Because like the, the, the one early trick that we all get to play around with at school is you put your hand on that little uh mm -hmm. that little you know little ball that would be in spencer's gifts or whatever and the girls with long hair their hair stands up like so we we, we know that he gets his uh his ring from her for christmas and uh he admires it for gold and talks about how gold is made and the purity of gold and things it comes from the stars and here we go with the early version of uh, an attempt at a costume as they're starting to make him this public figure. And, you know, let's let's get some pictures. You can see the helmet that they want him to wear. Yeah, it's with, a whole suit. Yeah, with the smiling Joe Fission, like what, what we think of as Adams, but no scientist uh, respect. So, of course, Doc Manhattan is going to respect that either. Not a bad Golden Age costume. Very basic, you know, one color. Give it give it a belt have a little doofy looking helmet. The blue belt with his blue skin and the purple costume, I really like that. I think that all works really well, but man, that's a villain if I ever saw one. Yeah, yeah. I know a certain thing about colors and costumes. That's a bad guy. <laughs> the, uh, the eyes is domino mask is a really nice motif, by the way. Yeah, for sure. Kind of a happy accident. Well, not I mean, obviously he, he designs that, but it's a really smart design. It gives the face a lot of character, especially for a guy who's mostly naked. Um, I want to stick with that he's a bad guy idea because mm -hmm. there's going to be some ambiguity in his behaviors yeah. that carry through the entirety of Watchmen. And uh, I think it's him not being a human and I think that it is valid to think of him as a bad guy. There are things he could stop that he doesn't stop. There's JFK at the bottom panel right there, man. That's one. There's one, uh, you know, comedian in Vietnam. I can't remember if that, if we see a, a split second of that in this issue. We've seen it before right, yeah. where he kills a pregnant woman and Dr. Manhattan just watches. Yeah. Um, he's going to start to, uh, you know, Sally Jupiter will enter the picture here. And there's references to her being 16 whenever they're making out. Sure. So there's a lot of stuff that, you know, 
this panel is a villain <laughs> well here's some young here's some fun stuff because there's young Moloch right there uh which is fun and th this page uh, dude you can't not two super villains shaking hands in this panel right <laughs> the uh you, you can't help but think of like Elon Musk and all of his kind of like social graces and stuff when you think of Doc Manhattan. So this is uh, Doc Manhattan, Hollis Mason's retirement. Uh, now, you know, now that you exist, uh, Doc, like uh, you don't really need superheroes anymore. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to go, you know, I'm a handyman. I'm going to go work on cars, blah, blah, blah. Which oh, I think is analogous to the watchmaker. Sure. Because he's like, you know, All the at least you know stuff. what it is. You see how it fits together. And the very next thing that you hear out of Dr. Manhattan? Electric cars, man. There's not going to have the motors, not going to have all those moving pieces, going to be much easier. So basically, Doc, Doc Manhattan is is rendering our guy, Hollis Mason, obsolete two times on one page. Yeah, you see Mason go from optimistic about his future as a mechanic to like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can now harness the lithium, which is, you know, that's how everything's done. This shit powering your phone right now. Yeah, some really good interactions with Manhattan and the other characters, the human characters around him and their responses to him, you know, I mean, some of it's just completely destructive. This is your scene, Ed, of uh, first we're having a fight and then I'm explaining to you that we're going to be having sex in three minutes. Oh, there's the doorbell with your gift. <laughs> you know, it's like, please hold me. Here, but here's here's it's a, that's an amazing page of it writing. is it is here's a, here's another really great thing very subtle and dude upon these rereadings you know every time you read watchmen you see one or two extra things that that you never noticed before here's one uh what do we we got our little uh hydrogen atom earrings yep on brand on on his late chick too man you know on uh on uh J what the hell's her name? I always forget. Lori. Lori Uspechik. Silk Spectre. It reminds me, there, um, episode of Sopranos, where like Tony Soprano gets all of his mistresses the same like little wrist bracelet and stuff. It. That's Doc Manhattan, dude, give, giving his girls. He's branding his chicks, man. <laughs> like that Nexium cult. Yeah, like he branded his forehead. Yeah, exactly, man. He's like, you know, you're, you're mine. Wow. That's even darker than I came in here, Ed. <laughs> you know, you see him again with these... Uh, there's a pregnant chick. Superheroes, future villains, you know. There's so much ambiguity with every one of these characters. Like, who would you look at and say, that's a straight good guy, bad guy? Yeah. Even Moloch switches sides, right? Goes from being super villain to being, like, just a guy that's paid his time to society, his debt to society and wants to get on with his life. Uh, you know, even he flip-flops. The what Janie Slater is talking about, like you pig, like let let her know what's gonna happen when her boobs start to sag and stuff. That's the whole MacGuffin, man, for the Twilight series. You know those vampires never age and stuff. Yeah, yeah. See, this is the part where he's talking about Blake's different. He understands perfectly, and he doesn't care. Talking about like sort of good and bad. Yeah, and uh, that's what makes me think of Doctor Manhattan's. Just he's amoral. You know, there is no sense of, like, do this because it's right or it's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, no, this is just what happens. This is one of the greatest panels in a comic, in my mind. The ability to do scale, we always talk about this. Sometimes it's with Quietly, sometimes it's with Mobius. But for scale, like the little figures in the foreground running, the napalm going off, the helicopters in the foreground, 
It's amazing. I hear it, man. I hear Flight of the Valkyries. Listen. Yeah. Listen, you hear it, guys? The smell of napalm in the morning right there, Ed. <laughs> I think we're still, I think it's still AM hour that we're recording. <laughs> uh, but, you know, using, it's another comic effect. And this time it's using that nine panel grid to that splash page impact. So, Jimmy, you, you, br you brought up your question earlier, man. And this is where we start to address a little, a little bit. Uh, within these middle issues, we get our origin stories. Mm -hmm. Next issue, we get our Walter Kovacs origin story. But here we establish Antarctica. We establish Bubastis, which is, you know, uh, eugenics, mm -hmm. uh, gene modification stuff that uh, Adrian Veidt is, is playing with. Like, this is how he's going to get his, his alien character and stuff. So this, this factors in. You know, it's one page, it's a couple of pages, but it absolutely, it's the introduction of the Fortress of Solitude. It's going to play a very important sure. part later on. Love this stuff too by, by Vet about the, uh, our scientists are limited only by their imaginations. It feels very, uh, you know, some of this stuff I think has aged well. No, oh, absolutely, absolutely, man. I mean, these these iPhones that we that we have in, in our in our pockets like come from Star Trek. You know what I'm saying? And when you meet like a company like Google, gets often criticized because it's a company full of engineers rather than like creative sorts. And so like the user interfaces and stuff are are kind of like logical to their mind, but it's not pretty, right? You know, and and it's the it's the sci-fi writers, like it's the people with imagination, real graphic designers that can like gussy something up and make it extra pleasing. And, and once again, that's the beauty of like a, like a Steve Jobs guy as editor who has uh, one foot in the tech space and another foot in uh, editing, taste, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and you see his costume now has been reduced to almost a G-string. Fucking cock sock. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing there. Wonder if Lori designed that this version of the costume because hers is sort of like the female version of that costume. That's why all these people are protesting, man. They're like, "Yo, dude, put on put on some some gear." I love this part too, and he's like, "Pay attention, you will all return to your homes." And they're like, "What if we don't?" And he's like, "It's not a request," and they're just gone. These are the great moments for me. For how do you do a superpower that looks cool? That's a pretty good one. Yeah, and I think that this might be Vite like somehow using like figuring out the teleportation stuff of Doc Manhattan, like, because you know, when the alien just kind of materializes, I think, I think that's another piece that ties us into the greater whole. Yeah. That's a good observation. That's not something I thought of that makes absolute total sense. Even why you would want this guy to visit you in Antarctica if you're V to yeah. like study, like how get that one last little that piece. Work? Yep. Let me, let me see you come and visit us in Antarctica with all my cameras here and see what that looks like. Yeah. See if I can figure it out. Um, you know, and you see the vigilantes being ruled out now. The uh, the superheroes that were once all the trend have been have been replaced, or at least outlawed. Um, some of them go on to become whatever he becomes. You know, comedian, a uh, government employee, much like Doctor Manhattan, but very different set of powers. And Rorschach, of course, <laughs> never <laughs> with a uh, multiple rapist that he kills and drops in front of the police station to let him know that he's he's not going to retire but you see others doing it. Silk Spectre and Night Owl. The Night Owl body there, it's its not quite the doughy body. It's like approaching the doughy body. Heading in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is an early dad body. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, you get to see uh, one of the things I think Alan Moore does in this issue, you mentioned playing with time, is seeing Laurie repeat the same stuff that Janie experiences. So, you know, you're getting like 40 years. Uh, when does when does Manhattan become Manhattan? It's late 40s, what yeah. do you think? So you're getting, you know, you're getting like these 20-year cycles out of both of these characters, and they repeat. It's kind of the same thing. They're even set off with these weird sex experiences, you know, towards the end of their relationships where it just gets to be too much. A little foreshadowing here, man, with the atomic blast from Hiroshima and the, the, the watch that stops and becomes sort of like an iconic moment. Even her walking out is almost echoes of Hiroshima with the energy and color that's coming out of there after all the blues and purples and pinks of this issue. And now here we have the warm colors as she opens the door to leave. And then we've seen this scene earlier, the talk shows with the, uh, the ideas of cancer and the lab where he was formed, where the photograph comes from. Yeah, and even the comedian's funeral with a little Moloch uh, right up front toward the camera. And our watch motif repeating from the, uh, the sands of, of Mars as Dr. Manhattan is fulfilling his childhood dream here and making this complex model. And pretty much giving up on humanity. Giving up on a lot of things. He's tired of looking at stars that are, uh, you know, from, at light from stars that are long dead, planets that are, that potentially might be long dead. He has, a, certainly has a different point of view. Yeah. I, uh, There's your Ventruvian man kind of mm -hmm. motif. It's such an unusual point of view for a comic, for a superhero comic to be written and really trying to get inside the, I don't know, experience of a character with this kind of super uh, point of view. The the best of prose fiction tries to do what this comic does. You know, certainly science fiction, where it's trying to give you the point of view of something that you have no experience of. Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson always talks about, like, the different dimensions, space, time, depth, like, all that stuff. Um, like, if you're an ant, you can only experience a certain thing on a flat surface like you don't know about time yes. and, and so like Alan Moore's trying to write about something from a point of view that nobody knows so so it's bullshit baffles brains in a little bit but 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 he handles it in a really cool way and the back matter here is just talking about the impact Dr. Manhattan has on the world on the Cold War on superpowers uh, basically it makes America a singular superpower um, and then the great cliffhanger, which isn't here, but we have just read, is what happens when that superpower leaves America because some of their foreign policy is extremely aggressive. And whenever you remove the guy who's keeping everyone else in check, what what is going to come of that? There's other little things that you read uh, back here, man. So we've been seeing these airships and we've been seeing the electric cars and all that stuff. And all of that is kind of like laid out in this little three-page excerpt piece. Love yeah. that stuff for the extra little touch of world building. Yeah, it's, uh, as you say, every time you read one of these or reread them, a lot more is revealed, and uh, this is no different. That's a bold cover. Yeah, really bold. Uh, I, I think that, like, some of that might be that that marker air compressor setup. Yeah, you see what looks like white splatter. Yeah. And, and pretty subtle and controlled, because it's hitting highlights of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it all on this light side of a little a little bit of a ridge of sand 
Gotta bust out that frisket. Yeah. But that's a bold choice to put on the on a spinner rack. Stunning I think, stuff in 1986. Stunning stuff, man. Wild comic. I still can't imagine. I I cannot imagine reading this and being four issues in, and that's it. It's gonna be another year before I get to read the whole thing. Right. Head spinning. <laughs> but pretty cool. Uh, happy to continue this, Ed. Anything that we drop here? Anything that that we didn't cover in this issue? Uh, probably a million things. And that's, <laughs> that's what the, true. And that's what the kayfabers are for. Yeah, uh, my last note is just about the well-observed nature of Dr. Manhattan and his moral ambiguity. Um, and we see it in half a dozen examples in this issue from dating underage, uh, letting comedian be comedian and kill people. Um, it's, it's in no way condoning any of his behaviors, but I think it's very well-observed. And why not? If you're really this godlike power, you are going to have different concerns. Right. So I think that's pretty interesting, and it, it feels weird, feels a little bit alien, some of the stuff that happens in this issue, and As I think that's should. totally appropriate. Yep. It's an alien, and we just, uh, we're looking at the Sands of Mars. Fearful symmetry, dude. Yep, and it starts right on the cover, right? Yes, it does. Establishing that right away. Uh, fifth issue of Watchmen here, and we're just going to dive right in. As we have done with previous issues, the cover is actually panel number one. And we'll see uh, a step going right into this reflection in the puddle as we begin. One of my favorite sequences, Ed, from the uh, Watching the Watchmen books is Rorschach is going to visit Moloch uh, to pay a house call. Right. And if anybody has seen our video or is familiar with Watching the Watchmen, you get to see Dave Gibbons carefully orchestrating this, drawing schematics of how this scene plays out, which is part of... Uh, you know, probably fits Watchmen as a whole, that kind of intricate, careful plotting and detail work. But this is one of those sequences in this issue that, that uh, we see that spelled out. You know, we actually see him drawing the building and drawing where each panel takes place within that scene. Yeah, yeah, it's it's nuts. Can you just go back one real, real fast? Uh, we, we'll see this exact kind of sequence again later on in the book. And uh, all the schmutz is still there, just a little bit more haggard. It's just like later that day or just the next day or something and like the Gunga Diner little doggy bag gets flattened out from all the steps of you know people trampling on it it's ridiculous the level of detail is I'm so glad you said that that is something that I missed so uh, I'll be looking I'll be enjoying that uh, in real time with the people watching this video and and we'll just get it out of the way real quick uh, one of the reasons called fear, fearful symmetry uh, one of the storytelling things that they do with this comic is uh, it sort of works toward the middle. So uh, the page, the panel compositions for, you know, page one will be the same panel composition as the last page all the way to, to the middle. Yeah. One of the uh, things that blew my mind whenever I learned about that, uh, you know, as a young reader, not something I, I perceived on my own, but rather picked up, you know, in, in reading about Watchmen. Yeah. And then was like, what? How can you do that? And Which uh, happens several times in this series. And I do have a theory that, like, nobody would have picked up on it. Like, people leak things, you know? Like, you, you put stuff in other people's mouths and have them say it, uh, and then it gets written about, you know what I'm saying? So, like, there's a lot that can be done, and nobody would know if, if uh, you know, somebody didn't spill the beans. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you see that symmetry in Rorschach's little sign-off symbol at the bottom of his note. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Fearful sh symmetry, the Rorschach, you know, uh, like butterfly effect, uh, fa face gimmick. Uh, poor Moloch, 
he he can't catch a break that guy yeah you see he comes into his kitchen he's, here's somebody's in here goes snooping around pulls out his gun and the contents of his refrigerator is dumped out on the ground so probably all his food ruined and a little piece of fabric in there man a little red herring you see the the color change you know at every other panel because there's a there's a beacon there's a light outside the window that's uh fuzzing out coming back will byers from from stranger things man is, uh, <laughs> is, uh, coming on and off it's really neat seeing some of the light sources because now that we open up the refrigerator door you get that is, is providing your primary light and a very sicky kind of uh you know sickly glow right. coming out of you there. can almost hear the hum yeah it's that fluorescent kind of doesn't doesn't feel right um, but of course Rorschach behind him and what a great panel that is yes really creepy uh, you know like we talk about Rorschach uh, a horrible character uh, you know from the from the standpoint of you would not ever want to be in a room with Rorschach right the coolest character though like when I was a kid reading this and loving dark and gritty grim he's, and gritty comics yeah, he's, he's the Punisher stunning yes and stuffs him in the refrigerator <laughs> stuffs him in the refrigerator sucks the uh, the yolks out of an egg while he's waiting and he's basically just trying to get information from Moloch um, you know there's we're, we're continuing to see uh, Rorschach's theory of the killer of superheroes and uh, and so each time something happens Rorschach's sort of uh, looking for answers and this is the light that would be buzzing when uh, we see the color change inside of Moloch's apartment Realistic was always the term, you know, to describe the superheroes in whenever I would hear about Watchmen and from this era and that was like the big change and stuff. And I always think these kinds of panels really speak to that where it's like a very, a very, uh, I don't know, mundane scene, right? You're just walking out on the street. That kind of attention to detail and putting your superhero in that context, I think, is part of that feeling of, rea of you know, making them realistic. And especially for guys like the majority of these characters that don't have real superpowers you're just walking to and from wherever you're going you know it's very uh very mundane got to reestablish our cops and uh we are in the wake of the dr manhattan exodus so the cold war you know we're at a new defcon level and it's making people batty yeah in this case it's a it's a father who kills kills his uh kills his children kills himself and uh you get the gallows humor kind of approach of these these seasoned cops, man. They've seen a lot. This is disturbing, but they've seen a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just got to do this to kind of, you know, don't let it ruin your day. Yeah, it's always... Imagine uh, going home for dinner after that. I always think of that. You know, I think The Wire did a good job of that, where you would see horrific acts, and it was like, well, I'm back tomorrow, so, you know, you kind of can't overreact. That's what you're getting here. And it's atrocious, you know? Like, you read this, and you're appalled by it, but... That's what these guys deal with every day. Uh, the newsstand, you know, another common setting for Watchmen, and uh, and we see the kid reading his comics next to the newsstand vendor, who sort of helps let us know the status of DefCon and uh, you know the end of the world that that is that is pending. Yeah, yeah, we see the Pyramid Industries logo and stuff. That's that's for foreshadowing. Talk about sickly colors. How about these rotten corpse colors from this Golden Age pirate comic, Tales of the Black Freighter? It is gorgeous. It reminds me, uh, like, L.B. Cole yes. is, uh, is who I think of now. But, Absolutely. I mean, in the mid-'80s, I have no idea where that's coming from. But those are great colors. And uh, there's still that offbeat cover colors. You know, like, you see oranges and greens and stuff, which 
those secondary colors are what populate a lot of Watchmen, and yet they still stand out as being different than the real world. This is a comic book. Yeah, yeah, far more yellow. And, uh, and of course, it's the pirate comic, the uh, popular genre of the Watchmen world. Eating a bird that he catches. I eat too much bird flesh. Ugh. It's so gross. I picture that as like the blood on your chin. Yeah. Caking on there, drying out, and then cut from the comic book character eating the bird to the comic book character eating a bird. The Alan Moore that transition, is, man. <laughs> very much so. Janie Slater, she, she's, she's getting kicked out. Yeah, Laurie. Lori. I, I always say Jane. I do yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, I always get, I always get Doctor Manhattan's women all, all confused. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she's been booted out of the military place where she had been living since Manhattan's gone, and so of course now she's back to Dan. This is a, the journal for Rorschach. Is is Rorschach is as Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs? Like, I slept with my face on. Like you could read it. Like, put the lotion in the basket. Yeah, or you could watch the uh, the trailer for Watchmen. And, uh, and hear the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I took my face off. These guys are doing graffiti around the city. We're going to start to see this popping up in different places as like the, the hoodlums come around and, and do their their uh, Hiroshima kind of reference. I, uh, I, I memorized their descriptions. I'll see them later. And he doesn't like it. It makes the doorway look haunted. Yeah. <laughs> And see, you're seeing it in other places now. As he's watching his, like, drop spot, uh, you know, told Moloch if he thinks of anything or comes up with any more info, put it in this wastebasket. And playing with the little Rorschach patterns by dumping, I don't know, mustard or something on the menus. And, and when we saw watching The Watchmen, we literally seen examples of Dave Gibbons doing this on paper and, like, making Rorschach blots for him to draw. You know, so it's almost like from Dave Gibbons' point of view. So speaking of like fearful symmetry, look at the amount of like pairs that run through here, right? We we have Laurie and, and Dan, you know, basically in every single panel, we have both of those two together except that first one. But you also see like the condiment bottles just repeated, you know, constantly these, these pairs whenever there's graffiti going on the wall, whenever Dan and Laurie are leaving the restaurant. It's just these pairs, you know, even Rorschach playing with his menu. Yeah, looking at the mask. I feel like anything that you can see in terms of pattern is just deliberate work by Moore or Gibbons or both. Something disturbing, too, to see, like, Afghanistan and then cut to the violence and, and hopelessness of the pirate comic next to it. I mean, we've said it in previous installments, but the idea that Afghanistan is still a point of conflict now, you know, almost 40 years later, horrible. Yeah. So... World's smartest man getting ready for, you know, whatever meeting, uh, an action figure meeting that's coming up. Look, yeah, look at these great backgrounds, dude. Just like super simple escalators, you know, simple lines, but he sells it so well. You know, it looks good. It looks very good. And it's so simple until you pull back and have to draw four of them and multiple layers of the, of the building that's exposed and people in the foreground. But yeah, it's kind of like that thing in how to draw comics. You always see like cylinders, spheres, and cubes. And yeah. Everything's built on that. Yeah, I guess. His assistant's talking about the Egyptian motifs and being obsessed with death and stuff. We saw that Pyramid Industries thing earlier. So they, these are, these are, and, and it was a purple Pyramid Industries also. So that's the Ozymandias color. Um, Royalty. I, I think that, uh, I think that Youngblood 1 pulls from this part 
if you remember, like it, there, there's that mall sequence with Shaft at the beginning to introduce you to that comic. I think you're right, and I would have never in a million years made that connection. It's uh, a very different, very different interpretation of, of uh, application of those spheres and cubes yes. and, and circles. All handled in uh, just like so. Here's here's your centerfold. So you see, this is the symmetry. You have the panels here, panels here, and then the the two there. So now it's going to sort of work back right. all the panel compositions that we've that we've seen yeah before. exactly right so you know you'll see like it's basically mirror images yeah of right these things um this is an amazing spread i think it's a chance to it doesn't break the nine panel grid but it, it takes advantage of the nine panel grid by combining several of those panels to make a much bigger impactful really action sequence uh but this is interpreted by rorschach as another attempt on the uh you know it reaffirms his theory of the superhero killer idea and, and Veet, you know sort of absolves himself as being a suspect by surviving an attempt on his life his yeah. assistant not so lucky yeah and, and the very next page has a very cool part that that i only feel like i picked up on this is brutal yeah that's a real move right there of like look at how far back he's coming to slam him headfirst into this like that dude's probably dead i just watched uh once upon a time in hollywood uh, over again and when uh, when Brad Pitt is bouncing these girls' heads off of the mantelpiece, yeah, it's brutal stuff, man. That whole sequence is hard. But this part right here, man, it's like, you know, he's like you could probably commission somebody to shoot at you or shoot a guy or whatever, but you can't commission a dude to kill themselves. So he's he put his finger in there and just popped that little capsule in that dude's face. Yeah, yeah. I assume he put the capsule in too when he put his fingers in there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, no loose ends there. Right. I know, and I just love that. Damn. Like, it's like a very super heroic thing to say right in that moment. Yeah, even the hero pose. Yeah, exactly. I tried to save this guy. I tried <laughs> to save this guy who tried to kill me. <laughs> this is such an interesting uh, flair, having the comics within the comic. It is. And, it, like, once again, I'm sorry, but that facial expression is like, what are you doing? Yeah, this isn't what I paid for. Yeah, what are you doing to me? But no, you're you're right, man. Like the comic and the comic thing, it's it's a it's a cool experiment. We'll stay on this for a second. Here's my thought on something like this. We go from this is you know like that same kind of mirror sequence, right? We're going from this extreme close-up where we see the horror and the violence and the disturbing graphic thing of jamming your hand in his mouth to this kind of long shot. I think it speaks to that range of what you can actually do you know right it's hard to do nine panel grids like this but it doesn't limit what you can actually put in those things right you can even put comics in there comics within comics and the sharks are closing in yeah man it is such a nightmare what the what the world and the comics that he's using for to escape from love the floating elephant the gunga diner uh Finally, a note. A note from Moloch. It's got some information. Meet him at his apartment tonight. And Rorschach getting getting all ready. Has his like secret identity stashed. This is fun too, because this is almost uh, you know, Peter Parker with his bag of clothes or something that he would put put somewhere and then come back for. Except it's in this grimy, disgusting alleyway. Yeah, he has no problem putting that stuff on. And and there was even an earlier part where there was like the bloated horror. Uh, landlord lady who comments on his hygiene yeah and uh on his way to this meeting he's uh g gets a, a disturbance an attempted rape mugging or both 
and uh, sometimes the knight is generous to me. <laughs> this is an unlikable character for everybody who thinks like Rorschach's cool. No. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it, it, it's it's Judge Dredd, uh, but but it's like Judge Dredd in a world that's meant to be more realistic. So, you know, it's a hardcore personality. I think this is a throwback image too to the earlier issue whenever we see Laurie's mother. Oh yeah. Yeah, maybe and it's it was... and it's interesting because it's Veet's advertisement for like one of those colognes that he sells. Nostalgia. All right, so cut back to Dan and Laurie now settling into. Uh, he's offering her to stay at his place, and uh, we see that he's still all alone. Even with her in the house, he's still all alone. Well, he 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 just he just got hit with the gimmick that nobody wants to get hit with if you if you fancy a young lady, man. That's true. A big brother. Yeah. <laughs> Worse than a friend. Worse than the friend zone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're family. Man, he's so he's so crushed by it too. Like he turns away and he's just sad. Yeah, man. Puts his hand on that pillow. That's good acting. It's very fun. I love this shark drawing. Back to the comic, the uh, pirate comic within this comic. But the shark is so uh it's not quite right, like that little eye. <laughs> and if you look at paintings of like I don't know, 100-year-old paintings or whatever, before we really knew exactly what sharks were, this is kind of what they looked like. You're right. That's always fun. What a page, though. This is really great stuff. Using that piece of wood to stab the shark in the eye. Yeah, using the sail. So now the shark is... It, this is like Moby Dick, man. Like, uh, you, you just jab it in there and, and ride, ride the wave for a while. The only part that I'm going to disagree with is... Uh, once he stabs one of these sharks, those other sharks should just go feeding frenzy on that bleeding shark in the middle. Yeah, man. And uh, wrapping up, you know, the uh, the day at the office at the newsstand, whenever this cab driver, tough tough lady, shows up and wants to hang up her sign and threatens him a little bit if he doesn't put it up. <laughs> I'm going to cancel you. Yeah, I think she's going to kick his ass. <laughs> she's going to cancel his ability to stand upright. Back to the cops once again. And this is the same deal. Like with that symmetry, it's not just panels. It's also content. So we're cutting back to these cops as we approach the end of this issue, approximately where we see them early on. Right. Yeah, that symmetry thing is really... Cuts many ways. Bizarre. Who even thinks that way? And I'm sure it's on Alan Moore's like graph paper chart and stuff like that. You know, you don't call it fearful symmetry without that idea, but geez... Uh, and that opening sequence, once again, we're, we're replaying that. And uh, Rorschach shows up, ready to get some, some new answers, asking Moloch questions, and whenever he walks around in front of him, bullet in the brain. Middle, you know, center page. Good, good use of composition there. And Rorschach realizes that uh, he's been set up. Yeah, he does. Those police are on the case, and what are you going to do? This reminds me a little bit of Batman Year One, when Batman's pinned down by all the cops. Super resourceful. Goes in, grabs some, like, roach spray or something. Yeah, this feels like uh, Anarchist Cookbook or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what can I find in the cabinet to use as a deadly weapon? And I love whenever you get these panels of, like, in the foreground, Moloch is just his corpse. With some rigor in him. Once again, with that pairing, you know, whether it's dead, dead Moloch and Rorschach or the two cops coming in. And, you know, right away starts this fire with that can of aerosol, whatever, just, product he pulled out just as he's running up the stairs just burning stuff exactly scorched <laughs> earth in his in his path yeah i don't know what he throws on this guy's face some kind of powder that uh incapacitates him or at least 
distracts him enough that he can't stop him, shoots him with his grappling hook gun. That's a wrestler move, by the way. Yeah. I've seen Yokozuna do that a couple that's times. That's true, that's true. The salt. The salt. <laughs> salt in the eyes. Straight from the nutsack, right? Like, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta really sell your hand in your crotch. That's right? true. They do. You need the person in the back row to see that. That's goddamn right, man. <laughs> to see you reaching in your pants and pulling something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, like a goddamn uh, silent movie actor. Rorschach making his break for it out the window. This is really fun, too, because think of how spectacular this would be in a typical image comic. Right. Or a movie. Uh, you know, any, any of that stuff busting through a window. But in this comic, it gets the same weight as everything else. And guess what? It doesn't go well. Yeah. You know, this guy is not really super powered. What a great, uh, I do like this sequence a lot because he basically just crashes. I'm surprised that the cops don't, we don't see the cops just beat the shit out of him, man. Totally. They've been looking for him for a long time. Totally. Uh, he's hurt several of them. Yeah, just that night alone. Yeah, I feel like he would, uh, he'd be in a lot worse shape. But man, does he look great whenever we finally get the reveal, whenever his face comes off. It's that guy. We've seen, we've, we've seen him before. And it's like a perverted, bizarro world Jimmy Olsen it is, uh, you know, whites all around his irises. Yeah, yeah, you know what that means. Crazy eyes. If you, if you see the white around uh, three sections of, of iris, give that person a wide berth. Bad news. Uh, one shoe, you know, holy socks. It's, it's good stuff, man. This whole character, like, just being so unlikable, so desperate. Everything that could be wrong. Like, what a hard life Rorschach has. Interesting character, interesting take on this. It's a long cry from the vigilantes of like Batman, you know, millionaire playboy to uh, Rorschach and, you know, screaming about having, taking his face off whenever they demask him. <laughs> right, yeah, um, I mean, it's... Shades of Luchador. That's his identity being being ripped off of him. Got to go to a new territory now. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> a hard territory, by the way. Yeah, Hardcore yeah. wrestling where he's going next. <laughs> Death matches. And our back our backup material here is uh, giving some context to the rise of the pirate comic genre. Total after mag fucking kayfabe talk about pirate comics in relation, and, and, and specifically the, the story we just read about its, its uh, as I say in Britain, controversy, uh, Fred Wickwortham type type shit with the, with the, with the shark and the, and the um, raft and all that. And they address a little bit of the, uh, the Frederick Wortham kind of stuff and how this history goes to pirates instead of superheroes because the superheroes were, you know, government agents at the time. So it's not like the government wanted to uh, crack down or, or, you know, to, to go in that direction. So that violence is allowed to, to flourish. Joe Orlando. So they're weaving this in in EC Comics, weaving this fake history in with real history. It's pretty clever. Yeah, yeah. Probably uh, at this point, DC owned Mad Magazine and, and, and EC Comics, I guess. Yeah, it must be. That would make a lot of sense. You're, you know, you're seeing that logo enough that, uh, wow. I love, uh, I love this like inking approach to make it look like golden age comics. Like, I feel like I see, I see the Gibbons in there, but you know, it's like there's a different hand on there to to really make it like a place where you would see it would be like the Boys Ranch, Simon Kirby books that are like real rough. Yes. You know, like that's what that kind of aesthetic is. Yeah, we're gonna have to dig out some of that stuff at some point for context. You know, Boy Commandos, any of that stuff, the the Simon Kirby, uh, you know, like like fifties kind of stuff, I'm a fan. kind of stuff. I'm a fan. So issue five, fearful symmetry. Rorschach is now in police custody. Uh, Veet no longer a suspect since he survived his own assassination attempt. Uh, 
you know, you're starting to see those dominoes kind of falling into place. The complexity of this plot and how it connects all of these characters, they're starting to get tighter. Yes. You know, Laurie and Dan now moving in together. Um, pretty on board at this point. Still, you know, in in its in its novel-like fashion, I, I think maybe it, it's even the next issue where it's the kind of uh, Rorschach origin story, right? Like, so it goes macro and micro. It, it gives you a story, but then it can veer just like novels do you know just like like go 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 read moby dick and in the middle of the book learn everything you could ever think you ever wanted to know about whaling it's nothing to do with the story specifically but it has everything to do with it in a way it's it's giving you a color for the entire background yeah and i think with watchmen in particular it's working with that serialization that was such a part of yeah. like superhero comics history and also novel writing history, you know, uh, thinking of Dickens and some of these writers that were serialized first. But I, I think that's part of what you see as we go from like current day to let's see an origin or let's see this backstory that, that you know, adds to this character or changes the way we see that character. So good stuff. Um, I, I we, we look at a lot of classics on here, Ed, and I feel like every time we revisit one of these things, I learn more. Totally. You know, each reading reveals something new. So. That's all I have for Watchmen 5. So, Jimmy, we are at Chapter 6 of Watchmen. Part 2 of the Rorschach Trilogy. <laughs> got, caught, got captured last uh, chapter, and we're going to dig into his brain a little bit and see what's inside in this issue. This might have been my favorite issue uh, as a kid coming up. It, it's certainly one of them. I really like this whole kind of like mini story within Watchmen, and I uh, really like this particular issue as it gets into his origin, gets into the Rorschach uh, block test. I don't know if we talked about this in the past, Ed, but how horribly I mispronounced Rorschach as a kid reading this. Oh, yeah, me too. I, <laughs> I never I never said the words. Just like I never said Sinkevich or tried yes. to, I just said uh, Bill S. with the crazy back-end alphabet vowels at the end of his name. And Rorschach was just... The long, complicated R word in my mind. Impossible. <laughs> I tell you, man, looking at this like on screen, I'm surprised by how bright that yellow is. For some reason, I didn't catch it on the reread, but looking at it now, it's right in the center of the page, and it is like your 100% yellow just screaming out of the middle of that page. Would you agree that Walter Kovacs is like demented, almost like a Mad Magazine Archie grown-up kind of character? He's got the freckles, got the ginger hair, kind of, kind of the same crop on the side and stuff. I never saw that before either, and now I will not be able to unsee it. <laughs> that is Alfred P. Newman if I've ever seen him. <laughs> One of the things that I uh, that that I uh, sort of got from this issue, and I can't believe it took me six issues to kind of like figure out this this kind of part of it. Um, I guess because we do spend a lot of time with the psychologist guy who's trying to reverse engineer or trying to dig into uh, Rorschach's mind a little bit, is how smart it was for Moore and Gibbons to remind us that this is a world populated with people. You have the newsstand, right? You have the kid reading the comic. Uh, we, here we have the... And, and every character that we mentioned kind of like passes through the newsstand at one point or another. There's the lesbian cab driver gets in, in a domestic situation with, with her partner. The uh, psychologist, psychiatrist guy, he passes through the newsstand. And it's showing us and giving us a couple of characters who exist in this world because we need to lose them on, in that last issue, you know? So that's something that came to mind while, uh, while going through this thing. 
here's something that comes to mind on this particular issue. The Abyss Gazes also, this was a quote that I really liked, you know, like he always has these titles that pull out of quotes and this is about, you know, beware or be careful the Abyss that gazes back, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, you see it again and again in these panels where it's like one of those two characters' point of views and then it'll switch over, you know? So we have the psychiatrist's point of view, then we have Rorschach's point of view and going back and forth of that, like, gazing you know, whichever one you decide you believe is the abyss, but it's just constantly looking back and forth. And even like the Rorschach patterns reinforcing that kind of motif. It's it's perfect for the arc of this issue as well, this title, because uh, we see our jovial, happy-go-lucky psychiatrist guy. And when he starts talking about killing cats and uh, that, that last page, he spent a little too much time with Rorschach. He talks about like not... Uh, you know, being mistaken for calling him Rorschach.Kovacs. Eventually, he's going to start calling him Rorschach. Uh, his relationship with his wife is pretty nice at the beginning. There's a whole arc there. Yeah, it's really, uh, really strong as to, like, who's converting who to their ideology. And he's trying, he's, play, and he's playing the guy out for a little bit, man. I see pretty little flowers. I see, <laughs> yes. I see a sunset. And when, when we see what he's really imagining... It's clearly yeah. not that stuff. Which is origins, is what we're kind of getting in this issue of Rorschach and, and those flashbacks or the thoughts that, that he sees and then does not share initially. Uh, but getting to see kind of that backstory of who he is and, and what he grew up as, a horrible life. Uh, you know, terrible at home with his mother, terrible on the streets with his peers. But none of that is what makes him Rorschach. Right. Uh, maybe a contributing piece, but very um, serial killer-like. Whenever you yes. read about serial killers and it'll be like, Oh, abused as a child, uh, you know, these things that like, okay, but lots of other children are abused and most of them don't become serial killers. It's like, that's not the thing that actually makes him Rorschach, but it is sh shitty, uh, a shitty life that he leads. Yeah, sure. It sure helps, man. And and certainly like with the serial killer uh, profile stuff, like the sexual component, like with the parent is off the, off the, the Henry Lee Lucas, but talk about his mom would take tricks in the same bed that he was sleeping in and stuff. This is awesome right here whenever he has his little interaction. I always think of it as like, you know, Kirby origin story or something. Mm -hmm. Like on and, and the LES, when they smash that, what is it, like a ice cream cone or something on his face? Like some sort of donut or something? And he's got the Rorschach symbol on the face with the, with the splatter, dude. Pretty freaking sick. Yeah. Just, just festering, dude. Like he's just standing there at the cell, just festering. I remember... Uh, uh, Howard Stern talking about whenever he was like first getting into the game and he was and he was in Detroit uh, he would do his like you know three four hours on the radio and he was living far away from home like had no friends or anything in the town he would go home at the end of the day after eating dinner and just basically sit there <laughs> until the next day the next day when it was time to go back to work but, and it's just like our boy Rorschach is just just existing yeah not sure what else you're gonna do in, in prison there <laughs> This is where we get to see a little bit of it's a it's a checkpoint man to let us see how the relationship is doing between the psychiatrist and his, his wife and it's and it's really very sweet at the beginning here man but we keep going back to the psychiatrist and every single dip in that pool is taking a little bit more out of our guy the uh the psychologist or psychiatrist scenes too remind me a little bit of like dr manhattan early on whenever he's you know his his partnerships his relationships are falling apart you know and we see that pattern repeat and it, it kind of there are echoes of that here for me we have uh we tie the origin of rorschach with well his superhero mask we'll say 
with Kitty Genovese, a, a real person that uh, it, it's it's been it's been uh, proven that the Kitty Genovese like it didn't happen the way that it's remembered as an urban legend where this lady's being uh, abused, tortured, raped in front of like a whole apartment complex of people who are just watching and doing nothing and just totally apathetic. Uh, but the the kayfabe is is woven into the story here. And she was going to pick up some dress that had uh, this this Rorschach stuff. Yeah, pretty dark story within a story there. And those couple of panels of the onlookers uh, while she's while she's suffering. Very cool. Dark dark stuff. There's 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 uh, a lot of cynicism in I think Watchmen in Dark Knight Returns. You know, in the, that 80s kind of uh, superhero comics, the dark and gritty stuff. And this issue feels like one of the most cynical of, uh, of, of this run. For sure. Rorschach is a, is a shrimp, by the way. They, they, they list his like, body weight and his height. It's like 5'6", like 140 pounds or something. Napoleon complex. Yeah. You know, that's what you see in, when he's a little kid being bullied. This is uh, the, the prison stuff with him. Again, some of my favorite issues that whenever I first read this, uh, but this is just a, a rough page, man. That guy's coming up behind him, wanting to get his pound of flesh. It gets a whole lot more than he expected. That's goddamn right, man. Uh, one of the things I've marveled at a lot this issue is the kind of the, the spare backgrounds that that uh, Gibbons is employing. You know, he's he's uses some reference, but these are comic book backgrounds, and, and it's been that way throughout. But I do think it's so cool. In an age now where you could just like hyper-reference everything, he gives you just enough, man, to sell you on the shorthand. And he's such a precise artist that he could go hardcore, you know, Barry Windsor Smith or something like that and, and make everything perfectly legit, you know, make this Riker's Island or something. But it, he gives you just enough to sell you on everything you need, man. It's it's, it's perfect cartooning yeah, this in, in is that respect. Much preferred... I much prefer this kind of cartooning to that heavily referenced kind of style. And there are these moments, like to me, this panel, very simple, no background at all there, but it tells you everything you need to know. You see the guy who's six inches bigger than him crowding that frame behind him visually, totally pays off. Um, the centerpieces, you know, I point them out, I think every video, but page after page, they're composed where it's like you have your individual panels and it all reads, but you look at it as a page unit and they're, they almost always are beautiful as a page unit. Uh, you know, this being no exception where it's like you, the, the piece that we're going to build this scene around right in the middle of the page there, that boiling hot grease fat. Could there be a worse sounding thing than having that dumped on you? Right. And, and Moore is so good at it, you know, because then we follow up with what happened to the guy. You know, what's the medical result of having that stuff poured on you? It sounds awful. And he's the MacGuffin on the next issue when it's time to, when the, the riot gets popped off. It's like, if this dude dies, everybody's coming at you, Rorschach. And that dude <laughs> dies and, you know, we'll, we'll get there. When we see the drip of the coffee, like, that's, that's sort of symbolic almost, uh, or it's a c companion piece to, like, the nostalgia. Absolutely. Uh, cologne. And it's also, you know, coffee has a smell to it. But then when you pull back, I never noticed this before. It's a Vite coffee machine. Wow. Yeah, I never noticed that until just this minute. Great detail. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a real George Foreman kind of kind of guy. And here we are checking back with our with our psychiatrist couple, and the old lady wants to get filled out like an application. And dude's like, "Baby, you know I gotta work." 
it juxtaposed with the earlier scene when he was super randy and ready to hit them skins, man. There is so much attention to light and color in this issue. We see it with her shadow. With a, sh- with a sheer outfit. Look yeah. at that, man. But you see it on like where this lamp is casting light. You see it on the cover because there are like two bars that are shadowed over top of that Rorschach test. Uh, this, this, the detail on that kind of stuff to me is, is, I don't know how you think about it at that level. <laughs> right. Every time we see our guy, man, our psychiatrist, he's got like a new bottle of Tums or aspirin <laughs> or Advil or something like that. He's, he's self-medicating. Man, you talk about the generic pieces. This panel, the superhero panel, it feels right out of a comic book. It's right. ultra generic, but super cool looking. You know, it's like that's the idealized version of a of this vigilante superhero character. There's a lot of that here, man. The superhero introduction page. Like, how many times do we see Batman and, and, and Superman do this exact pose? And more examples of light, light, light. Nobody thinks or works that way, I don't think, anymore. That was a big thing when I was trying to figure out how to make comics was like, you know, trying to establish light sources and things. I feel like that is just not... Give it to the colorist. Right. Let them figure it out. Boy, that's a great panel, though, of the superheroes standing in front of Night Owl's ship with all the hands and weapons in the foreground. Incredible. That's a two-page spread. Because they look so comfortable. You know, like there's all these weapons coming at him. Like Rorschach has his hands in his pockets, he's just chilling. It's good weapons too. Anytime I have to draw weapons, you know, you always try to figure out stuff that looks cool. A wrench, a broken glass. You know what that is, man? That's the New York Outlaws is coming coming <laughs> and trying to wreck some shop, man. It is. <laughs> Ken Langriff, I hope you watch our show. Do that as a commission, man. I'd love to see that. Watchmen versus the New York City Outlaws. <laughs> the page right here with comedian burning burning the little mm-hmm. the little map peeps is great because you see you see all the characters uh, employing a little bit of acting, man. Dryberg, a little bit nervous, like shocked at the moment. Uh, Silk Spectre girl, she's just checking out Doc Manhattan. Doc Manhattan, completely apathetic. Vite, slight concern. Look at these repeating motifs. The bars on the back of the chair and then the bars in the window that we're looking through whenever uh, whenever the shrink asks him if he has friends. And so much distance between them in that panel. Yeah, man. And that is like that panel within panel. So it's like three small panels. <laughs> There's your Judge Dredd component. Man, whereas that guy was just painting some graffiti <laughs> yes. and, and like doesn't have teeth anymore. Needs to get dentures. Checking back in with our couple. And our psychiatrist is totally ignorant to the house situation, man. Like, he's saying that, like, everything seemed great, blah, blah, blah. And he's sleeping like a baby, but she's, like, wide awake all night. Time to get to the origin of uh, of Rorschach, huh? Like, the psychiatrist was, was thinking about it, mulling it over a bit, and is presenting him the same Rorschach test from the very beginning, and is asking... Kovacs to be truthful this time. What do you really see here? And we saw the dog head split open on page one. Yeah. He just didn't describe that. But uh, here he goes. This time he's going to let him know the truth. Here's a glimpse into my world, Doc. The origin of Rorschach. We're getting there, man. And it's all about uh, trying to save a little girl who's been captured by, uh, well, she's disappeared. Don't know the full story. He goes around snapping necks, man. After the 15th person he put in the hospital, he's got some in- info. Great silent sequence, man, as he goes, checks that guy's checks that guy's uh, house out, 
finds like what is that like panties or something pajamas yeah whatever it is it's not good it's a piece of clothing that came off of the of a little girl uh yeah in, in the fireplace there not good i love the procedural part of this and you realize that you know this is a, a wordless scene yes like we're looking at uh i don't know 20 panels or so right there uh wordless more more than 20 25 panels of wordless panel action kind of awesome you know you'll see this with filmmakers like spielberg will do a a shot that doesn't cut you know in the middle of a scene it might be like a two minute shot somewhere in the middle of jaws or whatever i always love those kinds of pieces and like we've been singing dave gibbons praises for all through this review uh this is another example of that where it's like so cool to see him investigating and to be able to sort of have the wheels turning in the reader's mind as to like what pieces are you putting together here and it's dark shit man it's like a cutting board and then cut to the dogs out the window with a human bone leg right he he sneaks in and he sees the dogs we establish the dogs they're paying no attention to him so he's able to just like sneak his ass in there do a better sequence of detection than you've seen in any Batman comic ever created. Yeah, nine panel grid. Like, there's no frills here. It's just really good, strong drawing. Panel, panel, panel. Yeah. You see, I mean, you see Rorschach, like, considering things, mulling stuff over, looking at the dogs. And that bone looks like it could belong to a five-year-old girl. That's that's what he's done. Picks up that cleaver, man. And we know what happens next. And you see the moment of realization. He's, like, leaning forward, like gets it it's that's it's how do you express that with no face right here's the creeper man who did the dirt coming back home ton of restraint on alan moore's part for just pulling back and letting letting the art tell this story yes i'd like to read those script pages yeah i'd be know? curious about that too <laughs> <laughs> throws two dead dogs at the guy like I, I have no idea how this plays in the in the flick or whatever but i mean he's you know at one window boom gets a dog you imagine like doubles back boom another dog comes in this is horror movie stuff like if you go back one page it's it's rorschach with the meat cleaver as your centerpiece like, right it's it's 80s slasher horror movies and rorschach is our jason or our freddy here throwing the dogs through the window and it's that old rap man. You don't got nothing on me. There's no body, no body, no crime, no murder. But Rorschach, uh, you know, he he's not, he's not a police man. No, he's more, much more the Judge Dredd. Yes. And pulling out this saw that presumably was used to cut up that girl and feed to the dogs. Right. Giving him like one of those saw, Sophie's choices, man. You could get out, man, but you're gonna be limbless. Masterpiece panel getting hit with the side light of the fire as he's walking out the walking you get the weight of the figure coming out dramatic lighting the fire behind him backlit incredible higgins cool color not looking at explosions yeah in in incredible uh higgins color on here it's got to be about 20 colors used on that panel what a rich panel and that my friends is the is the uh is the birth of uh, rorschach he gets up to split and uh we see we see how it affects our psychiatrist guy. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's the the whatever he's drinking to uh, soothe his stomach is on the table, and in this panel, it's in his hand. Yes, <laughs> such a small detail. Yeah, man. And this tells you everything you need to know about the relationship with he and his wife, man. Great panel. 
dressing in silence, backs to one another. There's the table shot, not unlike the table shot with Rorschach and the psychiatrist across from one another, man, with the uh, significant others, you know, sitting there. And they made the mistake of asking him about his day. He was just brutally honest, man. Guy walking out looks like Dryberg, doesn't he? It does, yeah. And it ends with... Uh, we, see, we see the state of our guy's mind uh, at this point. Talking about when he was young, killing cats, whatever. Found a dead cat. This is kind of a cool callback. You know, you see the psychiatrist looking through the arm of his of his wife. And then early on, we see young Rorschach looking through between his mother and, and her and her John. Uh, same kind of composition. I, I just don't think they're accidents. Whenever you see that kind of thing repeated, to me, that's, that's uh, clearly something that Dave Gibbons is channeling, even possibly on a subconscious level, just the way this comic has been. But yeah. it feels like you're repeating things when you get a chance. And yeah, this... I think this is the best quote of the uh, of the story in terms of how much it fits this particular chapter like a glove. Um, you know, battle not monsters lest you become a monster. If you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. That's like literally what we've seen in this issue. Yes. And top it off with some of the best back matter of all the issues, man. Uh, shouts to the design people who put these things together because... It looks like there have to be a couple of hands into this, man. Like this a lot, and um, Charlton Home, reference to the Charlton comics where, uh, you know, the question, where these characters originated, at least uh, conceptually. Yeah. Got everything you need, man. Here's the child artwork of little W.J. Kovacs. I like that picture a lot, and I've thought about it a lot over the years and didn't realize it until rereading this issue and seeing it and being like, yeah, man, I remember this art distinctly. There's something about it. it makes me wonder who drew that. Me too. It me feels like several alternative cartoonists. Yeah, man. If I, I like, I see Kaz in here yeah. with the face. I see Paul Karasik. Yeah. I see Peter Bag. It, it has that quality of channeling like a young, naive drawing style. Mike Diana. Yeah, it all adds up. There it is, man. We're halfway home, dude. Issue six of Watchmen. Yeah, this was always the one I thought was the fearful symmetry issue, mm -hmm. you know, falling in the middle. Um, you know, so rereading it is, is straightening that stuff out, but does not uh, does not change this issue in terms of me liking it. This was one that that I really uh, kind of sunk my teeth into it when I was reading this. Yes, it was a little bit easier for me to relate to a story like this, probably based on what I was reading and the whole adolescent fantasy fulfillment of superheroes, than it was, say, the Doctor Manhattan time displacement issue that we looked at that I love now. But as a, as a kid reading it, not as easy to connect. I love that it's tucked in the middle when we're given enough space to really, really love Rorschach and make him our favorite character. And then when you get into this part and you see what's what's behind that character, it might make you rethink a couple of things. Yeah, and uh, you know, you could put together a team of these vigilante characters from the 80s, right? With, with Frank Castle and any number of uh, similar type characters and Rorschach probably the the most unsettling of the group we're handling uh watchman chapter seven but first jimmy what do you have patreon.com slash jim rug where you can download out of print zines and mini comics like this street angel sketchbook is my most recent upload there i have about a dozen of these things that are available some comics uh some art collections like this i also post a lot of original art scripts uh process stuff basically 
what we cover on this show, but aimed at the comics that I make and read. And uh, you can get all of that at patreon.com slash jimrug. Tom. I have Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, the story of Jack Kirby's life told in comic book form. Very appropriate. Um, I also do a com- did a comic called Fantastic Four Grand Design, which is the whole story of, of the Fantastic Four in, in one handy volume. And you can check out my Patreon, where you can see the comics I'm working on right now. Go to patreon.com, search Tom Scholey. And I have a YouTube channel called Total Recall Show. Red Room Comics in the Wild as we speak. Uh, two issues on the stands right now as of this recording, but a third one is going to hit the stands very, very shortly as of this recording. Uh, Free Comic Book Day 2021. There's going to be, uh, for the sum total of zero dollars and zero cents, you're going to be able to get your hands on what is right now like the best comic I ever made. So I encourage everybody to get that at their local comic shop. Get the comic put onto your pull list at your local comic shop or hit up the Fantagraphics website to order and pre-order Red Room Comics. Uh, you could also read these comics before they hit paper at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. Three bucks gets you the archive there. And uh, you can read oh, over 100 pages worth of comics uh, as we speak. Fellas, Watchmen, Chapter 7, Rorschach is in jail. And our story opens with... Uh, Silk Spectre trolling around in Dan Dryberg's basement. Yes, yeah, super a fun, fun basement. Yeah, super fun. Well, it's like, hey, a quiet little scene where somebody's exploring the Batcave. Exactly. Yes. yes, but this is a superhero that hasn't been uh, very super lately. So you have your comic book uh, iconography to let us know that uh, it's a little rundown. It's a really nice depiction of a basement space like this, a basement headquarters, because of what Dave Gibbons can do in terms of making it a somewhat realistic space, right? Yeah. It feels like old concrete stairs. It, it makes a lot of sense. It's not It's not over the top. There's not a giant penny. There's right, not a right. big uh, dinosaur. Like, well, like we've seen spaces like this. Because this is, this is Watchmen. This is the realistic right. superheroes. By the way, how much is this a penis? If you don't have that little chin point, little that, that is a code. Go to Urban Dictionary. Show you see that image right there. <laughs> now um, she has her crack pipe. Ed, you said that like <laughs> this is after all these years, it's a little rundown. But I don't think like during his glory years, uh, Night Owl's place was probably that well kept. Anyway, it's kind of like uh, Moore does kind of depict and Gibbons do kind of depict the superhero world as kind of this boys club that stinks like a gym locker. Uh, the guys aren't, aren't key, you know, especially like his partner is is Rorschach. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a guy's space. And yeah, though, the way he lays that dick down too, man, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, he's a bachelor for sure. Yeah. This is one of my favorite issues in this series. And uh, it's sort of like a mini trilogy in the middle here. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole getting getting him back active again, Night Owl, that is the him I'm referring to, and going after his old former partner who's locked up in jail, Rorschach. Like, this is fun. This feels yeah. sort of superhero-y. And it's a little bit know, of light playful. comedy. There's a lot of movement going on. Yeah. We're in the middle of this dark work. We, we have some fun, you yes. know, naturally. We have Chekhov's uh, Night Owl ship that we have to establish up mm-hmm. front so that we get the payoff. In. That, owl's, that, that ship is so good. Super cool. Yeah, obviously based on the Blue Beetles right. floating, like looks pretty similar, does all the same kind of stuff. When the movie came out, there was a video with Dave Gibbons. Maybe it was at San Diego Comic-Con or maybe it was just on the set of the flick or something. But Dave Gibbons is like laying eyes on that for one of the first times and just blown away. That this like thing that he dreamt up is like now a functional or you know, at least aesthetically uh, tangible and they, object. They were kind of proud of the fact that Watchmen is like 
an unfilmable right. comic, you know, and then to see it filmed. And Laurie's playing around and, and hits the flamethrower button, which causes her to scream an alarm and for uh, Night Owl to think like, uh-oh, is comedian's, uh, or is uh, yeah, Rorschach's idea of a... Of, a mask killer. Right. Is, is she in danger? He yeah, goes running downstairs to see what's going on, and you get those flashbacks of Rorschach like in his head. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, th- this uh, Night Owl costume, it's kind of been established in the series up to this point and continues here that it's kind of like this presence that's kind of like watching him and kind of like, uh, you know, Batman in, in, in Dark Knight Returns, how like Batman's calling to Bruce Wayne, like, what have you been doing all this time? It's time for you to put put me back on and, and get into some action. I mean, yes, yeah, right there him. over his shoulder. Yeah, exactly. That's such a great panel where you get to see the guy and that that uh, identity. And you keep seeing time. things through its eyes. Yeah, that's cool. This is like a precursor to the era of the uh, the action figure where you have to have that white uh, mm-hmm. Batman suit for Arctic action. Yeah. And uh, the orange one for high heat situations. And and a callback to the 50s of like Batman having like his rainbow costume, his zebra costume. His... Right. This is a cool sequence. Uh, you know, that whole middle tier is one panel, essentially. Mm-hmm. Again, I forget what that's called. I always think of uh, Frank King and Gasoline Alley, but it looks really nice and it's a nice showcase for that ship design. Yeah, we're seeing like a nice quiet scene sort of play out. We're getting information. It's sort of setting up things that are going to happen, but then it's also fun and fun. Like the things they're saying are, are sort of naturalistic and, and enjoyable. I think that goes up and down. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's just hard to have that kind of interaction with some of this stuff where you don't have the benefit of a person delivering the line yeah. and being able to add some inflection and, and stuff to it. Uh, it's very different than the other issues in that regard. Mm-hmm. Gibbons draws a heck of a dad bod, I have to say. Yeah, this is like the out of shape superhero but like he's, he's you know doing pretty good you know if that, if that if this is like what out of shape looks like i don't know we're gonna see him topless in the <laughs> well nobody looks good in, in that uh, <laughs> setting still have the night owl costume looking on this is a fun sequence too because he's putting the goggles on and showing her what they can do and uh that's pretty that's pretty great considering the props and where they're at it's it's giving them something to do while they're just sort of talking comics 101 in that in that regard so have that impending nuclear war yeah. coming down on their heads, man. And and what we've been building in the past dozen pages is all this stuff that's going to sh- show up in that dream sequence. And all this impending nuclear war stuff seemed very relevant. Like, I just remember as a kid at the time, you thought it was almost like a foregone conclusion that, yeah, at some point the nukes are going to drop. It's going to turn into road warrior. And so, so it's kind of like, what, by the time I read this... It was like the Cold War was over, and so, so it's like, it seemed quaint. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We were talking in earlier chapters, like even, you know, I'm a little younger than you guys, and in first, second grade, uh, we still had to do like vestigial drills, uh, getting under uh, the desk and like watch those old tapes with like kids very jovially, like, time to get under the table, guys. The nuclear bomb's about to go off. And so, like, blue light is kind of, like, a motif. in. So they got, like, the blue light from the TV sort of illuminating their I little I think that's scene. where Klaus got it for Ghost World. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> I love all of the uh, the way media is handled. And, you know, it's, it's similar to, like, Frank Miller does that a lot in Dark Knight. But it's a totally different treatment of it. But I do like seeing media mm-hmm. and how... I don't want to say heavy-handed, but how important it is in, in this 80s world. Yeah. Well, you know, this seems like a little bit odd, you know, Ozymandias giving a, a 
a display on TV, but like this would have been like Circus of the Stars or something if back then. It's it's Alan Moore taking the opportunity to parody himself then <laughs> by by showing you his like transition moments and things, where we cut to that TV screen, and there's all this innuendo that can be implied to the 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 sex scenario by these middle agers mm -hmm. uh that ends in uh uh disappointment he's, he's down yeah and and it's kind of like like this is always what i sort of not having seen uh bonnie and clyde this is what i imagine bonnie and clyde being that like they couldn't have sex unless they were robbing a bank yeah and this this is like that they can't have sex unless they put on their costumes start beating some people up then they can you right. know fuck like animals then they're alive yeah yeah this is uh by the way blue chew really dropping the ball by not being a sponsor this episode yeah. wasn't the perfect placement <laughs> absolutely that said i love the part of them being on the couch and how awkward it is because that's an awful space for two adult human beings <laughs> to try to be like yeah two full-size they're yeah. moving each other around again one of those things like how many comic book artists can really capture that um, that in terms of how good they are with figures in space yeah not easy yeah it's an image and uh dialogue because it's like oh can you just move your right uh, exactly uh, can you just uh, uh. feet you know like a leg hanging off <laughs> it's it's so it's so uh interesting how well that's done now we have our dream sequence and they keep peeling off layers of skin and their superhero costume is a layer of their skin and 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 maybe it's their real skin yeah the other which, stuff's fake which is like what every uh, writer says when they're writing Batman, trying to sound poignant, but you hear it from every writer that uh, Bruce Wayne is dead. He really is Batman, and Bruce Wayne is cosplay. So here's the I love naked. This page. Yeah, here's the the naked uh, Dan Dryberg in blue can only be compared to the god of uh, of Doctor Manhattan in blue. Compare those two like sort of bodies. Yeah, and, good and, point. You know. I like that they break up that nine panel grid even though they're still adhering to it but they're breaking up those panels into like two now mm -hmm. always calls to mind for me Kriegstein of course breaking yeah. up his panels smaller and smaller but it's such it's so effective especially as a centerpiece mm -hmm. and having that that blue framing them boy that's a good comparison with Dr. Manhattan one I hadn't considered and it's perfect mm -hmm. let's kick our simp uh while he's down man in her slumber she calls out John right <laughs> in case you weren't making that comparison <laughs> And, and more of like the happy face, blood diagonal smear motif. And uh, Miller, I mean, I mean uh, Alan Moore has said that like it was around this time, he kind of left behind a lot of those devices, you know, like well, it, they the, sort of played their role. Uh, wordless pages, there aren't too many of them in Watchmen, so kind of noteworthy when you come across one. And they've set up such a rhythm that like they just, they work great. Even the yellow out the window is kind of haunting after you have like, dreams of mushroom clouds absolutely and you're in this blue world and, it, and it's yellow outside go go see uh terminator 2 again and see how that plays i love the chance to do like color you know to, to put this these these superhero elements in color after having muted colors in the previous pages and it's fun and like we've been kind of like withholding like in this work they've been withholding all the superhero fun stuff for such a long time and like now, like, this is why you withhold it, so that when he does put on the glove or something, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hero time. It's such a moment, too. Like, the the compositions when he's putting the stuff together. This is, like, in every, like, Batman movie, like, after this, is, like, you know, the scene where he's, like, you know, pulling on the gloves, putting on the buckles. This composition, in particular, is, like, one of the more interesting ones, man, because it's, it's more about the silhouette mm -hmm. than the actual guy. 
the silhouette thing plays up a lot. So a couple pages earlier, we see almost the same composition, but this time it's them, you know, having having a relationship. Yeah. But it's the same kind of composition where it's the silhouettes or what's there. And it's part of the story content of like these sort of post-nuclear uh, blast images that get, you know, cast on, on a wall. That's such a payoff, man, when he's in, in his full costume glory. It's, mm -hmm. it's great. Yeah. Let's go! <laughs> that's, that's like the closest to like sort of like the, the hero moment the that you would get superhero. in, in yeah, like a Alan Moore Superman cool. or something. One of my, you know, it's probably my favorite character design in this story. Mm -hmm. For all the precision, once again, of uh, Dave Gibbons' artwork, I, I really do love that all this stuff is still just drawn comics with imagination. Like, this isn't New York City. Like, these these are comic book buildings. Breathtaking. Yeah. Yes. This is such a great moment because flight is so important to superheroes, mm -hmm. and I feel like that is a moment of spectacular flight. Yeah. And, and we talked about this in, like, Dark Knight Returns, where, like, you'd have those scenes from Superman's point of view looking down at buildings, and it's like... Wait, how come we've never seen that in a superhero comic before? A couple other examples from those Miller comics. Uh, Born Again has a sequence where, like, like Nuke is falling downward, and, and that's pretty cool. Also, in uh, Year One, there's a helicopter sequence, burning building, something like that comes to mind, and it's a similar kind of composition. You just don't see uh, that stuff as like you know in regular superhero comics the, the way these two panels play off yes. against each other is really great this is an amazing setup i love and it. and then this is an amazing payoff it is and I, I wonder a lot about how this works why it works i think the color is part of it you know you have your muted colors underneath that that owl ship so mm -hmm. you especially the orange yellow side i think really helps it pop i think the shape being rounded against mostly straight edges uh, underneath it helps to create the separation. You it have really to, feels like it's above. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You, but you also have to make sure you position that thing perfectly because it could easily look like it's just sitting on top of buildings mm -hmm. or is a part of something. Like, not easy to do. Yeah, no. the shadows sort of stop and make like a little like white halo around it. And this is an aspect of, what, for as much of an influence Watchmen had, the thing that it really didn't influence was color. Like, like this kind of color is it does not get replicated. You know, poor John Higgins, man, because, because like this is such strong stuff. Uh, Killing Joke as well. Yeah. And then there's like re it's all recolored. It's all recolored, and I mean, I I think the John Higgins color is like blows my mind. It's yeah. awesome, and and the recolored just leaves me cold. Yeah, I agree, a hundred percent. So here's our superheroes doing superhero stuff. I'm trying to figure if the owl ship ever doesn't look amazing. <laughs> well, know? it's also panel like... Panel after panel, it always looks great. It's got kind of like a dreamlike quality. It's it's not tethered to gravity at all. It's not... Um, like, it, it it's almost magical, you know? Yeah, it's a real joy. And um, this is like a very standard superhero situation, saving people from a burning building. It's in like every superhero movie, every like Spider-Man movie. It's, a, it's about as far as... Siegel and Schuster could 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 imagine <laughs> yeah. you know back in the day like you know that's that's the even in like an Adam Sandler movie there's like a scene where like the building's on fire and he's got to like run in and like rescue people Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> the fire color and lighting stuff really strong mm -hmm. and the first real smile we see on his yeah. face man after a job well done he, he's alive like he was he was kind of dead all these years this is this is what he needs to do and you know. And and then this scene, the way this scene plays out is is so 
great and it pays off like that thing that was set up and then this moment is really beautiful and really fun and then when you see it shot. yes and then when you see it in the movies it it's laughable you, it totally like i go fall yeah it's just, it's just <laughs> beyond being on the nose man <laughs> just so ridiculous man. but uh also worth mentioning that we just break up the panels mm -hmm. in the same way that we did with that earlier uh, dream sequence. And that same centerpiece you were talking about of the centerpiece of the two in an embrace in, in nuclear holocaust and then here's the the um, the cum shot's also going in the correct direction too that we, we just yeah. <laughs> if it were going the other way <laughs> that would be cut <laughs> <laughs> and and now you know they're having their cigarette after it's it's you know the the iconography of of you know these kind of scenes yeah and i love the payoff here the very ending the cliffhanger is i've been thinking about what we should do next i think we should break we should spring rorschach pause what yeah right <laughs> it's like he went a step I don't know too if this far it's just going to work <laughs> exactly man like like sometimes you know in that moment of uh of uh, bliss post post coital bliss or yes whatever. yes yes that's a good way to put it you might could ask somebody to like vacuum the carpet <laughs> or something like this man maybe make a snack or something but they're flat out like about to pull a pull a lick it's a fun it's a fun like and the issue i want to wait for next month right exactly yeah, the heist you know and then everything you want to know about uh owls i guess yeah yeah, that's a funny choice to include in the back matter. <laughs> Has any human being read that part? Well, it's—I mean—it's—it's it's sort of getting you inside the head of like the Dan Dryberg when he, he doesn't he even, have the costume. Yeah, he even know? says, you know, those articles are pretty boring. Yeah, <laughs> like not a lot of people read. Them. You know, like uh, Alan Moore's body of work as it goes on, he's gotten better and better and better at getting you to read the the info dumps at the ends of his comics and like uh, Neonomicon they just flow perfectly right from the comic. It's, it's, it's kind of an amazing magic trick he's pulled off over like the past 30 years. Watchmen chapter eight, taking a look at uh, the first panel of our story. All these covers are great. This one is fantastic. I love the scale of that figure. His head is almost cropped off the top. It's about as big as you can get, especially because your traditional comic has a logo at top, so you don't have to contend with that. Pretty badass. A any other uh, superhero comic this would be the cover, except it would be like the actual hero, not a statue of him. And we got, you know, a Chekhov's gun thing going on where it's like, we're showing you the weapon. I was going to say, as heroic as this cover is, of course, we're going to uh, we're going to see the statue used in this story. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of uh, ironic, yeah. maybe, yeah, to, used, to describe used to, this as he heroic. This as, cover. as a dildo, right? <laughs> My memory serves correctly. World building, even on this this cover, man, with Under the Hood by Hollis Mason, uh, the, yeah. the Minutemen. Uh, photograph in the back there probably a couple gimmicks right there such a good cover and it's like those are incidental elements that all make sense you yes. know i mean dave mm -hmm. gibbons brilliant alan moore you know they figure out this world and that's what makes that cover so good is just the details that populate the world yeah man and we have uh minutemen uh, reunion a little bit of sorts by through uh telephonic communications because there was a night owl silk specter sighting uh you know, the day before, they helped save people uh, from a burning building. And, uh, you know, like Night Owl and Silk Spectre, the originals are there uh, kind of debriefing on the situation. 
Yeah, and, pretty fun. Pretty fun yeah. nod to that previous generation of superheroes. Yeah, and and these are sort of their kids in one instance, literally, and in the other instance, you know, sort of figuratively, and they sort of have like a like a uh, you know father son relationship of of sorts. Look at the T T one of I will still sitting mm-hmm. there, man. And uh, of course, like they're getting a little bit of guff for this, and it sort of you know pays off in a in a tragic way for Night Owl. That like you know is this this are these the same people doing this? You know, setting up. This is like a day in the life kind of gimmick because because it's uh, it's Halloween, and uh, you know what a great little symbol in stories about people who dress up and do wild stuff. Here's, you know, Halloween. The yeah, whole I was going to say, up. superhero comics, there's no better timing to set a story than Halloween. One of the things that happened uh, in that previous chapter is uh, Rorschach threw that hot, hot grease on uh, a fellow prisoner, and that guy, he's not doing so well, man. So uh, by the time that guy passes away there's going to be upheaval that is kind of prognosticated in the in the prison because so many people are have were put in that prison by rorschach uh riots are impending and and so then here's all the clothes thrown everywhere you know after like the big sex scene that like (laughs) finishes the the previous issue yeah and they're juiced up man they're they're ready to go what next yeah yeah, and uh, busting Rorschach out, the, the, the sort of story piece for that is because he's been on this case for a while. He's accumulated information. They need that information because it seems pretty clear that uh, something something is afoot. These are beautiful. This is a beautiful spread. I love these giant panels, even though they're still kind of broken up into smaller panels. They're one big image on both sides. Uh, just really nice looking. Yeah. It's worth mentioning the the Black Freighter. Is that the name of the pirate? Yeah. Tales of the Black Freighter, yeah. Uh, because it's going to run concurrently, too, and it's and it kind of is reaching a really uh, big moment in that story, mm-hmm. too, which is the guy getting to the point of succumbing to the elements and, and fantasizing about what has happened to the pirates that stranded him on that island and went back to where he's from and yeah. slaughtered his family. And it feels like it's really running some parallel tracks to the story that we're seeing uh, with Rorschach and with the superheroes and, and Hollis and everybody. Uh, this is the closest we're going to get to uh, like an archvillain kind of character that uh, the Minutemen might have put away or something with this uh, big figure <laughs> character. Small who's, world. Who's that, uh, <laughs> who's that kind of quintessential, you know, call a tiny guy big yeah kind of character and this is kind of like you always see it the other way yeah it's always tiny referring to a 600 pound guy yeah, it's never totally. it's never a big figure this is kind of like the the punisher setup that we'll see in like daredevil issues and stuff where it's like you're trapped in here with me yes. and, and and it's great it's just like fun superhero stuff and just setting up there like doom is coming your way like like we are gonna fuck you up rorschach it's only a matter of time and he's just got that kind of like dead look on his yeah, face yeah it's a violent version of foreplay mm. <laughs> The violence in superhero comics is sex. Yes. Remember so, that. So this is our detective from, man, the first panel of, uh, yeah. of Watchmen. He's hip. He knows everything, man. And he thinks that he's just going to come come to uh, Night Owl's spot and give him a kind of a warning. Almost like being gracious. You know, like, you know, you did pretty... Night Owl did pretty good, you know, saving people from a fire. Can't do anything. Uh, can't, can't say anything wrong about that. You, you push it any further... You know, there could be trouble. He's looking around. He sees the sugar cubes that were found in Rorschach's jacket pocket, which if you were paying attention in those issues, he's grabbing those cubes. He's eating a couple. He's putting them in his jacket. Got the damn uh, locksmith putting yet another, uh, you know, secure lock 
on the guy's door. Yeah, and commenting about, oh, your door's always getting broken open in front of this <laughs> this uh, detective. And, and yeah, like, Watchmen is a whodunit. And then he's kind of doing, like, a like a Columbo kind of thing. Like, w- w- waiting to see if this guy jumps. You right, know? right. There's the locked door that's going to take us down to his bat cave. But, uh, you know, the lumber room hasn't had the key there for uh, for years. He's sweating. He knows yeah. the deal. Like, look at this guy looking at the, at that door that the cop just, like, left through. They have a deadline, suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yes. I heard this is how Deadline Magazine started. <laughs> Inspired by this panel. You know, like, the thing he's saying about, like, okay, they saved people from a fire, don't get any other ideas. It's kind of like, that's, like, uncontroversial. You save people from a yeah. burning building. No controversy there. Now, they want to get political. You know, they want to do, they want to cross a lot. They want to bust a guy out of jail. And then that's where... You know, okay, comics. We, Some we people go beyond politics and call it a felony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's there's kind of a parallel story with comics in general. Like, we tolerated you as long as you, you know, occupied a certain sphere. But once you jump into this other yeah. thing, you're done. I absolutely love this. This this is probably my favorite issue of Watchmen. But it's it feels like spread after spread that I really love. They're putting together the front page mm-hmm. of this uh, this this alternative newspaper, this conspiracy newspaper. I love all of that, like the paste ups and and you know bringing in the type lines and everything. Amazing. But this is the beginning now of them getting together to go uh, get Rorschach, and it's a silent sequence. It takes up a third of the page, and it runs like cross-cutting with the stuff that's going on above and all fantastic. Moore does that in a lot of his works, man, where he makes those suggestions about these kind of like rhythmic page layouts. And it is like poetry or something, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's these very specific kind of grace notes. Here we have the people on the island, the creatives on the the island who are basically... uh, you know, dude, this is freaking Argo, man. This is Jack Kirby Uh and people like creating something and they have no idea what the real purpose is behind it. Before that, yeah, before it ever got released. No, you're right. Yeah, like if if you were smart and paying attention at that time, you would assume that this sort of thing must be going on. Just you know, from little glimpses we've seen. And you know what else this makes me think of too? Makes me think of like how like you know artists and writers and creative people often sell themselves so cheap. Yeah. Like if you have a certain amount of money, you can like take them on an island, put them on, blow the boat up. You know. (laughs) So you're saying this is cross gen comics? (laughs) You take all the guys out of New York, man. Take them down to Florida, man. I mean, we'll we'll talk off camera about what I think. (laughs) Oh man. You know, all these preparations. Man. It's Halloween. We got a return of that motif of the smiley face and the, the blood splatter. And, and Hollis. It's Hollis yeah. getting ready for the trick-or-treaters. Stoked about it. In, in fact, him being a good guy about it is going to probably cost him as this story unfolds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no good deed goes unpunished. And um, and again, like anytime the airship takes off, it's, it's great. glorious. Yeah. Three-point perspective. Does it up fly? Uh, it's it, this is an interesting thing because you have to choose the perfect mm-hmm. moments to sell this part of the story. Look at this for comics and comics. So this is your your Black Freighter comic book, but it's being read. So yeah. it's you know within this world, within this panel, and then like those are the captions from it. But you're seeing the little tiny glimpse of like the uh, the pages of comics of what's going on in there. Which has been like throughout this whole series, it's like it's a printed words and pictures medium so then there's words and pictures within the world that we're like reading maybe without even being aware of it and and taking in all this information that that aids us in understanding what comes later very dense 
and then back to Rorschach in the prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this, I mean, Rorschach is sort of like a Ditko-inspired character, and this feels like another one of those Ditko things where you come up with like a sort of credible way of getting your character out of this impossible situation. Alan Moore was talking about, uh, on, on that In Search of Steve Ditko documentary, he's talking about uh, Steve, uh, Steve Ditko uh, being asked about the Rorschach character and its influence. And uh, he, Steve Ditko said something like, quote, Oh yeah, Rorschach, he's like Mr. A, except he's insane. <laughs> <laughs> he should have no sold it and been like, who? Yeah, right, yeah. So we have our, uh, you know, our, our Alan Moore version of Archie right here, man. Uh, about to get, you know, he's, he's uh, getting cheap heat on the hood, who plays right into his hand. Literally. Ties his pinkies together. I have never considered how much he looks like grown-up Archie Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> Not a, no, nothing an accident in this comic. That's hilarious. The blood splurt is fantastic. It's so over-the-top and ridiculous. Yeah, it's Tom Savini in Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's red, red candle wax blood. You stand between me and my revenge. Kill this him. stuff's so fun, too. Like, this POV of, like, flying into the situation and the, the reaction of these like little tiny characters like blown yeah, up like, here. Here's this guy, here's that guy. I get like a great use of comics that like like I don't see employed even like today. A lot of thought, man. A lot of thought going into this stuff. Just stunning. That ship is beautiful. That Gibbons, man, he knows how to use that French curve. And I and I realize like uh you know, he's got the the, the screechers, man. We get to see yeah. how those things work. Mhm. Mm and they resonate in a way to break glass. Even Night Owl looks badass as he's coming yes. in, you know, to, to do his job. It's the most sort of super heroic he looks, but still keeping the dad bod. Yeah. You know, those, those wide proportions. Yeah, like like it was sort of with the previous issue that like Moore started letting us have some fun, you know, which had been withheld, you know, which which maybe is pretty smart too. I'm I'm thinking maybe part of the inspiration of this sequence is like the uh, Ride of the Valkyries scene in Apocalypse Now, right. you know, you could picture da, 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 you know, playing <laughs> as they're doing all this. Such a hard story to, like, there's a lot going on here, and in my mind would be very hard to compose, but it's so clear Yeah. in the visuals here, man. Got a live wire that they're trying to, like, uh, uh, sort of solder through the jail bars. Coming in to the cell, you could see all the frayed edges and stuff with exposed copper. Rorschach sees that, kicks the kicks the toilet, busts it, so that these frayed pieces get exposed to the water, thus electrocuting our guy. And a great electrocution panel. Mm -hmm. Really good. The guy's back arching backwards, snapping the light. And look at big figure. Hmm. And and he's just done. He's done. <laughs> like, and he knows it. He knows it, man. And his, Rorschach's his funny because he's keeping score. He's like, yes. do nothing. Your move. <laughs> now... Like, again, it's it, it, as credible as you can get within superheroics and stuff, but do you think you could break a toilet with your heel? Oh, surely, yeah. <laughs> Although, I don't know what kind of shoes they're going to give you in prison. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you need, like, a harder sole. Street yeah. shoe, I think you could do it, but uh, without a decent sole, maybe that would be tough. We should try this sometime. Also, I mean, prison toilets now are stainless steel, yeah, I think. This so. story wouldn't work now. Good thing no. it's the yeah, 80s. Yeah, maybe in those uh, Hooskals in Great Britain, they usually got them more in the... It they, feels they like this is a reason to write a letter to DC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get a no prize. I love the colors here. Mm -hmm. And again, like, 
a, a really underrated, underappreciated aspect of Watchmen. Higgins gets no respect, man. Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's th- this, this got recolored. Uh, yeah. Killing Joke got recolored. It's it's the element of, of these works that's that's been like abandoned. That, yeah. you know, hasn't has, that thread hasn't. So many threads have been picked up. And that's not one of them. You think about how much people value the art in comics, right? That's mm-hmm. something you champion. This is a beautiful, well-drawn comic. And yet, the, 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 the color is not one of those parts. Yeah. And this is like, this insane color is selling this insane, intense, psychotic moment. Speaking of psychotic moment, I mean, this is Rorschach as Michael Myers. Yes. Here. <laughs> totally measured movement. And this is the biggest you ever see big figure. Yeah. Running away from I mean, him. this is right out of a Michael Myers, a slasher kind of point yeah. of view. You know, low angle, really make that menace. And this is, you know, this is the 80s. This is the era of the slasher movie. And, and uh, uh, Rambo, also, like like the f- first Blood, the first the first Rambo movie, you know, where he is kind of like a, like almost like a horror figure from the p- point of view of, of, of the cops in the story. Warm, warm colors. It's so, this it's so great when the characters actually come together. You know, mm-hmm. like when they meet in the, the old hallway. team getting back yeah, together. It's, it's really fun. Everybody's themselves, but it gives them uh, personalities to bounce off of each other. <laughs> and this is pretty subtle. Like if you're not really, if you're, if you're like one of those comics readers that just reads the words and kind of mm-hmm. glances, you, you're just not getting it. Yeah, you know the what body I'm saying. Language and stuff. Well, well, or, the the the, the oh, blood, the blood yeah, coming, coming uh, from below the damn bedroom after seeing big figure run in there. The, uh, see, uh, you're reading that as blood. I was reading that as like water coming out from like the flooded toilet that he was drowned in. <laughs> um, and, and this stuff with like the three of them, they do they do play off as this like comedy trio. And it is like one of those situations of like you know your girlfriend hanging out with you and your best friend, and she's like, "Who the fuck is this guy? You this yeah. is your your friend, this fucking <laughs> asshole." You know? It's so great when they agree on anything, though. Like they, mm-hmm. they her and Rorschach both hate her costume. <laughs> it's perfect. This is a killer panel too. All of these panels, like anything with the with the ship, is so good. But that perspective and looking back. Him covered in blood. It's just a good panel. And just the chaos of it. Like, mm-hmm. imagining uh, Gibbons, Gibbons composed this thing. He's taping his paper down mm-hmm. three different times to, like, get the perspective of the buildings. You get Then it's a different perspective for this. It's a different perspective for these, like, little dirigibles. This is, like, the big heist. This is the big, like, yeah. fun little adventure of, of the whole series. Like, the most moving parts. Mm-hmm. Can't forget about Doc Manhattan, though. I had forgotten about him. And just when you forgot all about him, that's when he shows up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's such a presence. It's such a different energy whenever he's like sitting there. Mm-hmm. And he's he's like dark side or something. You walk in your apartment and there he is just sitting, hanging out on the couch. And yeah, uh, completely nude ass on your couch uh, with uh, <laughs> with like a little uh, magazine sitting in his lap. <laughs> with an Austin Powers like <laughs> magazine uh, uh, in his lap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, at this point, they were probably like, okay, could you tone down the dick in this issue? <laughs> I love, like, in that uh, in that monograph, that watching the Watchmen thing, like, that was, there, there was, there was some woodshedding involved mm-hmm. in how the, how the dick was going to look, man. Yeah. You know, you it's know, like five or six different dick sketches. It just occurred to me, his symbol is a head-on view of a dick. <laughs> With, like, a little, uh, little a melanoma on it or something. <laughs> Yeah, and oh, wait. Uh, okay, I was gonna say these are the testicles. These a, are the a little herb piece. <laughs> All right, man. 
Enter the Cops. Like, this is a very tight issue with, yeah. with the things that were set up early and the things that kind of pay off at the end here. Yeah, on the reread, uh, not just of this issue, but this whole series as we've been going through, like, I remember, you know, the sequences and scenes and things and realizing, like, what had to take place in this issue, I was kind of surprised by how much ha happens you in know this what issue. I, like, this series, you know, they talk about, like, all the breakthroughs in terms of, like, characterization and tone and things like that. But it's like, for an action-adventure medium... When else have you seen more clearly choreographed action sequences? You would think that it would just be a matter of course that you have all these great action sequences in in superhero comics, but but no, they're few and far between. And and here's you know maybe one of the best instances of one. This is one of my favorite pieces of Higgins color in the entire mm -hmm. comic. The the spotlights here, mm -hmm. uh, and and the way you get that darker purple back there. Uh, and purple, you know, you got you got to proceed with caution when you wield purple. And so, like, yeah, look at that. That's that's what they say, man. I was just watching a uh, Robert Williams documentary, and he's like, "I'm trying to master purple." <laughs> it's, Good uh, luck, yeah. Robin. Yeah, be better better men, you know, that have have uh, failed in in the attempt. Here, getting back into the uh, our pirate comic. There's some really fun stuff in this thing. I love that the shark, you know, like he, he straps on to the raft to make part of the raft. Yeah, man. It's it's nice to have like this many moving parts because you can kind of like when in doubt, just like jump to the next thing. The nostalgia ad in the background. So we do get like V, like everybody is in this issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Earlier, there were some pyramid industries, uh, electric vehicles and things. Uh, Here's a caption. Uh, uh, just you know, selling us on the, on the riot, several dead. There's, you know, when, when there's like a mystery whose solution has been hiding in plain sight the whole time, like that's, that's this, this book. Yeah. Also love Higgins coloring on the black freighter, you know, like, like these are some bold choices, greens and yellows and oranges for the water. You see those colors in, um, in that art of Jack Kirby, Kevin Eastman book, when you're looking at like, um, Boys Ranch, mm -hmm. um, two-page spreads and stuff, cr crossbow or, or a, a bullseye, yeah. um, two-page spreads, marrying these crazy colors. Yeah, it's that, very golden age. Christine, that, that one color, yes. that one uh, issue with the boat, piracy. Uh, the piracy issue, similar palette. Yeah. When, when Kirby colors his own stuff, it, it is like as adventurous yeah. as, as this kind of color. So now the, um, the, the gang, like they heard about, um, about the, the, uh, night owl causing this like prison riot and people getting you know kind of like like an attica state kind of situation or whatever and now they're they, hey i know where the night owl lives he lives right around the corner from me let's go kick his ass yeah it's a bunch of our friends in there getting caught up in that let's go let's go screw that guy up bust their way in and then and then these shots back man like to like the days of yore when yeah. night owl was vibrant and and able to to handle his business man yeah, this was like amazing at, at, at like at their height. These are like the glory days, and it is neat getting this little little glimpse. And it's kind of hard for me to almost imagine that world that's being depicted here because it's so at odds tonally with like the Watchmen world. It's kind of like, is it really just a bunch of guys wearing weird costumes in a room together punching each other? <laughs> and you even see Moloch right there. And he couldn't be happier, uh, Night Owl. That, that's him. Like, yeah. He's big grin on his face. This is the just, life. Just like you would see, man, in, in any of those that's old right. Golden Age uh, comics. Yeah, Batman yeah. and Robin punching dudes yeah. out with that big white smile. And then flash forward to this look of horror as you're 
bludgeoned with your with your own self, your own image. Strong panels. Those first couple of panels, really strong. Yeah, and, I mean, and it forms like a mask on his face, like a domino mask on his it face. Does. The shadow. It does, or, or like Rorschach's symbol. Mm -hmm. You know, you see the clear outline of of the uh, trophy. See the guy wielding it, and then let's have some metaphor in there. You see the the, the pumpkin getting smashed, like his skull the is head, getting smashed. Totally. Yeah, it is like, yeah, like um, you know foisted on your own petard or what like like being beaten with your own uh graven image this this uh, idealized version of yourself and beaten to death with it like it's such a potent metaphor it says gratitude <laughs> gratitude there's, there's, there's yeah. something to that yes uh so here's your gratitude do you feel uh th this comic as we're going through it this time it reminds me so much of dan Klaus. Sure. And I, I, I can't imagine that this would be a comic that Dan Klaus would be into, but like the meticulous detail, even the figure stylization, and I know like he likes some of the older uh, Silver Age kind of DC comics. He grew up comics, with all the same like kind of stuff. But Mel then whenever Moore's... you see like this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. like that doesn't feel out of line for his sensibility. It's, it's really weird. Uh, and it's just occurred to me, again, like partway through this rereading, but we look at Klaus a lot on this channel, yeah. and it just reminds me of some of those details, you know? Um, the, the, precision, so the precision the, the precision the precision of the yeah of, of the art doesn't look like uh, i mean uh, doesn't that look like uh, if you put a title on this you could call it ghost world <laughs> <laughs> no i see i see i mean you're just everybody's swimming in the same waters it's like you're 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 the same era you grew up with the same shit you, you're around the same age you've got similar artistic sure. ambitions and they just come out you know slightly different another example where we don't have that final quote, the quote either yeah. approved or whatever man so Here's our quote. I don't know if I don't know who Eleanor or whatever, if that's song, yeah, if that's lyrics or something, but you know, added to the big book. So this is the uh, New Frontiersman, the the book that was being pasted up on that, yeah, uh, that that's a cool six extra. panel sequence. Yeah, and and it is like it is a you know far right you know like like uh, hate paper. You 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 know it's like. Uh, um, you know, just kind of like uh, racist conspiracy theories, it, it, if you start reading into it. Coked out commie cowards. Missing writer, man. This is our mm -hmm. dude that uh, was on that island, going to come up with some kayfabe story that ain't going to matter. And it, it's also worthy of note that this is um, Rorschach's favorite magazine. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 yeah. How, how, how could we forget? How could we forget? Anyhow, there it is, man, chapter 8 of Watchmen. Ninth issue, ninth chap chapter of Watchmen. It's got yes. a Halloween color scheme on the logo. <laughs> Maybe sit on this one for a little bit. Uh, I was thinking about it as issue nine. This is the, the end of act two in your traditional three act mm. structure in terms of where that, that typically falls. And uh, we've just got done with uh, Rorschach being busted out of prison in our, in our previous issue, getting the band back together, so to speak. And I uh, want to throw a monkey wrench in those getaway plans. Dr. Manhattan shows up and uh, takes away Laurie. Yeah, man. As the nostalgia bottle. Yeah, uh, continues its little twist through space. In that uh, that Watchmen monograph book, you could see all the sketch work that Dave Gibbons did <laughs> to just show the different versions of that, like what the liquid would look like as it's kind of like shifting and rustling about. Whenever I reread this this week, after I got done reading it, then I went through it and I was just tracking like the uh, the bottle, you know, projecting through space there and, and being uh, being tossed around. There are animated gifs out there 
of uh, all the panels. It's neat because it kind of rolls through the nine panel grid. Mm -hmm. You know, as you as you see it each time, it's progressing oh, it's, one, it's one panel. One more. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So one more of their subtle uh, attention to detail type things. And one more thing that I didn't notice the first hundred times I read this, which is the way it goes with this comic. You always figure something new out. Yeah, wherever your eyes are, there's something happening sort of peripherally that uh, has the same level of detail and attention. So as I said, Lori and uh, Dr. Manhattan are going to spend a lot of time on Mars having a discussion about Dr. Manhattan's involvement here as the uh, Earth is facing possible nuclear war. And you got this little like vertical blinds uh, effect to, to, to give you a first person view of what teleporting with with uh, John uh, would be like. An interesting visual uh, Alan Moore transition sequence, man. Get, let's get out of Earth and into Mars. Yeah, and Higgins color shining. Yeah, know, the, show the, us the Martian landscape. We're going to get a good tour of Mars throughout this issue, and you'll get to see all those different colors. But I think it's neat to start here with these these purples and unusual colors. Uh, definitely, you're not on Earth anymore, but not the maybe obvious orange red that we would expect on Mars right away. Yeah, the Mars like the the pinks and purples kind of set you up in in like another land. And there's a point in the story where the the nostalgia bottle like sort of spells out no you know and and i'm thinking it's it, when it's sideways it spells out oz it, o z and it's kind of like we're kind of in this like you're not in kansas anymore kind of situation we're ozymandias right <laughs> ozymand there you go hey um we cracked it <laughs> kind of an unfortunate image here <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or fortunate well we we have sometimes talked about this of like you know, comics imagery is, is part of a context, but when you take it out of the context, what you're left with can be like very interesting. To yeah. It feels like something you would see this panel on Twitter independently yes. with some <laughs> snarky <laughs> comment underneath it. Uh, but struggling to breathe, right? Dr. Manhattan, barely human at this point, doesn't even think about, Oh, she needs oxygen. So they sort that part out and uh, he's ready to go give her a tour around Mars. Look at this thing, man. How you design something like that? Yeah, I thought about that a lot, like a crystal palace kind of thing based on watch gears and things. That's a that's a that's an unusual item to have to draw. Good luck. You know, his you, his blue looks really nice against all these pinks and purples. It too. does. You, it comes from a career of like 2000 AD sci-fi artwork and drawn Dan Dare and stuff that that yeah. makes you be able to think in those kinds of terms and stuff. I wonder if that's something Alan Moore factored in when he's writing this. Because it could have been anything. It could have been a, a circle probe that they just, you know, ride around in some kind of sphere. Um, but knowing Dave Gibbons ability and what he's coming from, like maybe you do play up the science fiction and, and make some interesting structure there. Yes, a little like more lyrical, a little more fantastical. This is a uh, an, an interesting issue in that it feels like they're talking about much bigger things, but you're doing it through the superhero comic book language, which is a struggle. Um, Sometimes, you know, I think it probably depends on the mood of the reader. Sometimes I feel like this hits well, and sometimes it's very, it, it almost highlights the silliness of what we're seeing. It, it's a, and some of the stuff you're describing is a little bit of a vestige of that great Doc Manhattan issue where it's playing with time stuff, man. So he's saying stuff like, uh, you know, you're going to tell me that Dan Dreiber, even fucking Dan Dreiber. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then whenever she surprised. tells him, she's like, you knew this. <laughs> yeah. There's some really fun, like uh, verbal gymnastics with that kind of future stuff. And then we're going to see what he's describing and he, and he, it's still surprising. And he, and he tells you like, 
about the the end of like like the disaster that's going to come like I, I guess next issue or in, in two issues he tells you about it and it sounds like the end of the world like what he's describing but then you know you l- later learn that you know there's more to tell uh flashback here to Lori as a child and her parents fighting and uh starting to get hints we're, we're getting seeds what we're going to learn is that um Lori's dad might not be who who lived with them yeah and not who she thought it was and then so this this is the nostalgia glass here this is um you know she's looking at you know like like a little uh snow globe snow globe and you, you know can you think of a more nostalgic image if you're talking about this than a snow globe yeah. and of course once you plaster your eyeballs on top of it yeah. you got it, the happy face it becomes something else altogether I don't even know about happy face. I think about when they show somebody burning up in a bomb or something, uh-huh. and it's it's a similar effect where like your skeleton's visible but black. Yeah, I'm just thinking this is an obvious reference to like the the smiley yeah. face of of Watchmen. You see Dad being pissed off here, causing it to break, and and, and then she, cross cut to the Mars, uh, the the structure on Mars, and she thinks she knows the the dark secret. She thinks that she knows that. Oh yeah, that the guy who I said was my dad isn't my dad. My dad's really hooded justice. My mom's old boyfriend, you know, who is gay, right? Hooded justice is that what's implied? Uh, gay? Yeah, or, or, or like some like weird kink, like. Well, no. If you read the back matter, he is clearly gay and he's in like like an ongoing uh committed relationship with captain metropolis that's that's like in the back matter and stuff i don't know how much of that is in like the body of the comic but i know it's and it's in specifically this issue's back matter here's uh dr manhattan (laughs) after laurie admits to the thing he says you know she's going to admit to she's like but you already knew that and he's like you've replaced me i have no connection to humanity now you're asking me to save humanity (laughs) You see how futile it is. And nevertheless, let's go. Let's take a tour. Let's take a spin around Mars. And you know what, man? Like, there's that part where like, he's talking about, like, look at the sandstorms, look at the dust storm. And she's like, yeah, 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 whatever. I feel like that's something that we could all relate to whenever, like, you might get a really cool opportunity at something really, really rad. Or maybe, you know, a famous person comes and visits the studio. But that'll never impress your wife or girlfriend. Like, yeah, yeah, but like... <laughs> You know what? When I say like the stuff they're, they're they're covering in this, depending on your mood is maybe how you read it. That's exactly what I'm describing because like on one hand, she's seeing something that no human being has ever seen and doesn't appreciate it at all because she's she's somewhere else, you know, like mentally and emotionally, she's fixated on this other thing and just no cells this amazing, you know, sight. It'd be the greatest thing any human eyes have ever taken in, but instead she's not 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 in that mind space. Yeah, she's mad that you didn't take out the trash. Uh, cut back. So here's a flashback of Lori training, and uh, I am shocked because I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, she's a young woman here. You know, she's training to be a superhero and stuff. Oh, she's and 13. you turn the page and she's 13. What? Well, I mean, like, with, <laughs> it's the it's it's probably the biggest Dave Gibbons uh, weird drawing piece of this whole series. Yeah, I mean, it looks but, like a woman. But who does she evoke in this this sort of like uh, how she's dressed and what she's doing? She evokes Kitty Pride of the X Men. This is sort of like a Kitty Pride. Kitty Pride's dance outfit or whatever, and Kitty Pride, it was the exact same thing. It was, you know, she's 13, but but sort of, uh, you know, in this, like, romantic relationship with Colossus and stuff, who's, who's uh, you know, older. It took me, uh, it, it definitely turned, uh, whenever I learned she was 13, it was kind of like, huh, I did relook at that. I love this panel because of the way it's constructed with the foreground figures. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting composition. And they're showing uh, Byron... <laughs> 
Uh, I can't remember what his yeah, last. Yeah, Mothman. But he's he's you know lost lost his mind. He's around the bend and uh, pretty uncomfortable scene. And and Lori is speaking like a child, being very open and and saying things that maybe aren't polite to say. Fun scene, interesting scene. Yeah. This is another one where it's like the dynamic of the different characters that are in this scene and interacting. That's the the gymnastics I love seeing Alan Moore pull throughout the series. You know, it's it's, it's funny because you call out the visual, right? And yeah, she, it just looks like regular. Laurie, uh, you know, at the, at the, at the front and so, but she's 13 and then like the stuff she's saying, like even a 13 year old would have more manners than so. So it's like, looks like a woman and talks like a nine year old or so or a six year old. It, it's just like, those guys are too removed from little kids at that moment or something. When, um, they first started sending back photos of like Mars from like whatever the most recent probe was. I was kind of disappointed at like the colors. They weren't, it was just kind of like, it was, you know, just kind of brown and just looked like. Real orange. Yeah, looked like, looked like not even that, like I wish it was more orange. It just looked like you drove a little bit outside of Pittsburgh and walked around. <laughs> like it was very disappointing. I wanted to see a little more uh, um, Higgins Hollywood. Better, yeah. better than the real, uh, yeah. the real Martian landscape. Great colors. It's fun coming through. I like this issue because you see some different stuff. There's so much of this story is set in, you know, in New York and everything. This is a great alternative. And, you know, when, when they started making, like, the Watchmen prequels and stuff before Watchmen, it's like, how do you do a prequel to Watchmen when Watchmen contains, like, the past and the present in it? And so this this narrative is jumping all over, like, the time frame, you know? So So we're, you know various ages of lori it's it's not a strictly linear linear narrative you have this linear you know sort of framing uh sequence on mars but then we're, we're jumping all over all over time here it's funny whenever she's describing dr manhattan and seeing him for the first time and you know he had a great body but it was blue <laughs> and um we're getting the lori's eye view here so she this is her her point of view she's looking and then uh mrs manhattan is giving her the stink eye yeah, we've seen different versions of that throughout this sucker. Yeah, it is good because she's also the way this is positioned, giving us the stink eye. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, our point of view, looking through Lori's eyes. And so then, the first time you're reading this, it sounds like you know this this uh, fucking creep, the comedian, is like hitting on, uh, uh, you know, the 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 new Silk Spectre, and then um, you know, once you sort of get that that bit of knowledge that bit, fresh bit of information it kind of like you know you realize what's what's actually going on here gets involved in nicotine <laughs> yeah it's a it's a strange scene given what we think we know about mm -hmm. uh Lori's mom and comedian and the sort of like sort of shocks and surprises and twists of watchmen we've kind of experienced those a long time ago so you're kind of left with, okay, I know what the twist is. And so this thing that kind of hinges on a twist, you're kind of looking at other stuff now in, in this reading. And Lori's still trying to convince him that uh, aren't humans more important than this rubble, this dust that you're showing me? And repeating of the two panels, right? Yeah, man. And yeah, we get this slow zoom on the Olympus Mons. Yeah. Mons Vernus. The 15-mile volcano pokes through the atmosphere. It's fun, the Alan Moore as the tour guide through Mars. Mm -hmm. He's, like, these writers, man, when they're dealing with something, like, they, they will read voraciously about the subject, and be, it'll become that thing of, like, wanting to let you know all the cool shit. Just like, like, the, uh, like the From Hell, Chapter 4, whenever it's, like, the tour of 
London right. and everything. The other thing is, uh, we're nine issues in. Gibbons is struggling with deadlines. Is this uh, is this some improv on Alan Moore's part? Like that? That's probably a quick page right there. And you know the the um, the, the uh, Doctor Manhattan character is probably the most like autobiographical character for an Alan, where it's like he does he is a writer. He does kind of have this outsider perspective, and he's also interested and deeply profoundly interested in a lot of stuff that nobody else gives two shits about. And so a lot of his conversations probably are like this, you know, where he's like telling somebody about something they, they, they just couldn't care less. Now we're cutting back to a banquet in 1973 where Laurie and comedian have another uh, altercation. This is after she read uh, Under the Hood. So she knows the deal about what that guy did to her mom. And we have like a little bit of stuff, a little bit of like Nixon kind of stuff where you have like G. Gordon Liddy and all the, the Watergate guys bragging about how they killed or, or, or how they how uh, they got the comedian to kill Woodward and Bernstein to sort of bury the whole Watergate story, which allows Nixon to become like the, the president in perpetuity You're in right. this alternate universe. Just don't ask where he was uh, the day JFK got assassinated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, Alan Moore you know, did like an extensive book about uh, like the CIA and like all the little, you know. Brought to light, man. We'll we'll be covering that at some point. Yeah, you wonder if that book spins out of research that was, uh, you know, maybe maybe began around this, around the comedian. Look at those colors, man. So gorgeous. And, uh, Laurie continuing to try to explain this, pulling out files and information that, that she carries in that bag. Not really clear why that, what that's about, um, but like throwing out bits and pieces of her past and the story that we're, that is uh, being flashed back throughout this. So this says no, and then she says no. You're not my fa, my fa, fa. <laughs> Yeah, and the, you know, the, the comedian's face with the slash in it, and then the the happy face symbol with the blood slash in it. There's just all this like, uh, you know, ver uh, visual poetry. It's interesting to think about that scar on comedian because at one point, I think in this issue, Laurie or somebody refers to it as it looks like he's grinning. He's sneering, yeah. And then and then we get the, the big happy face, which as far as I know is like a real thing on Mars, like a giant uh, sort of happy face meteor. Crater. With a little blemish under the eye there. So her world has imploded. The little glass menagerie gimmick has shattered. Uh, but that's what it took to impress Doc Manhattan enough to uh, accept the challenge, man, to save the universe. Thermodynamic uh, miracles or something. I like the it. exchange here where she says something like, oh, so you're just going to you know, none of this stuff matters, right? And then he's like, no, of course it matters. And like, she's like, well, you're just saying that to disagree with me because that's what you do. And then realizing that he's, you know, come around to her side. Yeah, talking about fertilization of, uh, you know, millions of sperm, finding the one egg. Some of this stuff's a little bit... I, I mean, this is some of the more awkward, I think, phrasing coming uh, through here. Uh, like this chapter, it is, you know, it is kind of fun. It is like a change of pace and flying through Mars and all that kind of stuff. But... The last couple chapters I've enjoyed so much. And this one was a little, like, a little bit clunkier. I didn't enjoy it as much. Again, it also hinges on a big surprise reveal that the surprise I, I, I learned, you know, over a decade ago. So, 
Tom, one time we had a conversation about like a series, I think it was in regards to Preacher, but how there are certain storytelling highs and lows mm-hmm. inherent in a series. And I feel like this issue falls into that kind of low moment, right? Like we're setting up now for Act 3. Yeah, they're we're, we're sort of getting pins. the team all together. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot of what this issue is. It's kind of like bridging us into what's going to be, all right, we've got our ducks in a row. Let's head to Antarctica. And it feels like that's kind of what this issue is in some ways. Yeah, yeah, you're you're setting things up, but uh, like the the end of Act Two should be kind of, you know, super fun. Also, you know, which which like the issue prior to this was more like the sort of things you'd associate with the end of Act Two. And again, like my memory of this is this being like a super awesome, super memorable chapter. Which again, only, like it's only in that first reading that you really get that full effect. It's certainly a different tone than the rest of the series, which I commend them for doing. You know, setting it on Mars and sh- kind of showing that backdrop does make for an in- interesting place to do some exposition and to allow, um, you know, Alan Moore to channel his do- inner Dr. Manhattan, if you will. And and she's it's this is like a classical setup, too, where it's like somebody um, uh, interceding with God on behalf of humanity. Like, she, you know, she's, you know, so like the, the only thing that would make it more classical is if there were also like sort of like a devil figure with her, you know, trying to like it, it convince him why he should just ignore humanity and let, let it destroy itself, you know? Yeah, well, he's going to go hang out with Rorschach for a bit. So we'll, <laughs> we'll get some of that perspective. Uh, my favorite part about this issue really is like, I'm ready to read those final three. Of it's course, been a while yeah. since I've reread them and I feel like we've turned the corner now. Like the team is getting together and sort of focused on a goal. Uh, it's starting to clear up a little bit and all of the stuff where he can't see beyond a certain point And there's like a fuzziness yeah. in his ability to see that future. I think that part is set up really cool. Yeah. Like it makes me want to go see that part. Like what is causing that stuff? And he says, you know, it could be a, a major thermonuclear weapon going mm-hmm. off it's possible that could cause this. Yeah, and it and it does get explained. It's not some, like, you know, uh, red herring or something. And something that occurred to me in this reading with all this sort of, like, him being unstuck from time, viewing things in, like, a nonlinear perspective uh, and viewing, like, all moments at the same time. Like, at the end of the series, he talks about, I might go off and create some life, some new life. And it only occurs to me in this that, like, maybe he, like, went off and created the Charlton universe or something. Or maybe he went back in time and created this universe that they're actually living in now. Or, or But it was only it was only this reading that that thought occurred to me. I don't know if maybe they've explored that in any of these, like, million sequels and prequels that they've done to, to Watchmen since then. But. Yeah, I can't speak to that, but it's a fun idea. That feels like something Alan Moore would think of, <laughs> whether all... it's used or not. Watchmen number 10, before we open this up, Ed, tell us about Red Room. Red Room, the Antisocial Network trade paperback, hit in shops November 9th. Jimmy said it before, say it again. Amazon bought half this print run, so that means that uh, all the other comic shops in the world have to fight for the rest of that uh, that half that's out there. And I much prefer people get this thing at their local comic shop, support their comic shop. Uh, so please order heavy so that you don't get lost in the sauce with the, the second you know reprint. Um, more than 70 pages of additional material. You see all these extra drawings. And, you know, the, the kayfabe brothers, man, the way we rock things nowadays, if your table of contents is basic, you don't work hard enough, man. So since since uh, the first Hip Hop Family Tree, we've been stretching those table of contents pages and no different here. I know what the ne- next one's going to be for the second book. It's going to be disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, if the, you think it's that disgusting. means something. Whatever yeah. you say, it's going to be disgusting, and this is on the next page. Yeah, oh man. boy. 
Uh, I'm also serializing the next round of Red Room comics at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor, and you could pre-order those new, new comics. It's going to start coming out in December at the Fantagraphics website. All those links in my link tree in the description below this video. Tom, where can people find your latest, greatest? Here's uh, Marvel's answer to Watchmen, Fantastic Four Grand Design. It's the, it's the whole story of the Fantastic Four done in one complete volume. Uh, it's, you know, just a great big, you know, love letter to uh, Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Joe Sinnott, all those guys. Um, Rich Buckler. Rich Buckler, and it's it's available. For, <laughs> name, name a really crazy name. Uh, and it's available from uh, Marvel Comics. I'm a Rich Buckler fan. I'm, I'm proud to say it. I'm pro Rich Buckler. We'll be looking at Deathlock someday. Yeah, Deathlock's a classic. Uh, and here's <laughs> Jack Kirby, The Epic Life. said with no irony. Uh, Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. It's the story of Jack Kirby's life told in comic book form. And yeah, just turn to a random page and see, you know, some, you know, legendary comic book character invented, uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a real trip and, um, check out my YouTube channel, Total Recall Show and, uh, go to patreon.com, search Tom Scholey and, and see all the different comics I'm working on at the moment. You can join me on patreon.com slash Jim Rugg, where you can download out of print zines and mini comics like BW zine. Freshly posted this week. This collects and reflects my love of 80s black and white self-published comics. Uh, reprinting logos, panels, uh, collages, text pages, ads. All of that good stuff that uh, represents one of the early waves of self-publishing and small press. And really continues to inspire me to this day. You can also see my original art, scripts, process, layout for the comics I make. Like Street Angel, Plain Jane's, Octobriana. And uh, you can get all of that at patreon.com slash jimrug. Good uh, Craig Storman representation in, in that <laughs> BW zine. Wouldn't be much of a BW zine without some Craig Storman. But we are here to talk about number 10 of Watchmen. And uh, really enjoyed this one. You yes. know, it's, it's, it's weird reading and rereading Watchmen in this format because I'm used to reading it in the book. And probably that's what a lot of our viewers have done. And uh, the issues I find, they sort of ebb and flow. I like some better than others. I barely remembered this issue and really enjoyed reading this one. Yeah, man. The, the cover is looks so 50s to me. You know, I know it's, you know, and, and his love of the 50s and EC comics and all that kind of stuff. It really, it really. You know. And this is the height of the Cold War, yeah. which goes back to those 50s. So, uh, you know, not, not weird to reference the 50s for something like that, for a cover that's really showing off that Cold War era. You know, I feel like that's when Hollywood and films and photography really got into it. So it makes sense that we would see that aesthetic here. And because this is our 10th episode, and I'll say it just because we'll get 5,000 comments mentioning it if we don't. Yes, we see the smiley face. <laughs> right, yeah. Thanks, Ed. And Try to save us some... Uh, oh, I know it. <laughs> like, the the big, um, you know, reference is, like, you know, Dr. Strangelove, like, whenever you see these kind of things. But I also realized reading it this time around is this comes out after War Games, which was, you know, really popularized, like, the phrase, you know, DEFCON 1, oh, you absolutely. know. Absolutely. The nuclear football is the shape yes. of a football. <laughs> And we've gotten into, uh, you know, they, they, this is a hit, right? They figured out how to uh, use lyrics now in here, yeah, so right. we're gonna we're gonna get the Bob Dylan lyrics yeah. that, that were denied in the first issue. Two writers Bob. were approaching, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we and we see you know many examples of that. So here we have Nixon and, and his boys. Yeah, rolling in on Air Force One with your uh, football head in question strapped to his wrist. Yeah, man. Like, and this is how we always imagine it, you know, like in the text and stuff. And this is the good stuff, too. Like, 
he's got his like left hand guy trying to talk him out of like uh the bad bomber stuff then you got g gordon liddy <laughs> like trying to talk him into doing some crazy scary stuff liddy was a guest on howard stern show you yes. remember that yeah and, and yeah. he was talking about all the weird like assassinations and stuff right. like just like it was for fun putting poison tylenols in, in people's in people's houses just so that they would he called it he called it tylenol russian roulette and you put a poison tylenol in there and know that there'll be or whatever the prescription is that it has a 30-day lapse you don't know when, but they're going to be dead in 30 days. And and that G. Gordon Liddy was in like a previous issue too, uh, uh, congratulating uh, the comedian on uh, the Kennedy assassination. Um, and and I'm guessing this is supposed to be Kissinger. I mean, everybody's like a little bit older than than how you would normally see them because you know he wasn't president. Uh, kids in the audience, he, uh, Nixon wasn't president in the 80s. This was an alternate universe. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty horrific. Now, like I feel like I've listened to enough podcasts about near problems with nuclear launches oh, yeah. and, and how that process works. You go through reading this stuff and man, it's not reassuring for <laughs> modern times. There's also this great little bit, like he has no idea where Pat Nixon is. He says, oh yeah, yeah, she's fine, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she's in an undisclosed location. There's more, two more riders. Yes. I love the atmosphere. This is such a great trick. And I feel like since we started doing these Watchmen looks and looking at Dave Gibbons this way, I've been employing more of this like soupy atmosphere stuff to just sell you on depth more, create another level of things that are close that you could push behind. Yeah, definitely another. put 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 that thing in the for extreme foreground. Great way to get that depth going. Um, this is such a polluted looking river. Oh, it yeah. feels like it's perfect. Uh, again, every issue we compliment Higgins. I'll do it here right now. I love all the greens yeah, and purples and stuff. I think it looks amazing. I've also noted in the past, like, Gibbon's art to me at times looks more Gil Kane than Gil Kane. Here I'm going to say a little bit of Joe Kubert and some of the inking and the muck here, some of the marks. Um, now, you know, when, when, um, whenever Night Owl and Rorschach get together and they're in that owl ship and they're on the docks and in the, it goes into, like, super Ditko mode. Yeah. Like, this is so Ditko here. Nice portly Night Owl, man. Uh, you can't can't often find a, a cartoonist that can, that can that can do that mid Carter. It's dad really bod. great. Uh, this is just a weird nothing, but it's interesting to me how where his legs crop are basically Rorschach's crop. So it's almost like his legs are walking away. This is one of the great Alan Mooreisms, man. Just hang on by fingernails and never look down as he's hanging by his fingernails and at a very great height as he enters the uh, bedroom. And this mirrors that same like pose from like issue one right. when he's climbing in in full costume into the comedian's apartment. Yeah, absolutely. Pulling out his reserve uh, outfit or costume, I guess, as it were, and uh, has an altercation with his landlady who, of course, said bad things about him in the press once he was arrested but uh, backs off whenever he sees the poor the poor kids that are, you know, stuck with her. I mean, right here, he sees himself in that yeah. little dude. Like, that's exactly what we're getting right there. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a nice moment because you really see him change gears, you know, and that's not easy to show those kind of things, I think, in a oh, comic. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel like Alan Moore is, like, um, playing on his own biographical experience of, like, running into somebody who wrote a bad review of one of his comics. <laughs> you said some unflattering things about me in the press. <laughs> um, and then we echo, like, this is a real, all those, like, little transitions. This is a real interesting one of, like, the kids with her hand on her mom's shoulder, you know, to, you know, Bubastis, the, the lynx. 
Yeah, that is a really great transition. Something I think Moore was more interested in at this time as yeah. a writer, and, and you see it in the How to Write Comics uh, whole chapter book, about book it by him. So you see that here. I think the contrast too, and some credit to Higgins for like going very different in terms of saturation Absolutely. as we cut to a different place, but also Dave Gibbons in terms of the symmetry and the cleanliness of these. You know, it's yeah. almost cold. Taking the black off the page, a lot of a lot of shadow. Uh, you know, dim light in in the Rorschach bit. Now we're in Xanadu. Yeah, this is like sort of like poverty, sadness, desperation. And then the, this is like the 1%, you know, living on the top of the world. You know? Right. And, and like, you know, reviewing this in, you know, COVID times, like when we flip the script, unless there's something on this page you want to talk about, where he's like, you know, I need concentrated information. And he's like looking at stuff, thinking about like what he's going to invest in. Yeah. I know a lot of people that made a lot of money over this past year with the the very simple idea of like what do people need in a pinch and uh let me invest in those things that's essentially what he's doing right here well ed like that's a great point he's talking about like i see imagery of oiled muscle men firing machine guns and uh cartoon teddy bears with hearts on so uh everyone's um retreating into infantile infantile thing because of uh fear about about response wanting to run away from responsibility and i'm like man like you're you're calling us all out now you, you, know? can, now you can't buy a copy of contra for less than a hundred dollars i was on heritage auction and saw like you know like a sealed copy of like the avengers nes game like in with all those like you know marvel original art pages and stuff yeah, it's a great scene. And again, like what makes this work great is how well it reads now. Yeah. yeah. You know, 35 years later, I mean, we have these characters that we hear, mm -hmm. you know, that, that make news and uh, are maybe controversial, but exist and certainly influence policy in, in our lives and culture and stuff. And it's, man, it's it's a pretty good uh, archetype for that. So. Yeah. Like back then it was, it was like the 1980, like Gordon Gecko types and stuff. And, and before that, it's like people profiteering off of war and and shit, and, and now it's like we have profiteering off of uh, pandemics. And it's like, it, and it's like, you know, put, put up all my uh, Instagram uh, accounts at one time so I can see. I was going to say, if you go a little bit less literal, it's any one of us sitting at home in front yeah. of our screens yeah. with access to every screen ever, and just uh, you know, formulating crazy ideas and plots, and, and thinking we can put it together with these pieces. I can, I can see this puzzle. J Jim, you are Ozymandias. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't say that. <laughs> I don't want to be any of these characters. Uh, man, the owl ship is just yeah, eye candy. Love it. Like, like Gibbons designed this ship for me. Yeah, this Every is, time I see it, I love it. This is like the aspect of Watchmen that is kind of like the most copied. Like where you, it's like, oh, this is a really cool, you know, badass, uh, you know, superhero with a cool ship. You know, I have Sorry. no idea how popular like UFO stories and uh, UFOs in water were in the 80s when this is coming together. But I mean, that's a really common UFO element of UFO sightings today is how much they come in and out of water. And like it, it's a you know, it's the perfect shape. But I have no idea if that's something that's on the radar of either of those guys or not you know, at this time. I mean, Alan Moore's talking about seeing snake gods and stuff. It, it surprised me. <laughs> That's true. I love this moment. This is uh, like a moment of friendship, right? This is probably one of the, again, one of the few moments of Rorschach. We saw it a couple pages ago where he, he connects to that kid and backs off. There's a moment here where he recognizes a friendship with Night Owl. And it's kind of great. It's the human moment of Rorschach, which in a way I hate because I think Rorschach's a scumbag and we shouldn't glorify him. 
but it's a great human moment of him. It's 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 what makes a comic like this, what elevates it from your typical superhero comic is the complexity of these characters. And it's a moment like this that makes Rorschach complex. And it's what you do before you vaporize the guy. True. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, and even in this moment of like, I don't know, sentimentality or whatever, you know, he's got to, you know, follow it up with a joke, you know, about like <laughs> how the guy won't let go of the handshake. Yes. You know, there's a beat there. He's definitely creepy. See, another example of that soupy atmosphere, like before, like in front of and behind the buoy mm -hmm. it's awesome and the great color which reflects the uh, black freighter comic book that we were yeah, watching yeah. like the same color scheme now for them it's almost like it's bleeding into their world and that just looks like mud that they're coming out of totally you never see anybody use like you have access this, to me the yellow with the black in it that's like kamiko coloring like when kamiko was like Marvel and DC, they only have 64 colors. We have 128 colors. <laughs> and then when you look at their color guide, it's like, yeah, well, all those colors have black in it and it looks like diarrhea, but it works perfectly for this scenario. That little bit of like uh, turquoise blue that they put in there just to make that uh -huh. orange pop. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really subtle. And we get some of the, the Black Freighter and a disturbing chapter of the Black Freighter yeah, it's story. It's culminating he's, he's, here. He's, yeah. he's around the bend. He's made it home where uh, he, he believes pirates have seized on his colony and his true love and has just killed them all. And whenever he sees a couple of those uh, colonists, it's like they must be work they, they must be in cahoots with the pirates. Two, two riders, by the way. Yes, once again, and uh, and kills them and yes. describes how they both die. This is um, like like a theme that Moore returns to again and again, the idea of somebody who has created their own personal narrative where they're a hero. And they're going to save the world and they're going to get the bad guys and it makes them do something completely unhinged and like cause all kinds of destruction in you know be, because they're living out this uh self-inflating fantasy it's also cool what he's doing where the captions from the comics are now overlapping the real life mm -hmm. the blurring of that fantasy versus reality and i mean for us reading it it's a hundred percent right because like we cut from comic book to fake news uh headline here I love that layering. That's a pretty good, uh, pretty good technique. Two Jehovah's Witnesses riding, approaching. Do we think he's gone overboard with the two <laughs> riders? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Another fun color choice. You know if this is recolored, and I guess there is a recolored one. I bet those two figures are not red standing in the middle of the panel. Yeah, I, I bet they're brown. <laughs> uh, Another fun scene where they switch kind of roles a little bit. Rorschach is looking for information. They want to know who, who tried to kill Ozymandias. And, uh, you know, they're going to these underworld bars and he's torturing it out of people. Um, everybody sells him out, by the way, like this panel where they're all looking at him whenever he's like, all right, he, he, he did this. And everybody just stares at him. It's a good call back yeah. because, uh, you know, these people, they know Rorschach now. Absolutely. But uh, the flip is Dan, Night Owl, losing his shit whenever he finds out about Hollis and that this guy might know something or be involved in it, and Rorschach has to pull him off. And now we're getting, like, the larger conspiracy. You start to, like, figure out the shape of this, like, larger conspiracy that was mainly shadowy stuff in the background. Yeah, like, when you start seeing the pyramid and stuff, and also just the, the color. I mean, we, we saw versions of that just at that Xanadu. You know, this pyramid thing, all the Egyptian motifs and stuff, this is like a, like a death barge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, call back to the Black Freighter comic. You know, yeah. we've been watching horror on the high seas in comic form. We're going to see a little bit more. But I love the green water of the ocean at night. I always think, Ed, whenever you say, you know, don't color the sky blue, 
I feel like same thing with water. Like just don't don't do the local color choice. Figure out something else that works. Because it definitely sets a mood having that kind of green and, and secondary lighting. But as our barge of artists and intellectuals floats back to civilization after working on their mystery project, we see that blow up. The uh, Hitchcock Truffaut shows the bomb. <laughs> Jim, is this what, uh, why they haven't announced your mystery project yet? They're going to like kill everybody involved first. <laughs> <laughs> Curse you, Tom. <laughs> um, I like how they show the bomb, too, because they're, these two have snuck off to uh, get a little... A little uh, Peggy, loving Peggy. under the deck and he sees the bomb and she does not and she's just excited to be with this guy she loves and he's like uh she's like what's wrong he says nothing nothing's wrong yeah he chooses not to tell her and kind of a moment of tenderness there which again i'm impressed anytime this kind of things are expressed in a comic book especially a superhero comic book and a little piece of her drawing gets washed up on the shore all right so checking out uh checking out ozymandias's office uh, try to find clues, what they missed. Yeah, this is like the exposition part. And, and like the first time reading Watchmen, I'm like, oh, cool, we're going to figure out what's going on. And then having read it a bunch of times, this this part kind of checked out a little bit, you know, reading it. You know, this is perfunctory. I mean, like, it's a necessary step the story has to take, you know, but not not the most exciting to me, at least. I think it's cool, the link that Moore makes with uh, Egyptian pharaohs and religions and gods connected to like modern day superheroes i feel like that's mm -hmm. a very deliberate choice and kind of makes sense and not not original either i mean like kirby would link gods and superheroes of course uh the ship once again coming up thank you dave gibbons for making these panels for me i enjoy them great perspective they've made their connection now rorschach finishes up his journal drops it off uh very wordy here at the end you know maybe he sees the end as in sight and gets Signing a little off. uh little a little sensitive there, a little sentimental as he's signing it off. Yeah, with this cool signature. <laughs> Colored wrong. You know, the RR signature color. Right, yeah, they're co coloring it as if it's a sign on this wall. You know? Yeah, somebody wheat-pasted Rorschach symbol next to the next to the Fallout Shelter sign. Oh, that's what Dave Gibbons was like, you know what, Higgins? <laughs> gonna, have to, gonna have to recolor this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the, the reason. <laughs> uh, and, and here we're getting some signature Watchmen stuff where we're like now intercutting the the black freighter panel by panel with the stuff that's really happening and uh, flip-flopping the the comic book narration and the real life narration playing with care one going from one character to uh the next character comes up gives him his mail and now we're following that next character i feel like that's a very cinematic thing yeah it's cool and he's delivering mail to this right-wing uh conspiracy newspaper yeah the new frontiersman and that's the uh, the Rorschach journal being delivered there. Put it on a slush pile. And and we that saw, they're planning to destroy. That they announced they're planning to destroy. We saw a, an excerpt of it in like a previous issue's back matter, and it's just like a straight up like racist uh, th thing. To, so this is uh, uh, Rorschach's favorite magazine, right? <laughs> and we're back to Rorschach being a scumbag. Yeah, he's he's yeah. He's, I mean, he's gone to that uh, news vendor several times, like like looking for like the new new issue and stuff. So it's you know, well-established as being a kook. Amazing coloring choices yeah. here. This is the first time we're seeing this pure blue, this issue, maybe this comic book. I yeah. mean, there's so many secondary colors throughout this comic. So we get here, and what is it? It's cold. You know, the ship is going to crash, the engines are failing with ice, but it's just like, it's all in the color. In this panel, great drawing from Dave Gibbons that doesn't look like Dave Gibbons. Like, it looks like a different, he's using some different... Like Hergé or somebody. Yeah. 
very clean. Yeah, line. like Peter Max. You know, it, it feels like something else, and I really like it. Guy Peeler. It really, yeah, that, totally. that makes sense. Great panel of the uh, the diving, failing owl ship. I, I feel like they stole this for uh, the Force Awakens when the Millennium Falcon lands in the snow. Could be. <laughs> That's pretty good though for movement of the ship, just barely clearing the cliff. You know, being able to animate something that is an oval. I've said it four times already this episode, but I mean, like, that shit's impossible to draw. Yeah. Uh, DC Comics, Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons. Fucking shame there's not a thousand Watchmen comics, you know, by, by that team. How, yeah, I mean, how could they have possibly done that, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't keep a writer on your, uh, you know, in, in your publishing house, would you? Just because they produce something extraordinary? Hey, man, writers don't sell underoos. Little <laughs> Superman symbols do. And here's where we get the, uh, the the Night Owl Watchmen. This is where we can curse Dave Gibbons for running Alan Moore off. Got to put him in the snow in the snow owl costume. Yeah, and this is like when you get the uh, Arctic Batman totally. action figure. One hundred percent. Yeah, pure white Batman action figure, and it says Dark Knight on the on the, <laughs> on the cardboard box. Man, if night, yeah, if you can make Night Owl look any cooler, that's pretty good. The the, the snow costume, it's, having it's that ready funny, to go. Man. It is yeah. very funny. <laughs> it's so silly. It looks awesome though, like on the monitor where you just see the little whites of the eyes. Well, freaking out. Uh, Moon Knight. He, he's wearing Nana's fur coat, you know. <laughs> Boy, those our two Moon Knight fans are going to be mad at that. Right? <laughs> you mean that too? Yes, Moon that's fans. what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all the pieces basically in place, right? I mean, all we're waiting for now is Doctor Manhattan and uh, Doctor Manhattan to show up. But certainly, we are getting the pieces aligned for the big finale. Oh, yeah, man. Great final panel, and I love how, um, you know, the colors kind of, you know, you know, they go into a different mode or something. I'm doing my best not to look ahead, but I do remember the part where he's like, I wouldn't have told you my whole my whole plan if it didn't already happen. It happened 30, 30 minutes ago. And I wonder if it's the last panel of that issue. I don't, I don't quite remember. You know, it's funny, reading this, I was like, <clears throat> you know, I know Watchmen pretty well, and I'm like, Oh, is this the episode where everything blows up? You know, is this the issue where everything blows up? And it's like, no, it is like, you know, but he really saves it for the next to last issue. You know, you can't have like everything blow up and then be like, oh, we got a couple more issues to go, folks. You know, man, the toy layouts talk about dooming yourself. Like, <laughs> you can't do this and not expect it to happen. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, Moore is a magician. Like, he knows that. Yes, like, right. he had to know that picture shows up, it's manifested. Like, that's a reality just, just waiting to happen. Super so, fun, man. Watchmen number 10, uh, pretty good issue, I think. You know, like, I feel like our momentum yeah. is building now. I'm, I'm very excited for the next one. I mean, when we complete the whole saga, I'm going to stitch a video together with it all. That's going to be an epic vid, man. Yeah, I'll go from saying five times how impressive it is what they do here to saying it like 65. Yep. I don't know if you guys read the the back matter in this, but when he's talking about the toy stuff, it is he's like, um, you know, we got a problem here. We got to come up with some bad guys. We got we got too many heroes. We got to come up with some bad guys. We can't use real life bad guys. That's distasteful. So we got to come up with some you know made up terrorist team. It's you know like basically the conversations that were coming up with like GI Joe, and uh, <laughs> you know, and, and probably like superpowers when they were turning this the. Uh, Justice League into toys around this time of like, where do we go for villains? All the villains at DC suck. And it's like, oh, well, how about those Jack Kirby villains? We'll, we'll roll those guys out. Yeah, kind of kind of fun, fun notes. Mm -hmm. A lot of this back matter, pretty uh, inspired. But we are here today, Ed, 
to do Watchmen number 11. We're getting near the end, and uh, our cover starts in Antarctica. The penultimate issue, right? It is, and it makes me think, like, there's so much Antarctica uh, conspiracy theory stuff. It feels like this is the perfect place to put the uh, the mastermind, the, the, the evil villain of Watchmen, give him his headquarters at the South Pole. Yeah, he describes it like, you know, Ozymandias in the story. It's like he needs a neutral position to, to watch the world's events, like, play out. So, of course, why not choose one of the pools? And the North Pole... You associate that with Santa Claus. That's less sexy, man. South, South Pole, far, far more mysterious. What I like about this issue, I like this issue a lot. Uh, what it is, you know, they said it couldn't be done. Uh, but you have an entire issue's worth of the supervillain monologue. The, 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 <laughs> That's right. The thing That's that exactly you've what it is. heard in comics, or I guess like cheap pulp pop fiction from the beginning. The guy ties the girl up to the train tracks now you have to buy some time for the for the hero to release her so you need the soliloquy from the supervillain we've seen it a zillion times but the way alan moore handles it is so freaking dope the first time i read it it gave me chills at the end yeah it's uh, a nice re moment. reading it this last time gave me chills because it's it's alan moore spitting in the face of all that stuff he's 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 telling the reader and showing the reader I'm going to do the thing that you've seen a million times. And with one sentence, I fully change it. I fully flip the script on everything you've ever read that you could compare to my supervillain soliloquy. Yeah, it's kind of a brilliant twist on, the, uh, on that classic. And, uh, you know, as you say, start in Antarctica, we see the snow, the white. It's interesting because, like, it's kind of a desolate... Horrible cover, right? Life is being blotted out, literally just erased around it. But also, it's probably the most colorful the of most the vibrant. Watchmen uh, covers. Absolutely, the most vibrant for sure. And what we're seeing is this dome where he's got like tropical, you know, a tropical climate in here with butterflies and other life living, you know, rare birds and things that he's somehow cultivated to, uh, you know, show off his intelligence. Perfect for a madman, a, a brilliant madman villain's lair. It's like the Phipps Conservatory in <laughs> yes. January, man. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of text uh, as he's monologuing some of these plans felt like a weird timing thing as I was reading it because we'll have sequences with very little text in this same issue but then just loaded in that like that especially that first page and uh, it calls to mind like from hell whenever Gaul is traveling around London and pointing things out and uh, you know the Mason's plans for the London layout very uh, that, that's what I was getting echoes of so almost like this is your trial run for something he would do again in from hell a couple years later somebody who would it's a good character thing be, because somebody who would be so kind of narcissistic and egotistical to think that they have the answer to all the world's problems he's not even talking to a human being man he's recording his brilliance right. for posterity and he's talking to Bubastis <laughs> yes. uh, so this guy like he's around the bend as, as grandma Piscor would say and uh, that's an illustration of it. And we're going to see a lot of it throughout. Like, this is a dude, he's far off, like, he's, he's in his own world. And you could suggest that uh, Nikolai Tesla was in his own world or... Uh, Elon Musk. Any of these guys, <laughs> right. man, uh, are, are in their own world. But you also can't deny their brilliance. Yeah, exactly. And you can't deny Dave Gibbons' brilliance as we see him sitting with his wall of monitors and the reflections on the floor. Just really like that. We've seen the gritty uh, street corners in this in this comic a lot. And whenever you cut to like the polished, uh, you know, headquarters of this supervillain, 
uh, it's a very different tone and te texture. Will when we see the uh, yeah, like the next, you flip the page or whatever. Uh, and as always, got to call out the, uh, the, snow, the, the owl snow owl figure. <laughs> just, just love it. But you know what? If you like, this is the most brilliant uh, blues, the the most brilliant, cool colors we've seen in this entire book. Yes. You know, they, it's like they, if storytelling is color uh, or color as storytelling, they saved these these blues up because they knew they were going to be doing some work in Antarctica or something. Because you, like, th when the city palette is that subdued mid-range color uh you don't get you don't get the primaries man we're gonna see some cool stuff with color just in this issue too because we're gonna go from these cools into into his like tropical lair yeah that then gets wiped back out it's almost like the ultimate contrast of like this is life and we're snuffing it out right. back to those cool dead you know antarctic color palette uh pretty strong stuff good precursor image right there because like as i was uh reading this I, I started getting insecure and was like, oh man, that painting is something, but I, I don't know what that is that I'm looking at right there. We get into it. It's about Alexander the Great and everything. Now, the recording stuff that he's doing, when you see this panel and you see that uh, that, that tape cassette mm -hmm. is like the nuclear fallout trefoil thing. Probably just an accident, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but it, it's like the whole recording piece was just so that we could get to this point to show that off. Yeah. Yeah, and it's perpendicular, like the order of this whole where he's sitting, everything's straight and, and uh, perpendicular to each other. It's so ordered, like the doors, you know, to get that head on of the nuclear sign on the recording device. It's it's good stuff, man. It's uh, it's our biggest shot of Ozymandias as character, you know, like like this piece. We saw him earlier in the series, but it wasn't really him in his glory. Yeah. Like, this is it. This is full on him. A part of it is like... Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, the whole idea of Raskolnikov is like, when is it okay to, to kill somebody for the greater good? You know, that's that's built into this. That makes sense, right? Sure. That, that feels like uh, perfect fodder for Alan Moore thinking about this. Get so many back shots in this issue. Like, I'm going to take a look at the title. You can say what you got to say. But, like, I just wonder if that uh, look on my works, you mighty, is the, is the title of this. But you're going to see, like, so many back shots, and there will be pages when he's... Ozymandias is getting deeper into his own origins, where you'll see these like back silhouettes. So that's so interesting. I didn't notice that at all. And now that you're saying it, even even where he's not totally turned, he's turned from the reader. Yeah. Like in this panel, um, weird. I don't know what that's saying. That's 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 really. Uh, hmm. I wish I had noticed that earlier in the week so I could have pondered it coming into this. You're gonna see a real cool uh, Ozymandias one because it'll be like backshot, 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 backshot. So it's like this like cross, and and the backs are. Um, in silhouette. And we are seeing, you know, contrast with that New York newsstand corner, uh, you know, that corner newsstand that we've spent so much time at, and the comic book, the Black Freighter comic book yeah. that's been being read. We're going to kind of reach, you know, a lot of conclusions in this issue. Yeah, this is where we're the sort of payoff. If you've been reading the, the comic, I know that a lot of people, they see this shape of caption box and they're like, I don't got, I don't need to read that, that thing. I felt that way my first, like the first time I read this, you know, that, that stuff didn't, I was like, what is this? Yeah, it was the, so hard for me to go back and forth. Yeah. The first 10 times, you know, like, <laughs> right. Like uh, first million times reading. This. A good example of that lush color that I'm talking about that we're going to, uh, we're going to snuff it out in this plan, right? We're going to kill millions of souls. Let's, uh, 
not. Let's see it on a local level. This is that uh, that nine perfect stranger show. That's Nicole Kidman and all of her like little minions that are on board. <laughs> they're they're so confused. A, they're drinking a Kool Aid. What are we literally. celebrating? He's like, well, a life like mine, we could celebrate almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> Here's that page. Silhouette, 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 silhouette. As he's as he's growing, you know, you gotta you have your Bruce Wayne origin. So what's the rich boy going to do? He's getting rid of all of his stuff. He's going Buddhist. Uh, but you know, it's an interesting page composition. Yeah, it's definitely noteworthy. And again, I'm, I'm I feel bad I missed that on my own reading because the, it's such an unusual choice. Like clearly, it's a deliberate choice. Yeah, yeah, and it just it's all about observation or something. Just paying attention to the surroundings. When, when we're following his point of view, when it's him, like it's his story. But when we see these back shots and stuff of the city, it's just like it's it's characters that we've built for 10 issues we're going to get them all in the same place mm -hmm. right now and they're also going to be observing one another and interacting with one another uh the interlocutor the 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 Oatu, the watcher <laughs> is the news agent and uh and man he, he reminds me of uh, some dudes in my family <laughs> the watcher is a good one to uh to call comparison to you know i wonder if by seeing the backs of him if it's a way for us to identify with what he's doing right because as i read this like you know obviously he's cast as the villain in this series but i think you can look at this and pretty clearly go yeah he's he's creating world peace in a comic that is really built about world war three being right on the brink of world war three like as bad as we want to make him out to be uh, this is kind of what politicians do, right? Yeah. Uh, at least we hope this is what they're doing, you know, trying to, to, to maybe uh, the greater good, you know, keep the greater good in mind as they make their deals. And if his plan works, like that's what he's what he's aiming for here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like I said, that's that's the sort of theme in uh, in, in crime and punishment. And there will be people who it's a it's a it's a. It's one of those ponderous philosophical thought exercises that uh, a lot of people think that they have an answer to. And it's like, well, yeah, well, philosophers and and very, very smart people have talked about these issues over and over and over again to zero conclusions. So I don't you know, I don't know where you exist on that on that spectrum. It calls to mind. Uh... I heard some podcast and it was about athletes and how like these really high level athletes, they sort of have to perceive reality a little differently. You know, that, that cornerback who's lost a step, he, he, he's unable to even acknowledge it. And that's what allowed him to thrive, you know, in his prime is that he could get beat on a play and just put it out of his out of his mind. And I think they have more white matter or something in their brain. Um, there's a similar thing here, you know, where you're casting yourself as a hero, even though you're in the process of killing millions of people. And uh, pretty subtle the way his his minions here all die. You know, it's not it's not spelled out. It's just if, as you watch them, there's less and less mo movement. We're going to see this guy over and over again in this kind of frozen position, uh, you know, butterfly landing on his face. Um, you know, it's kind of this. It's never spelled out, but clearly he's he's poisoned them and, and they're dead there. And and it's another great character moment because he's still so in love with himself and uh, believes in himself so wholeheartedly that he's now, you know, he talked to living beings for what maybe five minutes uh, when he's giving his soliloquy, and and now he's uh, literally just listening to his own voice. Yeah, and tying up the loose ends. And, There'll be no living witnesses to what he's got planned. And uh, things eventually get pretty spelled out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. by this point, it's pretty clear this guy's not coming out of it. Go back one real quick, because there's like a real fun, subtle uh, thing as he opens up his little 
aviary or whatever it is, man, you just see that little crack open right there, and you see the the wind and the snow just slowly starting to calls to mind the uh, the igloo here in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that still open? I, I don't think it's, it's it open in my life. Exist anymore, right? Didn't they tear it down when they built the new? I'm so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think all those all those gigantic stadiums that were supposed to have open roofs. I think they never really worked. It was just too too big of a too big of an ask that you would open transformer. this. Right. But uh, you know, destroying destroying any sign of this brilliance, and I felt kind of bad with all like the exotic life that he had in there. Man, that's a lot of shit that's just dying real quick. I mean, you feel it. Like, and, and once again, storytelling in color. You know, shouts to John Higgins for for really adding some flourish to, to just sell us on a desiccation. Yeah, it does not take long for those flowers to wilt under the uh, under the weight of the snow and the cold. And again, cross-cutting back to our Black Freighter comic and uh, New York City here. And more of those back shots, Ed. Yeah. That's so interesting. Even our, our Black Freighter character is swimming, you know, our hero is swimming out to meet the Black Freighter, so we see him from behind. Uh, even when he's not in the panel, just his hands, it's still a behind shot as, as he's moving towards this freighter. Yeah. A uh, funny bit of the comic, of course, is that he expected the Black Freighter to be waiting for him to have gotten back to his town first. Uh, the result is that he kills various innocent people in his in his old town. Um, misguided, we'll say this character, was misguided in his attempts to uh, wreak vengeance on the Black Freighter. Might as well be the Black Freighter, man. It, it calls, it calls uh, to mind that, that uh, comedian joke that Rorschach says earlier about Pagliacci the Clown. I am Pagliacci the Clown! <laughs> Uh, he is the Black Freighter. Ozymandias kills lots of people. And um, our psychologist from, or psychiatrist, can't remember which, from Rorschach, his wife and he separated, and uh, this is her looking to, to maybe reconcile, to meet up with him. Yeah, and everybody uses the newsstand, and the newsstand guy knows all. Back to our uh, cool purples and blues in the frozen frozen Antarctica. Is, uh, is our hero's approach, two riders' approach. That snow owl looks good, even from the back. Yes. Man, more of those back shots, and, uh, and he's sneaking in. You know, the other piece with the back shot, I wonder if it's related to time, as we get to the end of this issue and kind of, like, uh, get our Alan Moore twist. Um, if there's something, you know, if there's an inevitability of, of, the, of seeing them from behind, like, this has already happened, they've already passed us. The title, Look on My Works. So it is this, like, observational thing. Like, we're looking on them or something. And I always almost like uh, Night Owl and Rorschach, they're back and forth, you know, talking about being nervous, talking about their plans to, uh, we got to subdue him first, and then we can ask him questions uh, when they get there. Murtaugh and, and uh, Riggs, man. Let's, let's proceed quietly from here. <laughs> Rorschach's had enough. <laughs> man, imagine you're asked to draw this kind of thing, where he's seeing reflections of Rorschach showing up. The entire structure of this, like, fight sequence is... Like, show, show me those Alan Moore script pages, because this, I can imagine if an entire panel description of, like, panel one is two and a half pages, sequencing something like this has to be very verbose. I wonder how intuitive this kind of action thing is, where we have our characters leaning towards our right, and whenever the punch happens, the counter punch, now we have them going back to the left. It's it's so good for like depicting action and keeping this stuff interesting and having your directions all work with you. Yeah. Who's figuring this out? You know, like, do you think that's intuitive on Dave Gibbons part? Alan Moore's a drawer, you know, like he, like he, he knows the score. The best of comic book writers have some facility for drawing. So they, they know 
what's too much of an ask or something. If they can put it in in the thumbnails, you know, it's like your general, like, like, like I will never ask you to do something he wouldn't do himself kind of thing. So if he can fit it, fit it in there, like you have, you have, you know, room to move, but it's like establish the fork as the hands come in, you know, you might not exactly see what's happening, but there's a move being pulled right there. You see the fork jabbing down on that coat while he punches him in the, in the jibs. Man, and it's hands the whole way, you know, even before the, that center panel establishing it, like we've got the hand and fork, the hands and Rorschach's hands in the foreground. Heck of a storyteller, man. Really is. And those directions continue, you know, Ozymandias leaning towards our left, hitting Night Owl, leaning towards our right, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very basic. And then you get your establishing shot of like, it's so clear where every, the space and where everyone is. It's choreography. It's choreography to very specific ends. And you got one dad bod superhero guy. <laughs> you have one unhinged maniac. And they have these designs on stopping the world's smartest guy. Uh, who basically has never retired, never never lost a step, never gotten out of shape. You know, you know, r r there is a term rich and thin. Like he, he's... Ozzy Medias could uh, afford a personal trainer, you know what I'm saying, man? He, he stayed in shape and freaking subdued these dudes in two seconds. Like, because there's no dialogue in this, you could imagine all of that is like some John Woo two-second Hong Kong movie shot, you know? And uh, let's give Rorschach another, uh, a little more credit, right? He's not done yet. <laughs> uh, and this is more of the monologuing. This is really tracing how this plan came together. Some fun stuff with uh, the comedian. And um, we're, we're answering all the questions, basically. Like, like, why did comedian have to die? Like, he showed up to, to this island where I'm amassing these scientists and thinkers and artists and stuff. Twisting the mask, yeah. threatening Rorschach's identity. That's uh, that's Lucha Libre wrestling moves right there, man. Right. Start start pulling the masks off. This is classic stuff. Yeah, and you see Moloch, how Moloch is involved. You see how uh, Doctor Manhattan needs to be dispatched. Like like uh, he took his took his mind out of the game with the cancer stuff. Took took him out of the game physically, sending him to Mars with the cuckold gimmicks. Uh, what else? I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot. Like, we're answering so many questions here, and we're tying up a lot of loose ends with these peripheral characters, all uh, to very specific ends. The end of the world, that is. The, the one part about, you know, that, like, the whole thing with the alien, and I guess we'll probably talk about it more in the next issue or whatever, but the whole idea is that we're going to fake this, this alien invasion, and it's going to bring the world together and all this. So, like, that could happen for, like, one second, right? Until, until like, somebody goes up to the alien with some apparatus and it's like, this is like paper mache. Yeah, that was kind of my thinking on it, too. Um, I think it's just that thing. You just got to suspend that, that piece. Right. And, and they do say something about, like, a, like, human clone something in the brain matter, you know? So I think he tries to throw in enough to be like, that part works. We're going to fool that part. Put in some... Uh... Some of the stuff they like, like in, in Cronenberg like scanners, like you gotta fill the, 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 the water. The special effects, up. like uh, we went to the butcher shop and got that bucket <laughs> on the floor for uh, for some of these effects for the alien. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really good line, and I don't know if we missed it, but it's about how the comedian, you know, what all great comedians do, and and it and it changes the way Ozymandias sees the world. Uh, you know, the comedian's joke, 
and I, I was hoping to find that, but uh, I think we may have passed it already. But it's a it's kind of a cool line, and it puts that character, the comedian, in a uh, in a broader context as to you know what, how do comedians function in society and their critique of society. Kind of kind of fun. Little connection made between our newsstand dealer and our uh, our comic book reader. Shouts to Warren Bernard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and you see the fighting going on in the background. This is another one of those like the great depth kind of scenes. I swear you can find like Orson Welles shots that are exactly this, yeah. where you know your foreground action is literally framing some kind of piece in the background like that. And everybody converging as to uh, how do they respond to seeing violence happening. Totally, and he even. Uh you know bernard the news vendor guy was talking to to the psychiatrist's wife and is like well maybe your husband is talking to that black guy that sells watches down the down the way we get a glimpse of that dude yes you know pages later yeah uh the policeman from page one yes gotta get them all in there man i see like so much of that stuff that we've read in the comic it felt like, uh, like, like, sort of, what is this? You know, I, I want more superhero action. Like, this is why. Like, if you're going to kill half of New York, establish a couple freaking people. Yeah, and especially the, uh, the non-superhero people. The, the non-superhero non people, yeah, exactly. Like, the, the citizens of New York, the people who are going to be dying in this alien explosion. That's happening at, like, Madison Square Garden right there. You know, like, the news vendors on the corner there. This is so great, too. Like, the comedian is just beside himself whenever he realizes what's going on here. And uh, it's described as, imagine the perfect fighting man discovering a plot to put an end to war, an end to fighting. It's a great characterization for this for, for a comedian and, you know, being a military guy. The, the movie that's playing in the matinee, The Day the Earth Stood, stood Still. You know, when, when, uh, when, when COVID first ha happened and there was... Nobody talks about it anymore, man. And it's like we all just put it out of our mind. But for for like one month before everybody, like the worst of everybody came out last year, we all collectively, the world shut down and we were all in fear trying to figure out what the fuck is happening in 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 this world we were all the same and it made me think of watchmen like like you don't have to like come up with some kludgy alien thing it's like introduce a weird pandemic or something that is completely new and just freaks everybody out because like we sort of lived it and we were all in solidarity for like 25 30 days it was the second that people started getting let out the house again in a small way that everybody started wiling out And this is the Fortress of Solitude, man. This is KLL. This is Superman. And and there's that Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons annual that that they did. And KLL is even like wearing that kind of headpiece. So we just passed like the trophy room and all that sh all that shit. Yeah, it's a good callback for sure. Any longtime comic reader, I feel like you know it's inevitable that you make that connection on some level. Yeah. Which is part of what makes Watchmen so good and timeless is being able to have you know reference to those the history of superheroes sprinkled throughout, um, and uh, so we get to finally Dan Dryberg coming up with like, well, when were you planning to do this? I'm glad we're here. We could stop you before things get out of hand too much. When was this hopeless black fantasy supposed to happen? And uh, your big twist, Dad. Yeah, uh, and and he and. 
Alan Moore calls it out specifically. I'm not a Republic serial villain. The bad guys, the mad scientist, and, and Dick Tracy, Crimson Ghost, all that stuff. You seriously think I'd explain my masterstroke if there remained the slightest chance of you affecting its outcome? I did it 35 minutes ago as the doomsday clock is almost at freaking midnight, man. How good is the expression on Night Owl's face? The silence of that revelation. panel? This is... This is the longest si like you could just imagine them for ten minutes. Oh, fuck! It's amazing. It's the greatest like because we had just this voluminous monologue for for twenty six pages, and then these guys are just like, fuck! It really takes advantage of that nine panel grid. You know, like let's open it up. Let's make this just forever. And it's Eisnerian. You know, you got the clock in there. Uh, the it, perfect cut, right? New York, and let's go back and see New York. Yes, sir. Man, words and pictures working working together here, Ed. All the way, dude. We're gonna turn people into freaking Rorschach blots. We're gonna we're gonna thematically mirror and bookend this issue with that same shape, which is akin to the blood spot on the smiley face. You know, that's the front cover. And the uh, the third uh, the third Bernie, right? Any. You do everything in threes, right? We've got two Bernies at the uh, at the newsstand and Bernie Kriegstein here on the final page. <laughs> I thought you meant Bernie their bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, devastating, man. This is reading this because again, like I read it in trade paperback. You know, the first probably the first time I read this uh, many times since. So reading this like issue by issue and then getting to this page and thinking like, good lord, this is the end of the issue. How bad does it suck if you're reading this in real time and you've got to wait a month and this is your final panel for this issue? What a cliffhanger. Yeah, and just because we will receive the comments, uh, that last issue, it took forever to come out, blah, 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 blah. But then if you listen to Brian Hibbs and any of his talks and stuff, he was a retailer at the time. Like, I don't think he owned a store, but I think he worked in retail, uh, in comic shops. He said that it was like two months late. It wasn't, it, it like skipped a month. He needed an extra month to work on the thing. It wasn't... Dark Knight, which I think the last couple of issues took took a long time to come out or something. It skipped a month, uh, but just people mythologize it uh, as being this like super long delay. Uh, all of that said, still like reading it serially, I feel like if because I've done this a lot, you you're excited for a mini series or something. You get it, you read that issue, and then you realize like just accumulate them, like hold off. Grab them, stack them, read them all together. I like this, uh, like the final moment too, I feel is this a positive glimpse of humanity. Maybe not something you'd expect from Alan Moore, but our newsstand vendor grabs the kid and kind of shields him. Not that it does any good, but uh, it's a nice instinct. Yeah, paternal instinct. And the kid's running to him, man. Like, the, you know, the, the, the kid is welcoming that, that stuff. And they were cold to one another just a page earlier. Yeah. And once again, man, like living through that COVID stuff, I really do feel like we were all sharing in the same fear for like a very small amount of time before it got politicized and and, and all of that. Yeah, small amount of time. Very small. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like Ozymandias is, is achieving world peace for about a day and a half. Yes. But hell of an issue. And uh, you know, kind of a kind of a uh, different different tone, you know, than what we had seen before. And I got a kick out of this one, just seeing like the uh, the different fonts that are available. You know, these are like the Letraset kind of fonts. 
Uh, it's a different time. It's so funny too because it's like the times where they are they are a changing, and that is some antiquated. Yes. Crusty ass. <laughs> that's your that's your seventies, early eighties uh video game future font. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's a nineteen eighty six future font. I love font it as though. Well. I love that font. It, I mean it it easily communicates you know what now I'm trying to figure out like a future kayfabe shirt that we can use this font in some way. You know what would be fascinating? Uh because you and I read that as computer mm -hmm. font or something. What if we show a Gen Z person this and like ask them like like what is that to you? Yeah, because it's so, all the corners are rounded. Like, it's not at all what I would think of as a digital font now. Right. Um, but yeah, right. you're totally, it's shorthand for uh, for digital, for computer, for video game. It would be like like the first LEDs, you know, like the digital watches, digi like the digital wristwatch and stuff would, would have that kind of a shape. I would fake, you know, like I would try to fake this because it would be like all one weight and then you would do like the double line, you know, for parts of it, the part that you're, uh, yeah. that you're making heavy. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's wrong because like the, the G should be like the C, except with an extra piece. But that thick piece, it, it's it sticks out anyhow. That's that's <laughs> we're we're parsing, we're mixing. <laughs> I could have done that for another hour, by the way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Good thing you cut me off. It is cartoonist kayfabe. Yes. Should we get out of here? Yeah. Welcome to cartoonist kayfabe. My name's Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And I'm Dave Gibbons. And we are signing out the year 2021 at the stroke of midnight. Unpacking Watchmen, issue number 12. Every single month of this year, we took a look at an issue of Watchmen. We thought we had to ring out uh, this year in a strong fashion by bringing Uncle Dave Gibbons onto the, onto the show to unpack the ultimate, the final issue of Watchmen. Dave, first off, thank you so much for coming by uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe to do this with us. This is very special. Great. Well, you know, um, I'm very happy to be here. I enjoy all the stuff you guys put on, and I've been dipping in and out of your your reading of Watchmen so far, um, and uh, I found it very interesting. And indeed, on this last issue, um, you know, I, I think it makes a good finale, particularly because I've also pulled out Alan Moore's um, original script. So hopefully, I've got some insight from that 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 I can give you. Uh, and your uh, your watches. So fantastic, man. One of the things leading up to uh, this issue, you know, we have our great Watching the Watchmen book, which we highly recommend to, to anybody in the audience out there. You got to get your hands on this. Like we described it as, you know, sacred tablets, the recipe for, for making a, uh, a masterpiece comic. It's, it's in here, all the extra work that you've done. And we've highlighted this one particular part that is just... <laughs> incredible man i call it the prison calendar yeah where you're like let's let's describe what we're looking at here these are the issues yeah and then this is the amount of pages on this axis here yeah and you uh as you put in a hard day's work by the end of the day you get to put an x and, and rest your head on the pillow yeah it no it was it was kind of um uh, a, a left-leaning line would be penciled that would mean i penciled it and the right leaning line would mean that i'd inked it and that crossed the crossed that that page off i think i started doing this when dc kind of imposed a schedule on us which was different than the one that alan and i had hoped for and it was obvious that time was going to get really really tight uh, and with a huge project like this you know you have to kind of keep keep an overview of it uh, and this was what I came up with um, as an overview. Uh, the, the, the column on the right, which is C, 
uh, is obviously covers because the covers were done separately, uh, you know, and at, at a different time than the bulk of the work. And you can also see on issue 12 that there are some X's which are just kind of hanging out there. That's because issue 12 was a 32 pages of story issue rather than 28 pages of story. So, uh, yeah, so that, that and I used to refer to it as my prison chart. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we've been unpacking old um, comics journal issues, Amazing Heroes, and we've seen some evidence of Watchmen being mentioned all the way back uh, to 1984. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of, like, the start date and the stop date of, of your of your penciling of, of page one or, or or yeah i guess penciling of page one now i know that there's all this extra work that was done prelim in a pre preliminary fashion but i just mm -hmm. wonder if you have some sense about the amount of time it took you to put pencil to paper on the actual comic book wow you know i mean i i i did keep the original envelope that Alan sent me the first script in. So that kind of would have been the, the actual date of me starting to pencil it. And, and obviously, as I outline in the Watching the Watchman book, it wasn't just that I'd get a sheet of paper out for page one and just start drawing on that. I'd plan the whole thing out in thumbnails. Um, and then I'd, you know, go through and lay that whole thing out and then pencil it and then ink it. I mean, it's, it's all described in exhaustive detail in that book. Um, but, you know, Alan and I probably started to talk about it maybe even a year before I actually started to draw. Uh, I remember being at the 1984 Chicago Comic Convention, and that was when I actually went up to Dick Giordano, who's the managing editor of DC, and said, hey, this thing that Alan's working on for you, I'd really like to draw it. So that was the point at which I was told, OK, it's yours. So it really started from then. And in between that date and starting on Watchmen, Alan and I also did a Superman annual, which meant we were in we were having a lot of discussions about that and doing designs and everything for Watchmen in the background while we were working on that. So yeah, 1984 was when the seed was really planted, uh, but it was about a year after that that actually the materials that were finally printed started to come together. When you start drawing pages and you, you're accumulating issues, uh, when where did the bottleneck occur? Like, did you have maybe three issues done before the first issue hits the stands? Yeah, um, you know, as I say, we had a, a schedule from the very beginning, me and Alan, that we worked out to be the time that we could comfortably do the work in. And the interesting thing is that if we kept to that schedule, the last issue of Watchmen would not have been late. It would have it would have come exactly monthly. Uh, and we were a little bit pissed off because it was quite important to us that, you know, not only did we make it as good as we could, but that it was there in the comic book shops on the due date. Uh, and indeed, I got some feedback from comic book store owners who said, you know, how frustrating it is for readers to go in to pick up the latest issue of the comic they're following and it isn't there you know it's it's a very disappointing experience but, and also for the retailers they they can count on a certain day that if that's when the new watchman comes out loads of people are going to be in and they're going to sell loads of other comics as well so they up their orders of everything else when they've got a real what you might call a banker you know um so we we were late we weren't very very late i think people get us confused with that other 
Brit, Brian Boland, who managed, who's a very good friend of mine, but who managed to be like a year late on the final issue of Camelot 3000. I, I believe we slipped a bit on the 11th issue and I believe the 12th issue was about a month late. It may have been a couple of months, but it certainly wasn't very, very late. Um, and as I say, if, if DC hadn't imposed a hurry up schedule on us, we, we would have hit it, you know, bang on target. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the great retailer out on the West Coast, Brian Hibbs, uh, when he's interviewing people, uh, sometimes they'll bring up uh, the, the the lateness of Watchmen, and he mm -hmm. equates it with um, pe people's confusion not with not with uh, Camelot 3000, but with Dark Knight Returns, where the last uh, couple issues of that were 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 pretty late in between, and you know that book coming out the same the same year essentially. Uh, but he's right. yeah he he concurs. He's like. It, it, it was 12 issues of comics that came out in 13 months. Not bad. Yeah. But of course, you do do get to that point when the schedule really starts to bite. You know, the, the pressure is on it on for you to do it quicker. But, you know, when you've spent eight or nine or ten issues carefully doing something, you can't just sacrifice everything just, just to be there in time. And I think ultimately that's not what the readers would want. And, you know, ultimately, when you're looking back on it from a perspective of 30 years away or more, you think, well, I'm really glad that although I worked hard, I didn't get panicked and rush that that final issue. And one thing that's come to light, I mean, rereading this final issue for the purposes of this discussion was how much work there is in there. I couldn't believe the amount of drawing. I mean, I couldn't approach that now. And to think that, you know, I was doing more or less a page of that a day. I, I'm just staggered by my own ability to buckle down and do it. Um, I hope that doesn't sound immodest, but obviously at the time you're kind of in the eye of the hurricane um, and you don't realize till you look back as I am now exactly what you've got, you know? Worth mentioning the, uh, in addition to drawing it is the hand lettering, which, you know, we do a lot of hand lettering here. That can be hours per page. Like that is not a fast task no. to put on top of drawing elaborate comics of this degree. Um, you know, and especially over the course of hundreds of pages, I mean, you're talking about months of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually like doing the hand lettering. I, I don't think Watchmen could have happened as well as it did if I didn't do my own hand lettering, because particularly on the last few issues where it, there are some very text heavy pages, it has to fit. And if you did it in the normal way of just drawing it and then somebody else adds balloons on it, it, it just would have lost that kind of meticulously planned look and you'd have you, you know you'd have been pasting balloons over um important information and stuff like that but i actually really enjoyed doing the lettering because you know when you've been working really hard penciling a whole issue it's really nice to have a, a few days a week maybe where all you do is letter it because that's a much more mechanical repetitive kind of task and it also gives you a chance to look over what you've done and to actually in a way plan as you're looking at it how you're going to ink it um and so although yeah i mean that was kind of a time sink i think it was an integral part of it and i think it actually because it gave me some days kind of rest from the creative burden of it uh, and a chance to overlook everything i think that worked very much to its benefit would you letter the complete issue before beginning penciling and just just have you know paper that was not blank 
Uh, yeah, well, the thing that, that, that I would do is I had a load of pages kind of pre-ruled up into nine panel grids, which I got my wife and my son just to kind of li line, line the gutters in using a template that I'd made that was, that was accurate. And so I'd have a pile of pages with the, with the panel shapes already blue penciled on there. And, that, and I would then look at my thumbnails and I would in light blue pencil kind of redraw the thumbnails onto the big board, only very loosely, only to get a sense of how I was going to co cover the ground. And then I'd know where the balloons were going to be and I'd rule in the lettering lines and I'd actually pencil in the copy, the words and see how that fitted and that might sometimes mean that i'd have to redraw sometimes the picture just to make it fit better so i'd keep everything quite fluid there'd be lightly penciled artwork lightly penciled lettering and then when i got it all balanced i would then ink all the lettering in i'd ink all the balloon shapes in i'd rule up all the panel borders and i would then draw within that bringing the loose pencils up to a bigger finish so uh you know, because it's the it's the breakdown into panels and it's the space that the lettering takes up that you can't violate. You know, that's that is set in stone, but the drawing you can always adjust to to fit better. Looking at the thumbnails and that watching the Watchmen book, uh, mm. they look so close to the final compositions, almost one for one, it feels like. I wonder if you use something like the autograph projector to enlarge your thumbnails and kind of trace off the, the major bits or were you just eyeballing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I did have an autograph projector at that time and, and I've always used whatever technical aids helped help me do the job properly. But I found with this that I, I could really do it freehand because most of the pictures were kind of... Um, manageable in their size and scope you know if you're doing a big splash page where there's a load of action figures and stuff going on it isn't a bad idea to do a really tight thumbnail that you then put in a projector to get all these elements sorted but watchman was a much kind of uh, what shall i say almost a mechanical kind, kind of thing it was it was it, it was more controlled and it was quite formal i think uh, and um, I found that I was able to do it best if I just eyeballed those small little, you know, parts of the of the nine panel grid. I believe actually on this final issue, on the, the scenes at the intersection, the full page pictures, I believe that I did actually um, artograph up uh, compositions for that because they do get quite complex and it's much easier to sort those problems out small and then bl then blow them up. Uh, and then then draw the details in. But by and large, everything in Watchmen was just, just eyeballed. Um, and I've always been an advocate of doing really tight thumbnails because although you have to hold your nerve because, you know, while you're doing thumbnails, you're not getting any actual pages drawn. Always in the end, it saves you time and always in the end, it makes it less stressful. It, it makes it more like you're finishing something that you've already done. You know, if you get a sheet of those thumbnails, and hold them at arm's length and squint, you can almost see the completed page. Uh, and so it then makes what you're doing when you actually pencil it full size, really just, it's just the drawing. You've done the difficult bit, you've done the layout, you've done the relationship of what's, what's in the panels to what's on the rest of the page. 
and the drawing bit of it actually starts to feel quite quite relaxed there was all that preliminary work that that was done designing the characters designing uh the different ages of comedian's face all of this mm -hmm. stuff and correct me if i'm mistaken but you don't get paid for that well, no, you, you don't get paid for it, but much as with the thumbnails, if you've got a model sheet, particularly when it's a fairly complex thing you're dealing with, with you know, having multiple characters at multiple ages in multiple time frames, in a way, time spent planning it and making sure it works is it kind of time saved. And rather than have to mess around on the final page and, and start erasing and redrawing stuff there, it's much better just to... No. Oh, okay. So I now have to draw the comedian in 1946, and you you get your model sheet out, and there is the comedian in 1946, and it it keeps a consistency as well because there's the other thing that can happen with character designs is that you kind of drift if you draw the character on panel one, page one, and then you have to draw him several times throughout the issue. By the time you get to the last page, he doesn't really look much like the way he looked on the first page. But if you've got a model sheet pinned to your drawing board, you, you look at that all the time to draw him. So you get you, it's easier to maintain the consistency of the designs and of the likenesses. I mean, is this something that, that you would do for, for 2000 AD strips or, or Green Lantern? Uh, I, I say that because, I mean, this is an extremely ambitious project and, and looking on it in, in retrospect, you know it's so tight it's so perfect like but was that the was that the mentality going into it that you're going to like really swing for the fences and try and try to make something mm -hmm. incredible because that's a that's a lot of work that's done ahead of time that isn't that isn't done uh for for most comics and watchmen uh it's a it's an unknown quantity at that point you guys you guys mm -hmm. are taking a gamble in, in a certain way yeah i mean i think the thing about watch one which would differentiate it from some of the other things I did that it was that it was actually the the detail and the content and the that complexity that was the point of, of Watchmen something like Dan Dare in 2000 AD it was a science fiction action strip so what you were really doing was just drawing action and exciting de de designs and the story exposition and the story content of each individual picture wasn't was kind of fairly loose you couldn't lose the sense of the story by you, you know by drawing things in slightly the wrong place or not quite accurately whereas with watchman it was very formal it was very precise you couldn't really move anything out without spoiling the whole thing there was less wiggle room it was drawing much more to a tight brief um so although i did thumbnails for the 2008 stuff and the other dc stuff um, they were never as detailed as this. They would have the solid blacks dropped in because I find that that's really important, but they would be much more scribbly, much looser, much bigger even, you know, m maybe print size rather than tiny little thumbnail size. Because again, what you were trying to get into them was energy and excitement rather than detail and accuracy. Dave, as, as you get into, you know, like we talk about this being an unknown in the beginning, but here you are like drawing issue 12. Do you remember your, what you were feeling emotionally at that point? Was it relief, anticipation, sadness? Like what goes through your head? Cause I mean, 
this is what a couple of years of your life at that point when you sit down to to you know finish up issue 12 what are you feeling yeah. then well, you're feeling quite a lot of pressure. I mean, I would occasionally wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, shit, I've got another 60 pages of this to draw. Am I ever going to get there? Because it was by the nature of it that until you had the whole thing, you didn't have anything. You know, they could have drafted somebody else into finish writing it or finish drawing it or inking it or, or lettering it. But it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have worked. I think one of the things, and again, I'm looking at this from a distance and I'm not being arrogant, well, one of the things that makes Watchmen is its utter consistency. It's 12 completely consistent issues, the same creative team, the same approach, you know. And I think that adds a lot of power to it. Whereas if they'd swapped in a different penciler for a couple of issues in the middle, you know, it would, no matter how much they tried to ape what I did, it never would have been the same. So, yeah, I, I was quite concerned that we would ever finish it. And I think also there's the pressure of success. I mean, I remember after we'd done maybe the first two or three issues, going to New York and being treated like visiting royalty by the DC offices, people coming out of their offices, clapping us on the back, shaking our hands, telling us we were geniuses, even Howard shaking, saying that what we'd done was fucking A, you know, and all this kind of stuff. You think, oh my God, there's a, now there's all this expectation. I can't let people down. And, you know, somehow, miraculously, you do finally get to that square on your prison chart and you do find yourself putting that final um, X in. Um, so I guess it is a question of professionalism and holding your nerve and keeping going no matter what. And obviously in those two years, there were all sorts of the normal life events and the other stuff that just happens like Christmas time and like vacations and like family crises. And somehow you just keep rolling on. I, I'm I'm amazed. I'm as amazed as anybody else from the perspective of now that we ever managed to do it. And I actually, when I was looking through the script, I came across from a I came across a note from Alan, the scribbler in the margin. Dave, sorry, this is only one page. I've got an issue of Swamp Thing to finish. So while Alan was writing, I mean, forget me drawing it. While while Alan was writing it, he was also doing incredible work on on Swamp Thing, and probably half a dozen other things as well. Um, so his his concentration on on the story was was quite amazing as well. Uh, before we before we get into the issue, uh, just one other uh, quick question. Um, you finish page 32, you finish the last little bits of design stuff. Uh, how do you reward yourself for good behavior? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, well, I, I have got a little anecdote about sending off the final the final issue. I'll save that till the end of our discussions th th this afternoon. Make but a note. We, we can't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the sense of tremendous relief of just, I have done it. It is done. Um, and, of course, then you enter that kind of post-Watchman thing, and there was a lot of post-Watchman stuff. I mean, we went on a, a kind of a tour of England to publicise it. I mean, it wasn't exactly rock and roll, but we, you know, we had some fun doing that. And of course we were really lucky. People universally liked it. We got huge crowds of people waiting to get their books signed. And we got huge amounts of press coverage. And also on the back of it, I in particular um, got offered the chance to do lots of things that I might otherwise not have been offered to, 
to do. So I guess it, it the, the halo effect of Watchmen, you know, has lasted for a long, long time afterwards. But as to the specifics of did I go out and get drunk or did I go and have a have a have a week in the south of France or something? I, I can't remember anything like that at all. It was just how much lighter everyday life seemed because I'd <laughs> finally killed the beast, you know. For sure, man. And uh, you know, let's be let's be good storytellers about that and, and save more of that chatter yes. for for the end of the issue. Cartoonist Kayfabe, the YouTube channel, is subsidized by the comics that we make. Coming out in March and April 2022, Jim Rugg's Hulk Grand Design, where he takes 40 years of Incredible Hulk comics, distills it down into a high-octane romp, man, 40 pages apiece. One month after the other, Hulk Monster comes first, Hulk Madness comes the following month. Jim, what do you have to say about this thing? I say this, cartoonist kayfabe community out there, I want this to be the most requested comic that comic book shop owners have ever seen. This is your marching orders. Take your phones, show this to those comic shop owners, tell them you want this, tell them to pre-order and to order heavy. Take your previews catalog, whatever it is, take Hulk Grand Design, show it to your comic shop owners until they're sick to death of seeing this thing. I want it to be the most requested book comic shop owners have ever seen. That is your marching orders, Cartoonist Kayfabe Nation. Can I show them a couple of these variant covers, Jimmy? They come in a lot of good flavors too, man. There goes the Eddie P variant, man, by way of Uncle Todd McFarlane. But you know, I had to capture, because this is going to be in the origin issue, had to capture that old John Romita, Herb Trippy design. Who do we got here? Marcos Martin. And Peach Momoko coming in in the clutch, man. The cottage industry unto herself, man. Presenting us with a She-Hulk Hulk cover. March 2022. Comic shops, get on the ball with that stuff. And while you're at it, Red Room, the anti-social network, is in stores right now on Amazon. Uh, finer comic shops everywhere. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Collecting the entire 2021 season of Red Room Comics. 70 pages of extra material in the back and throughout this book and starting in february 2022 uh monthly you're going to get red room trigger warnings four issues of this season's worth of comics this is the cover that you're going to be seeing regularly so when you take your little uh phone to show it to your retailer tell them to get you those hulk comics put that red room uh comic on your on your docket as well there's the edp retail incentive variant Peach Momoko, once again, the cottage industry, man, comes through in the clutch. And the great Jim Rugg, by way of Robert Crumb, doing his Zap Comics Zero uh, homage. Once again, this channel, subsidized by the comics that we present, man. YouTube doesn't pay us a penny. So without further ado, we're done paying the bills. Let's get let's, back to the video. Let's begin to unpack this as we did uh, all year 2021, man, with uh, panel one on the cover. That, that, that Heinz ketchup like blood <laughs> on that doomsday clock there in the in the middle of uh, the big the big city and obviously calling back to our smiley face icon you know the two icons that have been through watchmen from the very get-go from from cover number one that smiley face that bright yellow and the doomsday clock and it's all come yeah. together here on on number 12. yeah dave would would uh would alan have like a very detailed description of the cover image also most of the cover images, we never actually, you know, wrote anything down. We just have a chat on the on the phone, and and it was it was obvious that that the final cover had to be midnight, or indeed it's just about a second or two before midnight, and it's actually midnight on page one, which we're we're, we're now seeing. 
Um, and we knew there had to be blood everywhere. So uh, it was one of the easier covers to do, really. We've been teasing uh, for, for pretty much the entire comic, the, 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 the Pale Horse show at Madison Square Garden's going down. And mm -hmm. here we get to see what the, uh, what the Pale Horse fans look like. Couple mm -hmm. of knot tops, perhaps, man. A lot of metalheads. Mm -hmm. Definitely of the same uh, persuasion, you know, like like when you go to a Kiss concert or something, and you see a bunch of Gene Simmons makeup yeah. or something. It was interesting rereading this uh, this week and thinking about sort of the pandemic and lockdown and seeing like a concert and a gathering because you hear of that over the course of the last year, you know, when concerts started to open up again. And it really mm -hmm. kind of uh, a strange relevance in a way, seeing these opening panels of crowds gathered together um i guess yeah yeah and i, I mean it, we do imply that it is a huge gathering of people we were sometimes slightly pulled up about the knot tops because in in britain we had kind of youth gangs that were quite easily identifiable by the way they dress like you know mods and rockers we, we've even talked about this before because it was part of my of, of my background so we figured that pale horse were the band of the knot top. So every, every knot top in New York would turn out for the Pale Horse comic. It was the event of the decade. And there is one little detail on this first page, which is often perplexed people. Um, and uh, I don't know if you're gonna bring it up at all, but, it, but if you look down towards the door that's hanging off its hinges, there's a little piece of yellow paper. Uh, yeah, oh, with, yeah. A number, with a number written on it. Is that the DC pay thing? It's, it's the DC job number. Right. Uh, and it's really weird because it doesn't appear on any of the other pages as, as far as I can see. But people have, have, have read all kinds of stuff into that, that it's some kind of coded message or it's something to do with Vite. Or it's, but it's not. It just happens to be the, the DC job number of Watchmen issue 12. This, did they put that number in there? Is that done after you turn in your pages? Yeah, 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 it was. And and uh, I mean, uh, if I'd known it was going to be in there, I'd have asked them to, to take it out because it's it's a real relic of the old way of d doing comics. And as I say, to the best of my knowledge, they successfully removed it on every other splash page, uh, except for this one where it could be, you know, have some supposed significance. You know, I, I love that it's included in a way because I often think of Watchmen and its history in the genre of superhero comics. So having a job number there that's a part of all those superhero comics historically, it's kind of neat to have that that relic in there, uh, yeah. that reference to the history. Yeah, it's it's the latest in a long line of DC comics. You know, it's kind of there, there in the ledger book, you know? Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to say this to you, man, but as a, as a consequence of that nine-panel grid and the rhythm that you guys have established mm. over 11 issues of that mm -hmm. nine panel grid these splashes took you forever i'm sure it took you two days or whatever but when it's yeah. time to read the comic as a kid and you know going forward it's like okay yep yeah, panel uh-huh panel panel <laughs> panel, panel. Oh, like, no. you know you, you go through it so quick so this so, is the anticipation of the rise of image comics <laughs> so uh so, you know, with a critical eye and like like looking closer at, at the imagery, I really took it in this this go around maybe for the first time mm. ever reading it of the many dozens of times that I've read it. And you see the expanse, you see bodies off into the distance, like going all the way back to the horizon line, almost the vanishing mm. point there. There are whatever the capacity of Madison Square Garden is. 
it's filled mm -hmm. up with uh, Pale Horse fans. And you've established the Not Tops in, in earlier issues as being a gang, but you've established a lot of civilian characters, and we're going to get to see all those poor bastards who converged mm -hmm. on Times Square. Or uh, mm -hmm. is Times Square Madison, where Madison Square Garden is? No, no, no. It's, it's uh, Madison Square Garden, and it's near... Penn Station, I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I, and I know we've got a lot of pages to get through, and I won't be coming in with a 10-minute anecdote for every single page, but I, I actually discovered on Google Maps, I've actually discovered kind of really where that intersection is. And the weird thing is that I've actually stayed on a, in a hotel, which is on the corner of it. It's, it's diagonally across from Penn Station, which puts us where the cab company was, okay, in... In, in Watchmen, and on the other side of the street, where Bernie, the news vendor, had his stand, yes. there actually is a newsstand. Um, I mean, I, I mean, there are some inaccuracies, and also being from a little English town, I kind of underestimated the width of American city streets. But it, but it, it it is an actual intersection, and it's that intersection where Penn Station is, and you look you look across, and you can see Madison Square Garden, sort of where I've drawn it. We're looking at uh, this is the watch salesman that we that we saw in uh, the the previous issue, a couple of. He is the watchman. He is the watchman. The the watchman. Dave, yeah. what level of detail is 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 in a script for like you know we see an airship that looks like a bomb implanted in the building in in a background. Um, how much detail are you getting for these pages in terms of what to include on them? Okay, well, I mean, I could read you out a little bit. I did come across one that that's uh, is how the hell do you how do you draw this if we were to go to because what well, this is pages two three if you go to page four right i'll read this out very quickly okay so page four full page pick again here we have turned exactly 90 degrees to our right please jungle jumble these judge Please juggle these descriptions to fit if you want the shot from a more oblique angle, looking at the corners, like you said, rather than down the streets. To the left, we see the bit of the utopia we didn't see last time. Very clearly see the poster for the movie currently showing the day the earth stood still. This is in mute counterpoint to the fantastic and horrific spill of bodies emerging from the damned cinema. Looking down the street past the spell, spill of stiffs, in the foreground, we can see that the Gunga Diner elephant has crashed in the background amongst the wrecked and smoking cars and litter and scattered. It just goes on and on like that for a whole for a whole page of, of uh, typescript. And also Alan's pointing out that it's very silent, that all we can hear is, is a light flapping of newspapers being born in the breeze. So there's, you know, each one of those has got that that amount of detail in it. Um, most of which I drew because it was necessary, some of which I didn't draw. Um, but uh, I, I mean, again, having reread it for the first time in decades, I, it's it's like a month's project to come up with a with an illustration like that these these days. Dave, is, um, this, is this a panorama shot? If we if we butted all of the splash pages up together, would it be? It kind of is. It, it kind of is because it starts on Madison Square Garden with the with the knot tops hanging out the window, pulls back to the next page, and then goes round to the to the right as we look at it. So it's as if you're standing in the middle of the intersection and you're looking at each corner in turn. 
So they don't exactly join. It's not a continuous panorama, but they are the snapshots taken at the kind of four points of the compass. Amazing. And 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 I actually did a plan of it, you know, to make sure I got, got everything right and that I could have transitional things that you could see in one shot that then went, went across to the other one. Indeed, if there's one thing, I'm going to have to stop talking so much, guys, I know, but, but, but if there's... Th this opening speech by me is the equivalent of having full page pictures okay so these are like full full page diatribes by me <laughs> that will get shorter when when we get to the more granular pages but the thing that i wished i mean these single page pictures are really impressive given that there are no other single page pictures they seem vast and complex and everything but what i actually wish we had have had if we'd had room was a double page spread after these single pages that was a kind of a, an airborne panoramic shot of everything, you know, a really hyper, super detailed New York City. So we could see exactly the extent and the scale of everything. My only self-criticism is that we feel very close up to this. And I think we probably need the sense of how it relates to the rest of the city and how, how huge it is. Um, so yeah anyway that that's my comment there that sounds fantastic speaks to like uh katsuhiro otomo in uh akira right after yes. after the bomb the bomb bursts look at the levels yeah. of depth we have here man foreground tentacle and then dave will just cut in this smoke to just add more layers of depth and look i mean there's 15 16 different we talk about it a lot whenever we're looking at various comics and how hard it is to draw rubble destruction uh, this mm -hmm. kind, like literally this kind of a drawing and how difficult it is. I mean, you don't spend that much time drawing this, you know, dead bodies, inanimate bodies. I'm impressed mm -hmm. by like the different textures, you know, like a lot of these things, there are these wet pieces on the ground. You pointed out smoke, Ed, there's cracked up like concrete, the broken glass, like being mm -hmm. able to call out all these different textures, I think is really uh, an impressive piece because I imagine getting a script that is, this is what's described to draw this this is nightmare stuff for an artist to try to figure out how to make pages look good with this content in fact those those smoke trails and the the kind of liquid um areas on the street they they actually provide a bit of relief from the detail they're they're kind of open areas and i obviously wh where i've drawn one of those i don't have to draw anything else behind it um but no, i mean that was a conscious de decision to play off sort of hyper detail very com complicated passages with quite simple graphically flat areas it creates movement too there's an implication of time by seeing smoke rising out of various places and even variation in the smoke that's coming out you know some from buildings that that you know fires from buildings or whatever and the smoke in the yeah. foreground so you have that quiet scene and a lot of dead bodies finding motion there to kind of imply the time like we're watching this this isn't just yeah a snapshot this is you could stare at this this is what's happening here create so many yeah, good I, shapes too with I, I, I was sorry I, I was I was gonna say I, I think also the, um, the the little bits of paper that are flying around I think add animation to it uh, there's isn't there a name for it in animation where you have a character standing still but you just have their eyes blinking every so often and it brings the whole thing thing alive so I think you're right yeah the smoke and the bits of paper give animation to it because these things obviously can't hang in the air static they are moving so yeah 
calls to mind um, War of the Worlds for me with all the war headlines floating through everywhere. And, and uh, you know, that's a that's a story that's near and dear to me. So seeing that mm-hmm. here, uh, did that come up in conversation, Dave, with Alan Moore, the idea of like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds kind of broadcast and, and I don't know, conveying some of that? Um, it, it's, I, it's the whole story in a way, but. Yeah, I, I don't I can't remember anything that specifically alluded to War of the Worlds. Um, but yeah, I can see there is that kind of overwhelming feel about it, like the war is ev- everywhere. Um, no, I, I can't say that that is a memory, that one. We've established uh, a number of civilian characters throughout, uh, throughout the series, and uh, we get to revisit them all one last time in, this, in the splash pages here. We have the uh, detectives from, from the very beginning, you see the handcuffs right there on our guy, man. Don't let you forget that that that's a that's a flat foot right there. We have mm-hmm. our lesbian cab driving hack and her girlfriend who were fighting on the corner not far away from the uh, psychiatrist or psychologist. I always forget which is which. I'm not rich enough to see either, so I, I don't know the difference uh, with his is wife. He's a psychiatrist. I think he's a psychiatrist. Uh, the Promethean cab stand is there. And, of course, the lovers, uh, you know, image on the building which is going to come up again in a minute with dr manhattan uh very nicely yeah for sure man and then uh here we have the two bernies Mm -hmm. with the uh with the alien face right there man yeah and and the little little detail in there on the face of the building where which said he said something like the institute for interspatial studies or something and you now can see highlighted or all die Wow. Never freaking seen that before. Dave, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the other thing that I didn't notice that my wife pointed out to me was because I'd drawn quite a lot of these spark hydrants, these electric hydrants where you recharge your car. Again, a kind of a common sight increasingly in in places these days. But I didn't realise that, you know, with the two slots for the prongs of the plug, and the thickness of the indentation that that actually made a smiley face but she noticed it and indeed she noticed it and told me in time that i could have a little speck of blood going over that recharging plug so uh you know serendipity is happening all the time gotta shout props on when you see a page like this man i gotta shout props to john higgins on on his color work because he's just adding to the chaos using mm-hmm. using every crayon in the crayon box man roy g biv is on this page baby <laughs> oh yeah no no i mean i would never i would never overlook john's contribution to it and of course what's what's nice i mean it was done in a fairly crude old-fashioned comic comics method which i'm sure you're familiar with you know where it's different percentages of cyan yellow magenta and black and so not only does the colorist have to paint it all in as a color guide, but they also have to annotate it. So it's C2Y2 or B3Y4 or, you, you know, incredibly complex, archaic way of doing it. And, you know, for John to have to cope with that as well made his coloring all the more miraculous. But the later issues, I know you've got one of the original comic books. I'm actually looking at, you know, the, the later trade paperback, which has got the recoloring in it was you know given the technical restrictions of what john was doing his his color is just brilliant and it was great that he later got the chance to clean it up remaster it you know for the editions that are that are now in print 
And I have even going through this issue for the purposes of this talk, I have marveled at how abstract he makes his colouring. You know, it's not skin is pink and skies are blue. It's his choices are just incredible. Anyway, carry on, carry on. Just, just critically, like trying to, you know, absorb the story. We had these several, you know, six pages of uh, splashes, these quiet moments, and then you realize that uh, Doctor Manhattan is—they're already there. Like it's—it's it's from their perspective. They're—they're they're standing mm -hmm. around, looking around in that three sixty. Yeah. And Doc Manhattan is pretty far removed from humanity. He's talking about these tachyon things while mm -hmm. while our girl right there, man, is just on the human level. They just wanted some Indian food to go. Like all they wanted mm -hmm. was some dinner. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. a great job of of her I don't want to say babbling, but a reaction where it's like completely overwhelmed. Like impossible yeah. to to bring to words anything that would make sense of what she's standing in the middle of. Really yeah. well expressed. And, you know, they're in separate panels while we're reminded of, of a couple together and just how far apart these two are mm. at this point in the story. I should also point out uh, that first picture, the profile of Laurie, where your thumb is, that actually intentionally mirrors the cover of issue two, where you've got the stone angel looking over the city of the dead. So, yeah, that was just a little echo, which probably most people have com completely missed, but... Uh, it's there for a reason. Reminds me a little bit of uh, issue 11, whenever we see Night Owl and Rorschach's reaction at the end of the issue. And it's like this silence of them just looking like, what have we just heard? It's already happened. Uh, you know, you see a little bit of that in her expression there too, of like, you know, she's seeing I, what they heard in that last issue. I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't made that connection, but as, as it makes us look all the more clever, I'll take it. <laughs> Dave, Dave your, your drawing style here, the, the proportions of your figures, they, mm. feel, they feel taller uh, than, yeah. than the way that you uh, would usually draw your comics. Uh, longer legs, something like that. Was this, was this a deliberate idea you want to make these characters look more heroic to the regular citizens like it, it looks like some deliberate stuff is happening if you look at this compared to green lantern or some of the work that comes after yeah i mean i think in all all honesty i would like to say that it's sometimes it is just not so good drawing i think it's, to, it's something to do with the function of the space that i was having to fit the figures into and maybe on a subconscious level, squeezing them so that they would fit fit across. There are some instances where I look at the figures and I I cringe. I think, oh my god. But on the on the other hand, uh, yeah, it does give them a certain heroic aspect. Um, so I think that's just uh, that's just me drawing under pressure. So talking about John Hegan's colors, right? As we roll through here, and they decide that they need to go investigate this. Where where's this coming from? And suddenly we have like a colorless panel almost surrounded by a rainbow. What a great effect that is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then you mirror that, that same color once we get to the uh, Antarctic base. For some reason, it was like this issue when, I, when you see everybody get back together where uh, like I thought less about Charlton characters and way more about the Justice League of America in a lot of ways. I mean, we're in essentially the Fortress of Solitude. You have... Your, your, your Batman there, you know, we'll call mm -hmm. Lori like the Wonder Woman of the thing, but I started thinking way more about just the DC pantheon beyond yes. uh, just Charlton. Yeah, it, it has got that kind of, 
here comes everybody kind of feel, you know, that t that t team up thing. And and I, it's one of the few times other than in flashback that we do see them all together in costume, I think. So it's impressive because of that. The, the other thing I was going to point out on the, the preceding page with Laurie and uh, Dr. Ma Dr. Manhattan is the bit of business where she finds the gun. Uh, some people missed, missed out on that. It, it was a question of we had to show it but not make it blindingly obvious. And I often wonder, some some people knew what was happening. Other people completely missed it because they were looking at all, all the other detail. But that's where she gets the gun from that she's later to um, use. That makes um, perfect sense, man. You, you know, some of it... like I, that, I, I totally missed that. Me, me too. And and I would say that that's actually not helped so well by, by the Higgins color because it's pretty dark there. But, yeah. I mean, there's that gun right there. It makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, center of the panel. And it's neat. Yeah, and... and, and and you can see on this on this the second row of pictures, she's kind of squatting down, and you can't see what her hands are doing. And then in the central picture on the whole page, she's got a hand inside the bag, pushing the gun down down inside it. But uh, yeah, perhaps a little too subtle, but it's subtlety's a, a difficult horse to ride. Dave, one of the one of the things that's that's so fun about this comic is uh, you discover something new on every every read. And mm -hmm. I discovered things uh, on this, on you know, my initial read for this that, that I never saw before. And you're just you're just adding to it. It's it's good. <laughs> good. This feels like uh, a, a real human nature too. Like confronted with this type of horror, it's almost instinctual that she pulls that gun out. Like she doesn't know she's gonna go and, and shoot at somebody. It's just like. Yeah survival or something you know very primal in fact um dr manhattan says something while she's looking at the gun he says uh, blah 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 reassuringly powerful which i guess is what laurie must have felt about the gun that if she had that she felt reassured and, and powerful maybe that's why people like guns in general i don't know cut to the uh the fortune of solitude and we have a hamstrung Rorschach that's chomping at the bit. He's doing everything he can to have some restraint because he knows the second he's he's mean to Bubastis's master, he's going to get mm -hmm. torn to ribbons. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that smile on Adrian's face too. He's real pleased with himself. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 again, r reading Alan's script, he gave me one of those things things that's impossible to draw. But he, he suggested that Rorschach's fists should be trembling with rage, which you know exactly what that means, but it's an impossible thing to draw unless you do little little tremble mark, you know, little um, tremble marks, which wouldn't look so good, probably. You didn't do any of that sort of uh, comic book shorthand with speed lines and, and, and things like that in, in, in this comic very much. No, there was a, that was a conscious decision that we wouldn't have speed lines or motion lines or captions come come to that. Um, I think maybe there might there, there probably are. I, I can't think of where it is offhand, but there's one where maybe I've got a little line by somebody's head to kind of show shock. But by and large, we we did our best to avoid those particular you know cliches. Great emotion on Dan's face, despite being behind goggles and in in costume. Uh, always mm -hmm. impressed when you're able to com communicate that and that's without any real body language you know we're just getting a close-up of a face so in fact i will i will read you i will read you alan's description of that let me let me just see because it's one of these amazing things it's page nine isn't it and it's panel 
panel one, two, three, four, five, six. Panel six. Yeah. It says, now another simple head and shoulders shot, this time of Dan. His eyes widen and he has a number of expressions vying for possession of his face. Ridicule, disbelief, and above all, a terrible uncertainty. That, that, do, do you think I pulled it off? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Like, uh, listening to the... Um... The Simpsons commentaries with those Harvard writers, like they they will do things like task their animators with uh, drawing an ambivalent hum. <laughs> and, yeah, just go off and go do that. <laughs> but, anyway, that that that's how it's done. That's how the, how the pros do it. Dave, so much great uh, body language and facial expressions in here. We're going to see one of the greatest pieces of the uh, Doc Manhattan kind of emoting as. Uh, his last little bit of humanity is shown in in a little bit. Part part of uh, Night Owl's response or or uh, you know odd reaction there is not just the horror of what has happened, but also the revelation of you know what would you have done if the assassin's bullet you know if he hadn't been stopped? And he's like, well, I would have caught the bullet, and uh, mm -hmm. and that's part of this expression of like what? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's so so self-assured. It makes you sick, doesn't it? And 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 the beauty of the silent panel is you can linger on that for as long as you want, man. <laughs> All right, we get a little bit of uh, exposition about how the how the alien works, psychic brains mm -hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, some mm -hmm. interesting stuff there about the amount of information that they're coding into the brain. Uh, really specific language, which again seems to make more sense to me in today's world than I read this probably in the late '80s. Uh, feels much more relevant language yeah. um, today, even. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, he, he is speaking for a comic book villain. He is speaking in big, complicated words, isn't he? Really, you know. I, I think his in intelligence and knowledge comes through. There's another weird thing on that page that I can't actually figure out exactly what I was trying to do now. But if you look at the top row of pictures on page uh, page ten. Um, there's a lot of shadow on uh, um, Adrian's face in the in the third picture, and then you look down at the picture of Rorschach, and it kind of echoes it. I think I was trying to do something, something there about information or something. I, I it's rather lost to me, but I know that I know there was a reason for doing it. Sorry, I'm sounding much too much like 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 an old man there. Well, I did something, but I don't know why I did it now. But anyway, I, I did mean, it. It's, it's, it's very clear, like the, like the same sort of composition. And you could infer a lot of things. Like this might be the second, the moment that Rorschach like gained true awareness of, mm -hmm. of what's going down or whatever. Yeah. I, and I mean, there's another interesting thing that, that Adrian Weiss says, because, you know, he, he was behind the Pyramid Trucking Company who we saw right at the beginning. He, when he's describing his plan here, he says, no one will know those involved are all dead, killed by killers who killed each other, a lethal pyramid. So he was kind of displaying arrogantly his plan, you know, in plain view. It's one of those great things, man. You see it in the G.I. Joe comics. Arbok Industries is just Cobra spelled backwards, man. <laughs> no! You <laughs> spoiled it for me. There's all these little bits, too. Like, I... I I think we might have even passed it in the splashes or it might be forthcoming, but there are like Adrian Veidt sneakers and stuff with like the, the P on yeah. it. Like he's, he's, he's got a whole brand and it's out there in that universe. Yeah. All right. Enter uh, Doc Manhattan and Lurie. 
puts a little halo around her so that uh, a little insulation with that mm -hmm. costume. Mm -hmm. I, Wonder Woman didn't need that insulation in that in that uh, <laughs> in that annual you guys drew. Because she's an Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> this is a nice visual too, seeing through the the translucent quality of Doctor Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be handled so many ways, and and just Dave like the the perfect amount of lines to sell it. Mm. Uh, one 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 other thing that you might have missed talking about Laurie's uh, aura, protective aura. When uh, when Doctor Manhattan goes, he leaves her outside, and he withdraws the aura as well. I'm sure he does it unconsciously, but she's just left to freeze. <laughs> Um, and also on page 11, if you look at the wide picture in the middle, you can see that Dr. Manhattan is kind of holding his left hand up. And in this sequence, time and space are being messed with by tachyons. So if you now turn the page, turn that page, he's in the same place on the page, but now he's pushing the door open. Wow. That's amazing, man. So yeah. he's preemptively kind of gone to open the door, but being slightly messed up by the tachyons. That's that what... is so awesome to see visually represented because we see it in the dialogue repeating and that's a that's an easy one to catch, you yeah. know, but to do it visually is uh, that's awesome. It's a great use mm -hmm. of that that technique too. you know, you, like it, the, the the mole strip in Mad Comics, Harvey Kurtzman, where you see that repeated image. It's so much more on the nose because it's a very bombastic kind of image. You rarely ever see it where it's kind of just a subtle movement. I was looking at the, uh, the, the, the cat, Bubastis, because I've, I've always kind of liked cats. We, you know, growing up and even now we've, we've got cats. Um, but the cat we've got at the moment, we've, we've got two of them, a Maine Coon cats, which are big cats, like they're domestic cats. They're not big cats like lions and tigers, but they're large, large domestic cats, but they've got the pointy ears. Uh, and the same kind of feel as, as, as Bubastis. So I, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're the greatest cat drawings ever, but I really enjoy drawing Bubastis because, you know, I kind of love cats. And, and I think that sort of comes over. Great page of storytelling here in this panel. And I, I have to imagine that that part of the uh, script had to be pretty detailed because we have Adrian Veidt behind this kind of like lead shield barrier thing with a sign that says stand behind screen when TF Subtractor is activated. You see mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, what do you call it, man? The, the area of effect. Bubast is kind of like leading him, leading him on as Doc Manhattan is like walking down that whole hall, a little bit oblivious to, uh, to Adrian because of the, the tachyon issue yeah we're building to something here you mentioned these uh mirror-like panels ed it's also in the drawing you know this whole fortress has that kind of uh squeaky clean polish uh texture to it and you see it in, in several of these panels whether it's character reflections or like the objects in the room reflecting yeah done in ink line like in uh you know modern day you could do all sorts of computer effect to 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 sell the the reader on that but this is this is the pen and ink days, How about baby. this for an interesting effect? And I wonder if this is just subconscious. You know, as they walk into this area where uh, Veet has set up this trap for Dr. Manhattan, you see like the caution lines, you know, the caution sign. The whole fortress has that caution motif as we, as we mm. see it from the outside there. That's this is, true. This is some stuff I totally 
sort of make note of for my, for my own work to just sell atmosphere. Like you draw these, you now have wind. Right. You know, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I mean, looking back at these drawings, and as I say, again, dispassionately and almost uninvolved because of the number of years that have gone by. One of the things I like about them is in these pictures, there's a lot of space. There's a lot of air. There's a lot of depth, which given that many of the pictures are really up close, you're really looking straight in people's faces. It's like, again, it's kind of like breathing out or something, you know, it's, it's, it, it gives a good, good contrast to it. I would also point out that in that bottom panel on page 13, we've sort of, as Laurie walks into the circular tunnel, we've got a little bit of a smiley face echo kind of going on there. Can you see with the icicle and with the dark of her figure and the curve of it all, there's a little bit of a smiley face working itself up there. And, and there's also a butterfly in the snow. Then if you can see that in the in the foreground, there's a little that butterfly that we saw before Vite let the snow in. That's still hanging around in the snow. Right. And we will see it later again as oh, well. Yeah, there it is right there. This yeah. is almost a uh, the Mickey Mouse broken. So shots <laughs> yes. fired, you know, uh, cutting promos on, on the future Marvel owners. Uh, I like the attention to detail of having the scooters that Rorschach and Night Owl rode in on you know, partially covered mm. now in the snow in the foreground there, showing passage of time and how quick this environment is to reclaim that environment. Mm. Dave Gibbons invented the Segway. Yes, that's right. In fact, you know, the Segway has got a comic book connection. You know that, don't you? Dean yes. Kamen, I, I, Jack Kamen's boy. Yeah, yeah, weird, isn't it? Anyway, could as have been a, me. As another digression, he also invented a, uh, a water filter thing designed to uh, filter your pee so that it's drinkable. <laughs> uh, I think we come on, on, on to that a bit later on this issue. The amazing... <laughs> yeah. Here we have, man. Uh, Doc Ma Dr. Manhattan walks right into that field. Adrian mm -hmm. turns it on. And like the one piece of empathy you see invite that feels legit. Because mm -hmm. there's that earlier part where he's like, I feel for everybody. I felt for everybody that I killed. It was necessary. And I didn't quite believe it in his character. Mm -hmm. I could believe that uh, that he uh, is a little sad that Bubastis is gone. He loves his cat. He's, he's a rough, tough dude, but he loves his cat, you know, just like me. This is so... Uh, this book, one of the interesting things to me is it's a superhero book. You know, it's usually judged that way. But it's these moments that, like, this is such a human moment... And it's, I, I have cats too, Dave. I love them very much. And I have that same mm -hmm. feeling. And I often catch myself thinking like, you know, you, you, you care more for the cat than you do this person. And it's, <laughs> and it's, it's terrible. Like in my mind, I feel guilty over that, but that's what you see here, right? Is this pet owner who loves this pet, not that worried about Dr. Manhattan or, or the millions of people that he's killed in this stunt, but yeah. his pet, his dear pet. Yeah, it, again, it's a very almost selfish kind of love. He, he loves his pet, but he doesn't really care for much anything else. And it's probably for what he gets back from his pet. The well, you know, it's the companionship, isn't it? It's also there's a there's a god thing to it also because this is a one of a kind animal, something something that he created. Like like he's mm -hmm. god over this thing. It's you know maybe one of his most brilliant inventions, and now he has to snuff out his his artwork. On this yeah. spread right here, I'm just noticing another another shout out to, to John Higgins. You were talking about some of his use of color, how he doesn't just necessarily co color ev everything straight. 
we have Caucasian flesh in a shadow illuminated with some light. Same mm -hmm. deal on this page. Lori's a little bit in shadow. We have mm -hmm. a, a, a kind of a, a speed effect with, uh, with like some, some pink light on white here. We have the gun muzzle blast, so they're all yellow. This is mm -hmm. this is deliberate colorist stuff. It didn't have to look this way, but John Higgins made those decisions. Dave, did you provide any kind of uh, color color guides or notes or anything to John, or uh, just trust him to do his thing? Well, we had a discussion earlier on. I mean, I sort of chose John because I, I knew him a little bit to, to begin with anyway, and I knew he was somebody that I would enjoy working with. And I'd seen the thing that he'd done actually in a 2000 AD annual that I believe was drawn by Steve Dillon and John had colored it. And I was really struck by the color, by what the color added to, to Steve's drawings. And in fact, Steve and John actually ended up working in the same studio together. So they, they knew each other quite well. Um, and I knew that John was a good painter as well. I'd seen science fiction book covers and things he'd done. So I asked him if he was interested in doing this, which he was. And the only guidance I gave him was that I, I wanted it to look kind of unlike a regular American comic book. And a lot of the European albums that we were looking at in those days, back in the early 80s, we all sort of discovered European albums. They would go much more for the, the secondary palette, you know, the purples and the greens and the oranges and everything. And John got that and said, yeah, you know, that, that would give him something to sort of base his approach on. And I also gave him colored drawings of the individual costumes, but, you know, just as reference really. Um, and um, every time he colored an issue, he would bring it round to my house and show me the Xeroxes that he colored in with Dr. Martin's intense colored dyes. And I would recall in horror, I'd go, no, John, you can't, that's much too bright. Oh no, you can't put green on that, or you can't use blue there. And he would always talk me down. He would always have a good logical reason for doing it. He'd explain how it had to be this color because he'd already used that color. And he wanted to, you know, almost in a very scientific way. Um, and he could always justify all his color choices. So after two or three issues of me being aghast at, at what he'd done, I just let him do, do whatever he wanted on it. And uh, the, 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 there are odd things that stick in my mind, like the, the Rorschach issue, where it's the, the Rorschach cards. He plays around with the palette there, where it starts off very sunny and bright and warm. And by the time you get to the last page, it's just muted greys and blues. And, and it does a wonderful job of, you know, because we talked about the, well, there's the literary quality of what Alan wrote and the wonderfulness, the poetry of his prose. There's the kind of sharply defined accuracy and realization of what what i've done with my particular skill but what john's coloring does is add a layer of emotion on top of that you know color gives you mood and emotion and again a kind of visual poetry and that's why what he did was so much more than just coloring superman's shirt blue all the time you know um and he and and it the the, the other thing I was really pleased about was when DC came to do the recoloring, when we did, did digital coloring, that they actually got John on a royalty after that. So all the big printings of Watchmen, John got a decent royalty on, um, which I think he thoroughly deserved. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And just one other color note with uh, John. 
sometimes the the best choice for a colorist in a moment, man, is to put almost no color at all, and that feels very bright. Yeah, man, mm -hmm. it, it pops so much off of this page and off of what we've seen so far. I wanted to point out when when Vet is you know catching this bullet or doing his move, that is one of those comic effects, you know, like the Deluca Deluca effect, right? Yeah, yeah. The repeating of the image in, in a panel. Um, one of the rare instances of using a uh, a very comic book style effect. Yeah. New descending a staircase, isn't it, by Marcel Duchamp? That's yes. it, man. And he's and he's going, you know, this is a guy like you know all those rich dudes that will do their Brazilian jiu-jitsu? He's going down with Jeet Kune Do because that is the high uh, that Bruce <laughs> Bruce Lee shouts. You know, one more <laughs> note on the color here is you're having your, your face-offs between a purple and orange. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, your, your uh, complementary colors there as those two characters seem strongly yeah. identified by color. But, of course, they do also say, and I, you're absolutely right when you say there are no weak colors in there. You know, he's not, not scared of the colors. I read somewhere, and I believe it's true, that you can judge a colorist by their grays. And what really makes this work is not only the bold purples and yellows, but exactly the tones that he's used for the background, those very muted, cool colors. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it is a masterclass in how to, how to use color in a comic book, I think. More of that subtle storytelling. We see, we see Vite on the ground. We mm -hmm. see uh, it's so smart in terms of storytelling. We see this this hand he's 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 holding a wound he got shot in the chest man you see him holding that but that other hand is bloody and that hand is clutched and you know remember this panel before you turn the page because we're going to come back to what, what it looks like he's trying to do in that panel hit that mm -hmm. high yeah, throw that kick <laughs> it's so good man. like when he opens that the aha moment and then she catches it to the to the rib piece the theory being and I speak to you now with, with, with another one of my hats on. I've, I've trained Tai Chi for the past 30 something years. And if, if you're good enough, nobody can ever put any weight on you because your hand is moving in a way and in a velocity, which means that they, they never can actually touch you. They can never put more than four ounces of pressure on you. And the theory here is that Vite is such a skilled martial artist that he can match the trajectory and the speed of a bullet so that when it hits his hand, they're traveling at the same speed and then he just decelerates his hand and that takes all the kinetic energy out of it. I, I would say, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and look at her, man, she's doubled over. Ugh. But then it's just business as usual and no respect for Night Owl and Rorschach. She walks by him. He's mm -hmm. a bad, this is a bad man. <laughs> Yes, I love indeed. this sequence too, and you know it's another one of these instances of we're mirroring this, this these pages, you know, as as he's destroyed and then comes back, Doctor Manhattan. And you can almost hear that. <laughs> you know, Doctor Manhattan, he doesn't raise his voice until now. That's right. This reminds me a little bit of the first time we see Doctor Manhattan. It's in a vertical, a tall vertical panel probably about the size of those feet if you were to draw him yeah, three tiers high and even in like an installation where you're seeing this kind of uh, monitors and stuff that he's working on in that first scene yeah there's, there's also um, a thing that happens here that happens in that first appearance that page way back in in issue one where he we're actually showing dr manhattan shrinking and it's a weird thing to have to draw it kind of messes with your perspective and your spatial dynamics on it but here he does shrink down um again 
and I think it's I think it probably works. Oh, absolutely, works. absolutely, and and man, just just uh, just drawing that figure time and time again, Dave. You you either, you can't hide like you've chosen to draw in a style where you can't hide uh, the fact that like say you don't know how to draw a proper clavicle or something. Mm-hmm. Every uh, every muscle and bone is accounted for in correct fashion like you could learn how to draw that achilles tendon by looking at these images and it certainly helped provide some some perspective on how to draw the figure in an age where one i was a little kid and it was i didn't even know what to ask for to try to figure out how to draw human beings Mm -hmm. and two the stuff that i was uh gravitating toward at that time before discovering Watchmen, it's like Rob Liefeld comics and Todd McFarlane comics and things, where I'm just drawn the the cra- it looks like a leg on a dude's <laughs> where a dude's arm is supposed to be, and then when yeah. you see uh, the symmetry of the of the of the character, like when you're drawn um, Doctor Manhattan, just just a naked you know Ventruvian man or whatever, that I mm. mean it's it's incredible figure drawing. I think the thing I was going for, well, not I think, I know what I, the effect I was going for there is that Dr. Manhattan is faintly translucent. So you you can't actually cast a shadow on him and no, nowhere has he got anything that go, that is completely in shadow. So it's a bit like one of those, I don't know if you get the, the, the reference, uh, Lalique glassware, that kind of frosted glass that they sometimes have as a light. That's how I saw him being, that it's just... As his body, as the planes of his body turn away from you, they get a bit darker. And when they're facing towards you, they're full on bright. So that's why I use that particular kind of hatching, just to suggest that turning of the form with it, the surface going away from you and not sending as much light. Anyway, that, that makes so that, much sense because you do not see that on other characters. Right. Mm-hmm surprisingly hard to draw at least for me are monitors in a background of a panel like showing things on a monitor for some reason is my worst panel to have to draw uh but it's such a dramatic one with the lighting here and in contrast to what you're describing with dr manhattan having like a glow a little bit of a glow to him you see the mm-hmm. opposite and what a figure looks like that isn't emitting any light uncle dave's going to show off too because he's going to give you monitors in perspective and, <laughs> right. have, and have that that richard nixon had perfectly skewed in perspective yeah, of, of course, with computer graphics nowadays, that would be so simple to draw. So I just draw the whole thing square on and just distort it, you know. But yeah, that's all mapped out by by hand. Hours and hours of work doing that. That to me is an amazing figure pose because you mm-hmm. have the perspective there in his arms while still mm-hmm. throwing up that, that victory sign. And and it is at 5 to 12. You, you realize that his arms are like the arms of a clock. And oh, my goodness. Hands of a clock. Wow. And and in between his two hands is indeed the Gordian knot. This is a painting of Alexander the Great severing the Gordian knot. I believe I based it on a painting, or it might not be a full painting, it might be a sketch by a French artist called um, David, D-A-V-I-D-E, and he drew or painted this sequence where Alexander just cuts the knot and solves the problem. So there's a lot of symbolism going on there. That 12-5 thing is remarkable because I see the perspective of the figure drawing and it actually is like the shorter arm in perspective is the hour. That's amazing. Like, I don't, I don't even know how to contemplate such a thing. And there's your, there's your clock. Incredible. Uh, shouting, I did it. It's almost like, 
like boy genius or something like like an infantile <laughs> uh, exclamation i did it he's looking for praise man but you know what i see this to me is not so much his praise or even worrying about anybody else in the room at that point because you're you're reading this idea like his his scheme to make peace or whatever it's happened and this is months years in the planning the teleporting of that thing that creating like an organic brain matter so that it's believable as some sort of alien life force so many pieces that could go wrong even for the world's smartest man relief this is this is dave gibbons <laughs> page finishing 32. up page 32 of issue yeah. 12. watchman i did it <laughs> Yeah, and, and of course, it's very self-centered as well. It's typical of Vi. I did it. Look at me. I'm the winner. End of war was one of the last uh, phrases on that TV before he shouted his victory. Mm -hmm. Right. That's now, true. Now we have the back and forth. Well, yeah, you did it. But now we can't talk about it. You can't celebrate your victory. They mentioned uh, the guy, like... The guy who the idea of Pyrrhic victory is 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 based on, I forget, Papyrus or something like that. He's mm. mentioned in here somewhere. So it's like, yeah, you did it. Can't talk about it, nor can we. Because if we divulge mm. this information, uh, everything goes back to the way it was at, at best. Mm -hmm. And Rorschach is having none of it. Right. He ain't playing that game. Joking, of course. <laughs> yeah. Never compromise. And the other thing there about what Rorschach says, and I noticed when I reread this, that in that final panel on, on page 20, Rorschach says never compromise. And there should logically be a balloon tail going towards the door or through the doorway. But it's actually in Alan's script saying it's a tailless balloon. And I think that, that has a very subtle but quite interesting effect. It's like it's just left hanging there. It's like the ghost of what Rorschach, it's the last thing Rorschach says to anybody apart from Dr. Manhattan. And it's like, never compromise. It's just left there. Just the idea. I think mm. uh, I saw, where was it? Um, it might've been the Jonathan Ross uh, special about um, Steve Ditko. I saw Alan Moore on something talk about Steve Ditko uh, being asked about Rorschach and its relation to uh, the question. And mm -hmm. Steve Ditko said something. This is Alan Moore stating uh, that Steve Ditko said, yeah, Rorschach is like uh, the question or Mr. A, except he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. How about this Higgins color right here? Wild. I've, I've been staring at that since you opened the spread. It's, it's like double it's... lighting, light coming from two different areas, so the shadow is pure green. Well, that's very strange, actually. I don't know if that might actually be an error, because in the recolored version... Ah. Is, is, can you see it? Yeah. yeah. In the recolored version, it's not. It's quite a muted color. There's a lot that's different because look at the uh, Ozymandias on the third panel of uh, that page twenty. Like the colors are way more subtle and and uh, sub subdued compared to what Higgins laid down here initially. Yeah, it's it's weird. It, I'm, I'm sure if John had intended that, he would have carried it through into the recolored version. So I suspect that that is just 
they've dropped one of the plates, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a real harsh line, too. Right. Mm. Yeah, it is very square. This is a good example, Dave. You were talking about, like, the spaces that you've that you've drawn in this uh, comic, in this series. I think this page, this spread, going from, like, everybody together and reflecting and even mm. the world on these monitors behind them to, like, we need to go off and, like, you know, meditate, yeah. think about this, do something coping, and, and you go from this really busy, chaotic moment to, like, space. It's a quiet well, of course transition. It's, it's almost like, like a Zen thing, isn't it? Draw emptiness. Right, yeah. That's, that's how you draw emptiness, by having everything else crammed. And then when it isn't crammed, it's empty. <laughs> it, it makes sense to me emotionally reading this, and, and even that if you turn the page and we keep following them, because it just feels like, how do you process this as a human? And it feels mm -hmm. like that's what we're seeing here of, you know, it's impossible. It's it's impossible in a way. And, and it's awkward a little bit with these characters as they're trying to form words and, you know, come back together in some way. Uh, I think that's really captured well. This, this particular spread, there's one panel in it that always makes me laugh. And just briefly, you know, as I said, we we were much uh, um, a kind of celebrated up at DC Comics and everybody would come and pester the editor to see if the latest issue of Watchmen, the art was in for the latest issue of Watchmen yet. And there was a, an inker called Al Gordon um, and he was a particular pest. He was always asking, is the next Watchmen? Can I come in and, and have a look at it? And Mike Carlin, who's got a fantastic sense of humour, he actually, when he got the got to see the artwork for this last issue, did a doctored up copy that he sent a Xerox of to Al Gordon, where he he done things like pull it through the Xerox machine really quickly, so it was all blurred and distorted, change word balloons and everything. But this one in particular, the 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 central image on page uh, twenty two, where Laurie's taking Dan's goggles off. Here, here, you know, she says. I want to see you and taste you and smell you just because I can. What is that, Dan? What's that you smell of? And he says, nostalgia, which is, you know, the men's aftershave, women's perfume or whatever. In the doctor version that Mike Carlin did, she says, what is that, Dan? This is Night Owl she's talking to. What is that, Dan? What is that you smell of? And Dan says, owl shit. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then, just to skip forward a couple of pages, we can we can come if, if you go forward to page page twenty five, where the guy's walking across the swimming pool. He's actually in the version that Mike did. He's actually peeing as he walks across the swimming pool. <laughs> so there you are. Mike Carlin spoils it for me. You now spoils it for everybody else. That's so perfect. Man. <laughs> like like uh, sometimes you know it's 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 right, it's right there. Mm. We, we we like to call the the classic Alan Moore transition uh, images out when, whenever we see a, a good one. And of course, uh, this is also a motif throughout the comic where you have the couple in, in embrace and then dissolve into Rorschach uh, symbol like on on his uh, on his face there. Mm -hmm. Heads out, man, to go get his segue. And you still see that butterfly that you called out earlier. Chekhov's yep. butterfly. You don't introduce it <laughs> earlier in the piece if you don't uh, have some payoff. And that's uh, right. We're going to have some butterfly effect with Doc Manhattan size twelve stepping on that <laughs> poor bastard. <laughs> no yeah. dignity in that poor butterfly, man. <laughs> it's only a butterfly. 
Yeah, that's what they said, that Ray Bradbury story. And then what happened? Oh, that, that's right. <laughs> yes. in, the, in the prehistoric time traveling big game. Gotcha. I've forgotten about that. Rorschach isn't budging. No. He's not. And I think if you just let him go off in the uh, Antarctic wild on that scooter, we're never going to see or hear from him again. <laughs> or if you do. Not like, his best plan. There is a part of, uh, you hear about it from those CIA guys that, that get de deactivated and do interviews, where uh, a big part of um, sort of denouncing alien abduction claims and stuff like that is you consider the source and make a judgment call. Let him talk. Let him tell everybody, man. Right. Go, go on, Larry King, you crazy, archy-looking bastard, <laughs> and let's see if uh, humanity believes <laughs> the things that you're going to be telling the public. Yeah, you go do that. If you're yeah, the yeah. spokesman for uh, this this idea, <laughs> for the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You, go, go on, man. Yeah. And, and, and there's also, of course, the sheer practical difficulties of him ever getting back to New York because he's he's on his own. He really doesn't have to fly that owl shit. The thing's iced up. It's probably out of fuel or whatever. It's a, a fool's errand anyway. He's, he's never going to get there, really. But obviously, Dr. Manhattan isn't going to take that chance. He's 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 one of those guys. I, I know these relentless people, and I've heard stories of such relentless people that, like, they will not stop if they are not mm -hmm. stopped. Mm -hmm. There's no choice. Fair enough. I think you guys right. did drop the ball here uh, when you could have done a just do it. Would have been really nice. I, I would have loved that. That is a Nike uh, reference. If, if uh... all right. Although what what I would point out, you you mentioned earlier on where for the first time Doctor Manhattan raises his voice. This is the only time that Rorschach raises his voice. Yeah, you know it's the um yeah, yeah. That's a good call. The other note that I'll have here, a little bit more serious, is. You know, that's a very famous thing for the, the uh, a man who was executed. I think it was the last execution in Utah by firing squad. And famously, his, his last words were, were do it mm. uh, and maybe just do it. I'm not sure about the just part, but it feels like, mm. I mean, this is exactly pretty famous last words of, you know, the last man killed in America by firing squad. Does this call back also to to young Walter Kovacs when he gets the, the ice cream on the head and he puts a cigarette out on the kid's eye like? Like uh, we, yes. we've, we've seen that panel of Walter Kovacs doing doing some stuff yeah. earlier. And, and I think also, much like, I guess, the guy you're talking about with the firing squad, Rorschach knows what's going to happen. He knows there's no escape, but there's no point in even talking or you, just do it, you know, because we know you're going to do it and nothing's going to change your mind. So it's Rorschach, you know, even in the case of his own death being absolutely clear, you know. I wonder if it's re his recognition, too, that he does not exist in a utopian society. His character has no mm. place in that utopia. Right. Yeah, mm. sure. Yeah, yeah. Where, where does this guy fit in? If, if everything's hunky-dory, what's, what's the purpose? Yeah, yeah. Um, the last panel on that page, we do see the, the smiley face in the end of the circular tunnel again with the red smoke, the red mist going across it like the blood did on the smiley face. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing, that motif. And and uh, once again, that Higgins color, where he's got these mm -hmm. like outer edges of the gore with mm -hmm. uh, the more dissolved interior part, and it's like a bloody mist, and then you have the Dr. Manhattan mist coming up. But also, once again, those layers of depth that we are talking about in those early mm -hmm. uh, splash pages, here's, here's the death mist of Rorschach. You have one yeah. piece of wind coming in front of the smoke, 
one piece of uh, wind going behind it and it just we're working in a 2d medium here you got to do what you can to try to give us some foreground middle ground and background and dave you always rise to that occasion here look at this one. Oh, thanks manhattan uh sadistic oh i'm sorry go ahead dave no i'm i, sh I should also put point out that um rorschach's hat comes flying off in panel two on that left hand page and then he's got the mask in his hand but the mask ends up if you look on the very bottom pan on the bottom picture over towards the left near that bush there's a circular it's a thing that looks like a fried egg it's just a flat thing with a with a flat black blob yep exactly and that's his mask when he's not wearing it it's lost all the heat information it's well perhaps it's even frozen and it's just a circular block on a on a piece of uh, piece of latex that level of thought man it is interesting to me that Manhattan like kind of violently obliterates him because we've seen Manhattan do all sorts of stuff. He could have teleported into mm. the bottom of the Pacific Ocean or Mars if he wanted to, but like mm. he obliter like explodes him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look at the dad bod on Daniel Dryberg, man. <laughs> he, this guy hasn't been practicing Tai Chi for 30 years. <laughs> what do you know? You haven't seen me standing up. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the piece, man. The, the, the little bit of recognition with uh, Do Dr. Manhattan, that little smile, like his last piece of humanity. He's, he's okay with Lori. He, he knows she's in good hands or something. Do you, by any chance, have this script part talking about this? Yeah. I do. And in fact, it, it was a thing that really struck me. And I'm just scrolling my way towards it. What, what Alan put as his description for that. Here we go. 22, 23. What's this page? 25. Yeah. Panel one, two, three, four, five. Panel five. 25. It says, uh, right, page 25, panel five. Now a single width shot, looking up slightly at a head and shoulders shot of John, who is looking down at us. He has a faint but fondly paternal smile as he silently and understatedly bestows his blessing upon their relationship. I tried to draw that. I mean, I, I had a good go, but that's poetry, isn't it? Mission accomplished. I swear to God, I could cry right now, like just <laughs> making this video. Like, this is ridiculous to me. This is so cool. Dave, thank you so much for, for providing all this insight and sharing these little snippets from the script. Like, sure. Oh, I'm glad I have my sunglasses on. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to start me off, Ed. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, this part. Super iconic to me, man, where he just walks up the freaking wall like a boss. <laughs> and, and then just like writes himself up. He's not bound by physics. <laughs> Shall I just read you the panel dis description for one of these? Because how I made sense of this, this is page 26, panel 5. Don't know where, the, where that is. Yeah. It says, The room above, which is a cathedral-like dome containing Veidt's orrery. In this panel, the wall of the orrery's enclosure rises on the left of the picture with the floor running along the bottom. In the foreground, entering from the right of panel, since we are on our own eye level and plane now, we see John's lower legs. The leading one is already stepping onto the wall to the left. The other one's still coming through the floor as if insubstantial. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just like like kind of describing the, the fourth dimension or something, you know. Um, but I think we kind of pulled it, pulled it off. And what's interesting is we did a similar thing 
with that Superman annual that we did, that as I mentioned, we were working on while we were doing the de design of Watchmen. And the Superman annual we did was set in Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And it was a similar kind of thing that we knew where all the different bits of it were. We had a, a plan and a diagram and we could sort of articulate that space and make it very real. And I think we get a similar effect here that you're looking at something from all, all dimensions and it becomes three-dimensionally believable. There's MC Escher in it. Yeah. Um, this sums up so much of what I think of that makes great storytelling because by itself, he's just walking on the floor until you start looking and realize that he's actually walking up the wall right. towards us. It's, it's, it's seeing something that you've seen a million times, but seeing it in it from a unique perspective. Dave, mm -hmm. whenever you guys were designing this, this comic, did the idea of, of uh, magical realism specifically ever, ever get brought up while constructing the story? The idea that there's, you know, this is the quote unquote real world, but we're going to inject one piece of science mm. fiction. There's a, it's a South American literary tradition as, yeah. as I know it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose to a degree, that's what the whole thing is really. I mean, the premise of it is, well, in most superhero comics, in, in all the Superman comics, the fact that there is Superman in the world makes no difference to the way people live their everyday lives. It's indistinguishable from this, this reality. But we reasoned, and I know it was there in Alan's very early notes, that if there was a Superman in the world, if there was a Dr. Manhattan, the whole world would change. Everything would be different. Clearly, politics, which is what we're going into here, we're trying to avert a nuclear war, but even down to things like what would be the point of being an Olympic athlete when there was somebody who could do what you do a hundred times quicker or better or faultlessly, you know, it would, and people wouldn't necessarily like that. And as, and as we know, even with very good things like vaccines, for instance, you know, some people just see a dark and awful side in it. So with a, a hero who had superpowers, even if he was for good as Superman has always been, in reality, there would be a lot of suspicion and a lot of shade being thrown on him. So I think in a way, Watchmen is a magic realism book. And it's okay, let's take the world and then say that in 1952 or whatever it was, there was a Superman and this is what then happened. That's the point at which it diverges. Because all the messing around in the 40s with the Minutemen, it was essentially just guys in Halloween costumes running about, you know, being stupid. And, but it was at the point at which um, we're not stupid, but, you know, uh, um, and uh, but it was at the, the point at which our reality changed with the arrival of Dr. Manhattan. That's when we got into a different universe. So, yes, yeah, so I think there is that kind of reference or awareness of uh, magic realism. Yeah. When we have this little solar system thing, this little mm -hmm. globe. I'm feeling Ditko. I'm, I'm thinking of Steve Ditko. When you know I what? I, I I did wonder, is that based on a real object? Is that something that you referenced or is that made up? It, it's kind of made up. I mean, an orrery is a clockwork device for mimicking the mo movement of celestial bodies. And so you get these kind of it, it, it hasn't necessarily got a, a glass globe around it, but it will have sort of arcs of metal that show the path, the perceived path of the constellations and the orbits of the planets and the moons that rotate around them. And they are quite wonderful and beautiful things. I mean, obviously 
they're crude and they're in, inaccurate by modern day standards, but it was the kind of thing that a rich person would have in their house as an amusement, you know, the, the equivalent of a, I, I, I don't know, an, an HD TV or, or, or something like that, you know, that, that, that they would show you the movement of the planets. So, um, yeah, I, I think I, I designed this, but I do get the reference. I never really got it before. It's like that window mm. in, in Dr. Strange's Greenwich Village apartment, isn't it? The, the, the sky thing. So, yeah, yeah. Again, you know, I, mean, I think when you look at Watchmen, Ditko's everywhere, really. Yeah, that's a good pool. Ed. Nice call back to, to the Charlton stuff. Makes perfect sense when you say it. It's not something I picked up on the reading, but it, it looks so Ditko-esque. What we're looking at here on page 27, uh, we're looking at an Adrian Veidt for who the very first time in the entire comic is unsure of himself, man. Dr. Manhattan did that to him. Yeah, you're the smartest man on earth, but I'm a god. And in the end, yeah. uh, nothing ever ends. John, what do you mean? What, what, what do you mean? And he's just left standing there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he says, uh, more towards the background and to the right of the panel, we see Veidt standing with his back slightly turned to the orrery, but looking back over his shoulder at it. He looks over his shoulder thoughtfully, as if wondering whether it might suddenly pounce on him from behind. On his half-shadowed face, we see the first fatal shadow of subtle doubt upon those noble, confident features. In the foreground, the clockwork world spin. Isn't that brilliant? It's amazing. And I mean, what you did with it, it like, you know, it's so much of it is in the eyebrows, uh, we, like mm. to, 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 to sell that, to sell that emotion. You know, one of the shows that we like to watch a lot is called Man Ben, uh, Dave. Like, I don't know if you know it. It's, it's uh, the Japanese cartoonists. Uh, it's an it's a NHK uh, TV show. Uh, mm. Cartoonist named Naoki Urasawa, who's one of the big, the big dog, the Tezuka of modern day in Japan goes to different studios of artists. They put cameras all through the studio for about four or five days, capture a big package of film, and then they uh, revisit one another with this package of film. They watch the film and they just talk about it like it's football plays from last mm -hmm. week's game or something. And mm. uh, every single one of them talks so much about uh, really fetishizing the eyes of their characters to like get the emotions across, like the importance of the eyebrows and the furrowing of the brows, uh, the expressiveness of the eyebrows. And uh, in this issue alone, there are so many great uh, sort of facial expressions throughout this yeah. thing to, to real and, and subtle ones. You could do happy, you could do angry, but but uh, Doctor Manhattan here even is a is a subtle. Facial yeah. expression that is not easy to I mean, do. My memory of drawing pictures like that, because the actual figures in in these drawings are really quite small, you know, e even on the larger art board. And it was a bit like kind of microsurgery going in with a very fine pen. And of course, you don't always hit it because it's which is where my trusty friend the electric eraser would come in. So it was it was like draw it, oh shit. <laughs> draw it again, oh shit, draw it again. Yeah, got it, you know, or nearly got it, or it's not going to get any better than that, you know. <laughs> that electric eraser, man, uh, for for ink, it's this, like, super hard. I don't have a, the, the, the eraser, like the ink eraser one, but it's this gray, hard thing, and I feel like it starts to destroy the integrity of the page. You could probably only get one or two before you got to patch it, I imagine. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, you, you, you have to be quite gentle with it, but if you do it quite gently and don't try and get rid of it all at once but just work on it slowly 
you do end up with a surface which is perfectly smooth and, and takes the ink very well. I think, I don't know if it was the last time I was on here, but I shared a studio with Mick McMahon and I made the mistake of introducing him to the electric eraser. And he was going through a period where he was trying to letter his own comics. And he, he actually, on one balloon, went right through the paper. You know, he actually <laughs> drilled a hole right, right, right through the paper. So it's a handy thing to have, but it's a bit like, you know, the difference that having undo on a computer makes to doing computer art. There's something about I can't make a mistake that makes you really concentrate. So I would fall back on the electric eraser, but I'd try and get it right first time. All right, man, we have our uh, our epilogue section of, mm. of Watchmen. The word happy here. Is this a uh, Fantastic Four lettering? Uh, it looks it, doesn't it? It feels like an Easter egg in there. No, but but yes, I'll, I'll uh, as an example of my genius, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Sally Jupiter, man, is, is bringing in a couple of... Uh, fair-haired uh, people we've not seen before, but I recognize this body. <laughs> uh, I'd recognize this Dan Dryberg body, man. And that little uh, that little beauty mark on our girl, mm -hmm. there's no mistaking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Chekhov's Tijuana Bible. You, you don't introduce the Tijuana Bible in Act 1 if, if that doesn't pay off in no. Act 3. So we have Sally yeah. Jupiter hooking up Dryberg with his copy where he also has to admit that he he's he's had a copy or two in his day. It's a valuable yeah. it's a valuable collector's item. Love how yeah. how well he hits it off with uh, sat with with uh, Lori's mother. Just as oh a yeah, fan. And, and 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 how she, she she's a game old girl. She's flirting away with him, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's such a good character piece because I mean he you know he hangs out with Hollis Mason. Uh, you know the, the he's the senpai kohai man. Tell tell me some stories. Uncle Dave Givens, tell us some stories, man. Like we identify, we identify with this fella. Well, I will, I will tell you another quick story now, which is, you, you notice they're talking about the the outer limits. The, the guy on the TV is saying, and now, and now more Christmas excitement with tonight's return visit to the outer limits. Well, somebody point pointed out to us that the basic plot of Watchmen, you know, had been done in a, an outer limits uh, segment called the Architects of Fear. I mean, it isn't an original idea to unite against the common enemy, which is basically what Veidt's trying to do to get the US and Russia to, you know, to join forces against the fifth dimension. But um, we thought as we, we knew people would point it out to us and we just wanted to show that, yeah, we kind of know that. We do know there is this story, which is kind of from a, from a similar route. And indeed, that's the reason why in the credits at the front of the collected book, uh, a guy called Mike Lake gets a credit because he was one of the co-owners of Titan Books and Forbidden Planet in the UK. And he found us a copy of the Outer Limits book that, that sort of had the synopses of all the um, of, of all the Outer Limits shows in it. So that's why he gets a, a mention in the front. Neil Gaiman gets a mention as well because he actually helped unearth a lot of the quotes, which are the the individual issue titles and story titles. Pat Mills gave us a great quote about John F. Kennedy talking about the watchman on the on the walls of the of, of the world. And who else got a credit? Let me just have a look just to complete it. Joe Orlando, because Joe Orlando drew that one page of Tales of the Black Freighter that we used in one of the backup sections. So yeah, so just because Mike Lake was the first to pull out his 
his copy of the outer limits he got to have a credit on the front of watchman so did pretty well for himself. Um, you know what, Dave? We were we've been go using the issues uh, to to do our little recaps and deconstructions, and uh, very often in the final pages of the issues, there would be just like a black blot where the quote would be in the collected versions. But I'm guessing that uh, DC Legal just didn't didn't get clearance for these quotes or something whenever the issues came out um that would probably be a misprint because i think they all have got quotes although somewhere um alan makes makes mention of um island records who have been really difficult with letting us letting us use this quote that that rounds out the whole thing uh the john kale thing where it's it would be a stronger world a stronger loving world to to die in they, I forget the exact figures, but they were holding out for tens of thousands of dollars just to use that line of the song. Whereas we'd use quotes at the very beginning, in particular from Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan's organisation were absolute sweethearts above it, about it. They said, thanks for letting us know. We'd be very pleased if you used our quotes, but we will charge you, you know, an administrative fee of, of, of whatever it was. And it was just John Cale and Island Records who were really, really awkward about it. So I think you might, I never thought of this. I thought it was a misprint, but you may well be right that they blacked it out until they got the rights to use them. And I think by the time they came to do a trade paperback, they knew there was going to be enough money in it for DC to make it worthwhile paying out a few thousand dollars to use a line. Yeah. Here's our complicated ending with uh, Sally Jupiter, giving the mm -hmm. comedian a kiss, man. Life is complicated. It's a, it's a strange thing. I mean, I mean, I think we called it just about right, but you know, this this was not not a nice guy. But I I I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's a bit of a moral maze. I I, I think, but I think it, it rings true to me. I think given the character we'd established for Sally Jupiter, it sort of rings true. And uh, what do you say, man? The the, the coup de gras. No more uh, banners and stuff for nostalgia. We're approaching mm -hmm. millennium. Mm -hmm. I, I I had to use my electric er eraser on that big panel where the, we've got the big millennium poster because Alan in his script spelt millennium with only one N. And of course, being a slavish artist, I copied that. And then I had to re redo that, that, that whole logo on there. But that was, that was fair use of the electric eraser, I think. What a headache to do that re-lettering and remove all, all that stuff. Yeah, but you never know. The uh... and of course, and of course, we see now that on that intersection, there is no newsstand. There is just a robotic newspaper dispenser, and there's a new design electric charger. It looks a bit like one of those Apple ear pods, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, and and a flash symbol on it looks very modern. Yeah, double R to run in '88. We know who that is. We do indeed. And then, oh, here, here are the sneakers with the V on it. Mm -hmm. Adrian Veidt's footprint is everywhere. Mm -hmm. No pun intended. You see, watch the Watchman, or who watches the Watchmen has been replaced with, with watch the skies, right? Our, our our new threat now being aliens. Yep, yep. And I, don't look up. Don't look up. Our friends, the Russians, now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Joining. Oh, oh yeah, and. And 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 there's, and there's another detail there where we see the guy w with his Vite uh, trainers uh, actually walking along. There's a there's a comic which is Tales from the Morgue, 
because we kind of reckoned that pirate comics were, were 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 old now. So, given all this horror that had happened in New York City, there was a big appetite for gory, you know, horror type type material. So now, uh, Tales of the Black Freighter was Tales from the Morgue. And if it was an EC comic, they'd carry on the same numbering. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Man, a place like Pioneer Publishing Incorporated, uh, you know, the conspiracy paper must mm -hmm. flourish <laughs> in a time where an alien just shows up at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah. But we still have the guys from working the editorial staff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and and they and they fit fit right in there as well. There's there's also the thing I noticed with Pioneer Press. They've got the kind of backward, you know, the P and the backward P, which was the kind of thing we had earlier with Rorschach, the the, the Rum Runner Club, where the, the two R's that were back to front and made a skull, and the two P's here kind of do that as well, and also the R's on Burger and Borscht. One of those is reversed. To, to be like a Russian R. So there's little ripples still going on, even when we get to the penultimate page. Yeah, that's incredible. And, 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 and the ending, man, an ending as good as the ending of the last scene in Sopranos, as far as I'm concerned, because we're going to leave a little bit up to you. You know, like readers don't like that. Like, like the standard audience member doesn't like that kind of thing whenever they're, they're asked to make a choice, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, they, 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 a lot of people really want stuff spelled out for them. And yeah. uh, the fact that you guys have the balls to uh, allow us uh, to leave us with that hand going through the slush pile, he's going to grab something. Is he going to grab that Rorschach journal? It's up yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that note of, ambiguity and it keeps the ball still in play and again it, it is like nothing ends nothing ever ends adrian right. it's still there it's still got possibility it's still like schrodinger's cat you know it's not alive or dead but it's some state in between so to me i i, I find that com completely satisfying and i was also in interested to not to, to see when i looked at the script for this that, that i'd actually done something that i had never done it anywhere else in the book and I changed the pos position of the balloons around that I'd moved a balloon into, into a different panel and moved all the balloons around I think I just did it because it worked better with the disposition of the characters um, but I was amazed to find that I'd had the temerity to do that I'd obviously asked Alan about it but normally I would not do anything at all to Alan's copy because truthfully there's nothing much you could do to improve it you know Dave, could you uh, just just for um, posterity, since we have you here and you have the script and everything, could could you could you read us the description of the very last panel? The very last panel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just like any 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 other panel, to be honest with you. But I will will read it out because it's it's interesting. It says, uh, "Wide panel closing in on the detail from the last panel. All we see now is Seymour's motionless hand on the left." poised in mid-movement, heading towards the crank file with fingers open to take something, but we're unable to tell what. Filling the background is the giant smiley face on his T-shirt. The ketchup splashes across the right eye over on the left. The hand is frozen. That's it. God Godfrey Off says, I leave it entirely in your hands. And the quote in the box is, 
Well, actually, Alan had it as, and it will be a stronger world, a strong and loving world to die in. John Cale Santis from Music for a New Society. So that was that. And, and the script for this issue ran to 53 pages of typescript. For 20 for 32 pages of comics. So a little um, a little closed mouth given to the way that Alan no normally works. Some of the scripts are 120 pages long or something like that. <laughs> did you digitize so then, these and, and create a PDF for yourself or something? Yeah, well, I hung on to the script because I think at some point it's going to be quite a valuable artifact. Not that I want to benefit from that, but I do think it's the sort of thing that belongs in a museum or a library or something like like that because and of course it's the part of comics creation that people really don't see i mean there's so much information in there that that the artist needs to draw it but there's also the tone of it and the conversations going on on with the artist and normally these are only seen by the editor and the artist and never seen again so i think it's a valuable thing so I did keep every single one of the scripts and I've still got them. And I also paid some money to have them professionally scanned. So I've got good high resolution, full color copies of everything. And I've also got an OCR, you know, character recognition version of it. Um, but I'm just, just keeping them safe uh, for posterity, really. That's so smart. So it's, sorry? I said, I just said that's so smart. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, I mean, they probably are the only copies because the DC editorial copies, I'm sure, were just thrown away with the rest of the paper that was generated every week by by them. So, yeah. And, and of course, they're also kind of artifacts because you can see, because Alan's got quite a heavy hand on the keyboard, you know, and there's, there's, there's places where the, the typewriter key's gone right through the paper. There's all sorts of cigarette burns on them, coffee stains, I kind of used highlighters to separate out the information in the descriptions and, and, and everything. And there's Alan's handwritten uh, corrections and stuff. So, yeah, so they're, they're quite interesting artifacts. So I thought it was worth un, 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 or disinterring them so that I could give you the, the extra information that you won't find anywhere else but on this on this podcast thank you so much for that too i mean that, that was incredible like just having the conversation was one thing but having access to to to, to those bits for icing mm. on the cake in a giant way mm. uh let me ask i'm i'm curious if you have any uh recollection or knowledge of the kind of print circulation for the the actual issues like did they hold steady um obviously the 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 collected books have sold in the millions uh at, at this point but those issues like you know direct market book when the direct market had a couple years of life but not so many not even a decade probably and um, i don't know the exact figures off off hand i mean somewhere i should have a royalty statement that pr probably has got those figures on it but my impression is, or my kind of, what I can remember of it is that the first issue did really, really quite well, by which I mean, I don't know, 150,000, which was probably a healthy sum for those days. And then as always happens, the second, third issue sold less. But I think once it got down to the sales on the third issue, it kind of held steady because I think, you, you know, the people who liked it really liked it. and knowing that it was a finite series, probably wanted to collect the whole thing. And also because in those days, 
there weren't trade paperbacks really so if you wanted to read it you had to buy it and, and keep it um so i think yeah I, I i think it sold quite well but as you say it was really when it got to the trade paperbacks and particularly when the movie came along that the sales just went through the roof you know to well quite frankly unimaginable levels but um yeah so what did we uh, threaten to talk about at the end of the thing that I said, like, let's keep a note of that? Yes, yes. You had some story to wrap up at the end here, Dave. Yeah. So, you know, two, two years, more than two years of working on this day in, day out, in sickness and in health, in, in sunshine and rain. And eventually I finished it. I've drawn the last, the last piece on the last page. So now I have to do what I regularly did, which is to send it off to the the state send it off to dc comics in, in new york so the, the thing that, that that i did before these days of fedex there wasn't any fedex in, in britain back when we were doing this and i used to send it using a service called data post which was run by the british post office and it was it was like a kind of fedex thing except you had to take it in to a post office and if i took it into my local post office it would take two days to get to new york but if I took it into London and the big central post office in Trafalgar Square, it would get there the next day. So I got, got, got the artwork, made up the parcel, went via the Xerox house that I used to go to to get full-size Xeroxes and shrunk down Xeroxes made of everything before I entrusted it to the vagaries of, of data post. Sealed up the parcel, got on the train, went up to London, went into the big post office, and normally it was a very pleasant business, but on this particular day, my last day of doing it, I got this really cranky clerk behind the counter. What's so? What's in this package? Oh, it's it's artwork. Oh, it's artwork. Is it worth a lot of money? Well, no, it's commercial artwork. It's only worth something to the people that are going to print it. Okay, so I'll need to take a look at it. And I say, well, I just spent fifteen minutes making this secure package i've sent loads of these before do i really have to open it well you should really i've got to know what's in it and it could be anything and anyway we had this long slightly ill-tempered discussion in the end he didn't make me open it and i was able to pass it over the counter pay the money get the receipt put the receipt in my pocket and i was a free man i was now the the final package had gone so i walked up st martin's lane in london towards um comic showcase which, which was one of the really great comic shops we used to have in London. It was a comic shop that actually sold off the original artwork. I had struck a deal with a guy who owned the shop to sell my artwork off. He got a really good deal on it. He did better out of it than I think either of us thought he would, um, to, to, to the extent that by the time we got to the 12th issue, this artwork for the 12th issue that I just sent off to, to DC Comics, actually had been bought by somebody before publication, before I'd even actually drawn it. So anyway, I was very well known in Comic Showcase. So I bounded, bounded up, up the road to Comic Showcase to treat myself to some new comics, to celebrate having finished Watchmen. And I bounced in and started looking down the racks and the guy behind the till went, oh, hi, Dave, you look happy. I went, yeah, it's great. I've just sent off the last issue of Watchmen, I'm done. He said, oh, that's great. So. Uh, what are you working on now? <laughs> Which, you know, tells you something about comics. Okay, so you've done that, but what are you doing now? What's the next thing? You're, you're only as good as your last job. But 
Anyway, I, I was I was still thrilled despite the counter clerk and despite the guy, the guy trying to trying to organize the next treadmill for me. That's the uh, greatest comedy like, story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So oh, goodness, man. that was it. And and so I, I never even actually saw the finished artwork after that, because I think I just had it d delivered straight back to Comic Showcase, who sold it to the guy who pre-bought it. So uh, that was it for me. Yeah, it's amazing. Man. That's so funny. We saw uh, in a um, somehow like somebody got hold of all the all the covers uh, or maybe it was you who just held on to them. I don't know. Um, and in Wizard Magazine, there was an auction and somebody got them all for a thousand dollars a piece a twelve thousand dollar lot for the 12 yeah. covers i think they were actually owned by gareth seamus who was the publisher of wizard Ma magazine i think he ha he had the whole lot lot of them um and i think yeah he did did sell them for for a thousand dollars each i'm too ashamed to tell you how little money i got for the original art of watchman the reason i got the got comic showcase to sell it for me was I thought what people want with original comic art are action shots and hero shots and money shots. And a lot of Watchmen is just people standing around talking as we've just seen in issue 12, page after page of dialogue. I thought nobody's really interested in that stuff. So if I try and sell it, I'll sell a few pages and then I'll just be stuck with the with the rest. So when, when I got offered by Comic Showcase to sell it on my behalf, I, I jumped at it and well, and I, and, now you'll think very badly of me if, if if I tell you how disastrously little I got for it, but it was in it was in the tens of pounds. It was in the low tens of pounds per page. And as we know, there's now been pages out there for I don't know what three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, something like that. It's and of course friends of mine send me emails going, "Hey Dave, have a look on eBay, see what your pages are going for." <laughs> no, I don't want to know what they're going for. I don't ever ever want to know that. Uh, yeah, it's it's brutal, but but uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're doing okay. Like this book has to have been uh, re reprinted dozens of times, uh, constantly in print. Like, yeah. and I've got no no complaints about it at all. Watchman has been very very good to me, and you know um, I'm I'm really happy with the way things panned out. Even even to the degree that IDW did one of their artist edition books, which has got a lot of facsimiles of the original pages, and in a way. They're worth as much to me as, as, as the stuff I sold because I've still got it to look at and reminisce about about the old days. And I've still got young whippersnappers like you who seem to be interested in it. So, yeah, it, it all works out OK in the end, although nothing ever ends. Never, nothing ever ends. That's a that's a that's a good way to uh, to put it. That's a good way to end this episode. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time with us to unpack this final issue of Watchmen and to share some anecdotes and some intel about uh about the whole the whole situation you well and, guys you're very very welcome as, as as you know i'm a big big fan of your channel and uh really happy to do it for you and uh i hope everybody out there enjoys it uh happy new year to, yes. to the audience out there because this is uh going live on uh J january 1st but uh before we do split D dave is there anything that you would like to uh to promote any social media uh, any new books impending? Well, I think when we spoke, I don't know how long ago it was we spoke. It must have been a year ago. I, I was talking to you about my autobiography and my autobiography um, 
is getting closer and closer to publication. It looks like it's going to be sometime in the middle of 2022. Um, and I've seen some proof pages from it and it, I'm really pleased with the way it looks. It's got all, it's got most of the anecdotes I've told you, you this afternoon, but plenty more besides. And it's got, man, it's got old artwork I've, I've uncovered, you know, my first drawing of Superman when I was like seven years old and uh, stuff that I, I hope people will find um, in, in, interesting. And I'm sure you, you guys will enjoy it because you're well known for your behind the scenes, in-depth look at the at lives in comics. And this is, I think, a, pr a pretty accurate uh, telling of my time in comics with my in influences and the various odd things I've worked on and the good deals and the bad deals, you know, and the money and the, and, and, and the not so much money, but I've gr greatly enjoyed doing it, but it's going to have to get out there soon because, you know, I've already had to add an obituary to, to, to one entry in it and I don't want to add too many more of those. So it'll, it'll be out next year anyway. And, um, as, as I think I, th I threatened before, I'd be very happy to come back on here and uh, go through it with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear that. I, I can't wait for that to come out. Um, I think about that all the time about autobiographies, biographies, histories of really the last couple of decades. You know, I'm, I'm really excited to see this come out. So that's great news, Dave. Glad to hear it. Okay, good. When when that comes out, please, let's let's do this again. Let's let's let's, you know, have another conversation, uh, chat it up and let the let the audience for the YouTube channel know uh, this video alone is going to get us a lot more subscribers. Uh, so you, like want to help help you sell that book anyway that we absolutely can. sure. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much, Dave. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Dave. Okay, guys, and ha happy New Year, everybody out there. Okay, Fabers, like follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? Join me on Patreon.com slash JimRug, where you can download out-of-print zines and mini-comics. About a dozen of them are available. You can see my original art, uh, scripts, sketches, process, how I make Street Angel, Plain Janes, Octobriana, and more at Patreon.com slash JimRug. Uh, read Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, Fantastic Four Grand Design. Uh, on my Patreon, I started a new comic called Monster Society. Uh, go to Patreon.com, search Tom Scholey, and check out my YouTube channel, Total Recall Show. Red Room Comics, uh, the anti-social network trade paperback hit in stores November 9th. Uh, go to your local comic shop, pre-order this thing. Uh, half the print run got taken by Amazon, and I want comic shops to absolutely have the have the rest uh, to, to sell. Um, also serializing the next round of comics at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor. You could pre-order the first issue of the next round uh, that'll start coming out in December at the Fantagraphics website. All those links in my link tree. Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise like this shirt at the links below this video. Given those margin orders, Jimmy, we're going to be on our way. Read more comics.